The Intelligent Investor, by Benjamin Graham. Preface by Warren E. Buffett. I read the first edition of this book early in 1950, when I was 19. I thought then that it was by far the best book about investing ever written. I still think it is. To invest successfully over a lifetime does not require a stratospheric IQ, unusual business insights, or inside information. What's needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. This book precisely and clearly prescribes the proper framework. You must supply the emotional discipline. If you follow the behavioral and business principles that Graham advocates, and if you pay special attention to the invaluable advice in chapters 8 and 20, you will not get a poor result from your investments. That represents more of an accomplishment than you might think, whether you achieve outstanding results will depend on the effort and intellect you apply to your investments, as well as on the amplitudes of stock market folly that prevail during your investing career. The sillier the market's behavior, the greater the opportunity for the business-like investor. Follow Graham and you will profit from folly rather than participate in it. To me, Ben Graham was far more than an author or a teacher. More than any other man except my father, he influenced my life. Shortly after Ben's death in 1976, I wrote the following short remembrance about him in the Financial Analyst's Journal. As you read the book, I believe you'll perceive some of the qualities I mentioned in this tribute. Benjamin Graham 1894-1976 Several years ago Ben Graham, then almost 80, expressed to a friend the thought that he hoped every day to do something foolish, something creative and something generous. The inclusion of that first whimsical goal reflected his knack for packaging ideas in a form that avoided any overtones of sermonizing or self-importance. Although his ideas were powerful, their delivery was unfailingly gentle. Readers of this magazine need no elaboration of his achievements as measured by the standard of creativity. It is rare that the founder of a discipline does not find his work eclipsed in rather short order by successors. But over 40 years after publication of the book that brought structure and logic to a disorderly and confused activity, it is difficult to think of possible candidates for even the runner-up position in the field of security analysis. In an area where much looks foolish within weeks or months after publication, Ben's principles have remained sound, their value often enhanced and better understood in the wake of financial storms that demolished flimsier intellectual structures. His counsel of soundness brought unfailing rewards to his followers, even to those with natural abilities inferior to more gifted practitioners who stumbled while following counsels of brilliance or fashion. A remarkable aspect of Ben's dominance of his professional field was that he achieved it without the narrowness of mental activity that concentrates all effort on a single end. It was, rather, the incidental byproduct of an intellect whose breadth almost exceeded definition. Certainly I have never met anyone with a mind of similar scope. Virtually total recall unending fascination with new knowledge, and an ability to recast it in a form applicable to seemingly unrelated problems made exposure to his thinking in any field a delight. But his third imperative, generosity, was where he succeeded beyond all others. I knew Ben as my teacher, my employer, and my friend. In each relationship, just as with all his students, employees, and friends, there was an absolutely open-ended, no-scores-kept generosity of ideas, time, and spirit. If clarity of thinking was required, there was no better place to go. And if encouragement or counsel was needed, Ben was there. Walter Lippmann spoke of men who plant trees that other men will sit under. Ben Graham was such a man. Introduction What this book expects to accomplish The purpose of this book is to supply, in a form suitable for laymen, guidance in the adoption and execution of an investment policy. Comparatively little will be said here about the technique of analyzing securities, attention will be paid chiefly to investment principles and investors' attitudes. We shall, 
however, provide a number of condensed comparisons of specific securities, chiefly in pairs appearing side-by-side side in the New York Stock Exchange list, in order to bring home in concrete fashion the important elements involved in specific choices of common stocks. But much of our space will be devoted to the historical patterns of financial markets, in some cases running back over many decades. To invest intelligently in securities one should be forearmed with an adequate knowledge of how the various types of bonds and stocks have actually behaved under varying conditions, some of which, at least, one is likely to meet again in one's own experience. No statement is more true and better applicable to Wall Street than the famous warning of Santayana, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Our text is directed to investors as distinguished from speculators, and our first task will be to clarify and emphasize this now all but forgotten distinction. We may say at the outset that this is not a how-to-make-a-million book. There are no sure and easy paths to riches on Wall Street or anywhere else. It may be well to point up what we have just said by a bit of financial history, especially since there is more than one moral to be drawn from it. In the climactic year 1929 John J. Raskob, a most important figure nationally as well as on Wall Street, extolled the blessings of capitalism in an article in the Ladies Home Journal, entitled Everybody Ought to Be Rich. His thesis was that savings of only $15 per month invested in good common stocks, with dividends reinvested, would produce an estate of $80,000 in 20 years against total contributions of only $3,600. If the General Motors tycoon was right, this was indeed a simple road to riches. How nearly right was he? Our rough calculation, based on assumed investment in the 30 stocks making up the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Dow Jones Industrial Average, indicates that if Raskob's prescription had been followed during 1929 to 1948, the investors' holdings at the beginning of 1949 would have been worth about $8,500. This is a far cry from the great man's promise of $80,000, and it shows how little reliance can be placed on such optimistic forecasts and assurances. But, as an aside, we should remark that the return actually realized by the 20-year operation would have been better than 8% compounded annually and this despite the fact that the investor would have begun his purchases with the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 300 and ended with a valuation based on the 1948 closing level of 177. This record may be regarded as a persuasive argument for the principle of regular monthly purchases of strong common stocks through thick and thin, a program known as dollar cost averaging. Since our book is not addressed to speculators, it is not meant for those who trade in the market. Most of these people are guided by charts or other largely mechanical means of determining the right moments to buy and sell. The one principle that applies to nearly all these so-called technical approaches is that one should buy because a stock or the market has gone up and one should sell because it has declined. This is the exact opposite of sound business sense everywhere else, and it is most unlikely that it can lead to lasting success on Wall Street. In our own stock market experience and observation, extending over 50 years, we have not known a single person who has consistently or lastingly made money by thus following the market. We do not hesitate to declare that this approach is as fallacious as it is popular. We shall illustrate what we have just said, though, of course this should not be taken as proof, by a later brief discussion of the famous Dow theory for trading in the stock market. Since its first publication in 1949, revisions of the intelligent investor have appeared at intervals of approximately five years. In updating the current version we shall have to deal with quite a number of new developments since the 1965 edition was written. These include 1. An unprecedented advance in the interest rate on high-grade bonds. 2. A fall of about 35% in the price level of leading common stocks, ending in May 1970. This was the highest percentage decline in some 30 years. Countless issues of lower quality had a much larger shrinkage. 
3. A persistent inflation of wholesale and consumers' prices, which gained momentum even in the face of a decline of general business in 1970. 4. The rapid development of conglomerate companies, franchise operations, and other relative novelties in business and finance. These include a number of tricky devices such as letter stock, one proliferation of stock option warrants, misleading names, use of foreign banks, and others. 5. Bankruptcy of our largest railroad, excessive short and long-term debt of many formerly strongly entrenched companies, and even a disturbing problem of solvency among Wall Street houses. 6. The advent of the performance vogue in the management of investment funds, including some bank-operated trust funds, with disquieting results. These phenomena will have our careful consideration, and some will require changes in conclusions and emphasis from our previous edition. The underlying principles of sound investment should not alter from decade to decade, but the application of these principles must be adapted to significant changes in the financial mechanisms and climate. The last statement was put to the test during the writing of the present edition, the first draft of which was finished in January 1971. At that time the Dow Jones Industrial Average was in a strong recovery from its 1970 low of 632 and was advancing toward a 1971 high of 951, with attendant general optimism. As the last draft was finished, in November 1971, the market was in the throes of a new decline, carrying it down to 797 with a renewed general uneasiness about its future. We have not allowed these fluctuations to affect our general attitude toward sound investment policy which remains substantially unchanged since the first edition of this book in 1949. The extent of the market's shrinkage in 1969-70 should have served to dispel an illusion that had been gaining ground during the past two decades. This was that leading common stocks could be bought at any time and at any price, with the assurance not only of ultimate profit but also that any intervening loss would soon be recouped by a renewed advance of the market to new high levels. That was too good to be true. At long last the stock market has returned to normal in the sense that both speculators and stock investors must again be prepared to experience significant and perhaps protracted falls as well as rises in the value of their holdings. In the area of many secondary and third-line common stocks, especially recently floated enterprises, the havoc wrought by the last market break was catastrophic. This was nothing new in itself, it had happened to a similar degree in 1961-62, but there was now a novel element in the fact that some of the investment funds had large commitments and highly speculative and obviously overvalued issues of this type. Evidently it is not only the Tyro who needs to be warned that while enthusiasm may be necessary for great accomplishments elsewhere, on Wall Street it almost invariably leads to disaster. The major question we shall have to deal with grows out of the huge rise in the rate of interest on first quality bonds. Since late 1967 the investor has been able to obtain more than twice as much income from such bonds as he could from dividends on representative common stocks. At the beginning of 1972 the return was 7.19% on highest grade bonds versus only 2.76% on industrial stocks. This compares with 4.40% and 2.92% respectively at the end of 1964. It is hard to realize that when we first wrote this book in 1949 the figures were almost the exact opposite. The bonds returned only 2.66% and the stocks yielded 6.82%.2 In previous editions we have consistently urged that at least 25% of the conservative investors' portfolio be held in common stocks, and we have favored in general a 50-50 division between the two media. We must now consider whether the current great advantage of bond yields over stock yields would justify an all-bond policy until a more sensible relationship returns, as we expect it will. Naturally the question of continued inflation will be of great importance in reaching our decision here. 
a chapter will be devoted to this discussion. In the past we have made a basic distinction between two kinds of investors to whom this book was addressed, the defensive and the enterprising. The defensive, or passive, investor will place his chief emphasis on the avoidance of serious mistakes or losses. His second aim will be freedom from effort, annoyance, and the need for making frequent decisions. The determining trait of the enterprising, or active, or aggressive, investor is his willingness to devote time and care to the selection of securities that are both sound and more attractive than the average. Over many decades an enterprising investor of this sort could expect a worthwhile reward for his extra skill and effort, in the form of a better average return than that realized by the passive investor. We have some doubt whether a really substantial extra recompense is promised to the active investor under today's conditions. But next year or the years after may well be different. We shall accordingly continue to devote attention to the possibilities for enterprising investment, as they existed in former periods and may return. It has long been the prevalent view that the art of successful investment lies first in the choice of those industries that are most likely to grow in the future and then in identifying the most promising companies in these industries. For example, smart investors, or their smart advisors, would long ago have recognized the great growth possibilities of the computer industry as a whole and of international business machines in particular. And similarly for a number of other growth industries and growth companies. But this is not as easy as it always looks in retrospect. To bring this point home at the outset let us add here a paragraph that we included first in the 1949 edition of this book. Such an investor may for example be a buyer of air transport stocks because he believes their future is even more brilliant than the trend the market already reflects. For this class of investor the value of our book will lie more in its warnings against the pitfalls lurking in this favored investment approach than in any positive technique that will help him along his path. The pitfalls have proved particularly dangerous in the industry we mentioned. It was of course, easy to forecast that the volume of air traffic would grow spectacularly over the years. Because of this factor their shares became a favorite choice of the investment funds. But despite the expansion of revenues, at a pace even greater than in the computer industry, a combination of technological problems and overexpansion of capacity made for fluctuating and even disastrous profit figures. In the year 1970, despite a new high in traffic figures, the airlines sustained a loss of some $200 million for their shareholders. They had shown losses also in 1945 and 1961, the stocks of these companies once again showed a greater decline in 1969-70 than did the general market. The record shows that even the highly paid full-time experts of the mutual funds were completely wrong about the fairly short-term future of a major and non-esoteric industry. On the other hand, while the investment funds had substantial investments and substantial gains in IBM, the combination of its apparently high price and the impossibility of being certain about its rate of growth prevented them from having more than, say, 3% of their funds in this wonderful performer. Hence the effect of this excellent choice on their overall results was by no means decisive. Furthermore, many, if not most, of their investments in computer industry companies other than IBM appear to have been unprofitable. From these two broad examples we draw two morals for our readers. 1. Obvious prospects for physical growth in a business do not translate into obvious profits for investors. 2. The experts do not have dependable ways of selecting and concentrating on the most promising companies in the most promising industries. The author did not follow this approach in his financial career as fund manager, and he cannot offer either specific counsel or much encouragement to those who may wish to try it. What then will we aim to accomplish in this book? Our main objective will be to guide the reader against the areas of possible substantial error and to develop policies with which he will be comfortable. We shall say quite a bit about the psychology of investors. For indeed, the investor's chief problem, 
and even his worst enemy, is likely to be himself. The fault, dear investor, is not in our stars, and not in our stocks, but in ourselves, this has proved the more true over recent decades as it has become more necessary for conservative investors to acquire common stocks and thus to expose themselves, willy-nilly, to the excitement and the temptations of the stock market. By arguments, examples, and exhortation, we hope to aid our readers to establish the proper mental and emotional attitudes toward their investment decisions. We have seen much more money made and kept by ordinary people who were temperamentally well-suited for the investment process than by those who lack this quality, even though they had an extensive knowledge of finance, accounting, and stock market lore. Additionally, we hope to implant in the reader a tendency to measure or quantify. For 99 issues out of 100 we could say that at some price they are cheap enough to buy and at some other price they would be so dear that they should be sold. The habit of relating what is paid to what is being offered is an invaluable trade and investment. In an article in a women's magazine many years ago we advised the readers to buy their stocks as they bought their groceries, not as they bought their perfume. The really dreadful losses of the past few years, and on many similar occasions before, were realized in those common stock issues where the buyer forgot to ask how much? In June 1970 the question how much? could be answered by the magic figure 9.40%, the yield obtainable on new offerings of high-grade public utility bonds. This has now dropped to about 7.3%, but even that return tempts us to ask, why give any other answer? But there are other possible answers, and these must be carefully considered. Besides which, we repeat that both we and our readers must be prepared in advance for the possibly quite different conditions of say 1973 to 1977. We shall therefore present in some detail a positive program for common stock investment part of which is within the purview of both classes of investors and part is intended mainly for the enterprising group. Strangely enough, we shall suggest as one of our chief requirements here that our readers limit themselves to issues selling not far above their tangible asset value. The reason for this seemingly outmoded counsel is both practical and psychological. Experience has taught us that, while there are many good growth companies worth several times net assets, the buyer of such shares will be too dependent on the vagaries and fluctuations of the stock market. By contrast, the investor in shares, say, of public utility companies at about their net asset value can always consider himself the owner of an interest in sound and expanding businesses, acquired at a rational price, regardless of what the stock market might say to the contrary. The ultimate result of such a conservative policy is likely to work out better than exciting adventures into the glamorous and dangerous fields of anticipated growth. The art of investment has one characteristic that is not generally appreciated. A creditable, if unspectacular, Result can be achieved by the lay investor with a minimum of effort and capability, but to improve this easily attainable standard requires much application and more than a trace of wisdom. If you merely try to bring just a little extra knowledge and cleverness to bear upon your investment program, instead of realizing a little better than normal results, you may well find that you have done worse. Since anyone, by just buying and holding a representative list, can equal the performance of the market averages, it would seem a comparatively simple matter to beat the averages but as a matter of fact the proportion of smart people who try this and fail is surprisingly large. Even the majority of the investment funds, with all their experienced personnel, have not performed so well over the years as has the general market. Allied to the foregoing is the record of the published stock market predictions of the brokerage houses, for there is strong evidence that their calculated forecasts have been somewhat less reliable than the simple tossing of a coin. In writing this book we have tried to keep this basic pitfall of investment in mind. The virtues of a simple portfolio policy have been emphasized, the purchase of high-grade bonds plus a diversified list of leading common stocks, which any investor can carry out with a little expert assistance, 
The adventure beyond this safe and sound territory has been presented as fraught with challenging difficulties, especially in the area of temperament. Before attempting such a venture the investor should feel sure of himself and of his advisors, particularly as to whether they have a clear concept of the differences between investment and speculation and between market price and underlying value. A strong-minded approach to investment, firmly based on the margin of safety principle, can yield handsome rewards. But a decision to try for these emoluments rather than for the assured fruits of defensive investment should not be made without much self-examination. A final retrospective thought. When the young author entered Wall Street in June 1914 no one had any inkling of what the next half-century had in store. The stock market did not even suspect that a world war was to break out in two months, and close down the New York Stock Exchange. Now, in 1972, we find ourselves the richest and most powerful country on earth but beset by all sorts of major problems and more apprehensive than confident of the future. Yet if we confine our attention to American investment experience, there is some comfort to be gleaned from the last 57 years. Through all their vicissitudes and casualties, as earth-shaking as they were unforeseen, it remained true that sound investment principles produce generally sound results. We must act on the assumption that they will continue to do so. Note to the reader, this book does not address itself to the overall financial policy of savers and investors, it deals only with that portion of their funds which they are prepared to place in marketable, or redeemable, securities, that is, in bonds and stocks. Consequently we do not discuss such important media as savings and time deposits, savings and loan association accounts, life insurance, annuities, and real estate mortgages or equity ownership. The reader should bear in mind that when he finds the word now, or the equivalent, in the text, it refers to late 1971 or early 1972. Commentary on the Introduction If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost, that is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. Henry David Thoreau, Walden Notice that Graham announces from the start that this book will not tell you how to beat the market. No truthful book can. Instead, this book will teach you three powerful lessons. How you can minimize the odds of suffering irreversible losses. How you can maximize the chances of achieving sustainable gains. How you can control the self-defeating behavior that keeps most investors from reaching their full potential. Back in the boom years of the late 1990s, when technology stocks seemed to be doubling in value every day, the notion that you could lose almost all your money seemed absurd. But, by the end of 2002, Many of the dot-com and telecom stocks had lost 95% of their value or more. Once you lose 95% of your money, you have to gain 1,900% just to get back to where you started. Taking a foolish risk can put you so deep in the hole that it's virtually impossible to get out. That's why Graham constantly emphasizes the importance of avoiding losses, not just in Chapter 6, 14, and 20, but in the threads of warning that he has woven throughout his entire text. But no matter how careful you are, the price of your investments will go down from time to time. While no one can eliminate that risk, Graham will show you how to manage it, and how to get your fears under control. Are you an intelligent investor? Now let's answer a vitally important question. What exactly does Graham mean by an intelligent investor? Back in the first edition of this book, Graham defines the term, and he makes it clear that this kind of intelligence has nothing to do with IQ or SAT scores. It simply means being patient, disciplined, and eager to learn, you must also be able to harness your emotions and think for yourself. This kind of intelligence, explains Graham, is a trait more of the character than of the brain. There's proof that high IQ and higher education are not enough to make an investor intelligent. In 1998, 
Long-Term Capital Management LP, a hedge fund run by a battalion of mathematicians, computer scientists, and two Nobel Prize-winning economists, lost more than $2 billion in a matter of weeks on a huge bet that the bond market would return to normal. But the bond market kept right on becoming more and more abnormal, and LTCM had borrowed so much money that its collapse nearly capsized the global financial system. And back in the spring of 1720, Sir Isaac Newton owned shares in the South Sea Company, the hottest stock in England. Sensing that the market was getting out of hand, the great physicist muttered that he could calculate the motions of the heavenly bodies, but not the madness of the people. Newton dumped his South Sea shares, pocketing a 100% profit totaling £7,000. But just months later, swept up in the wild enthusiasm of the market, Newton jumped back in at a much higher price, and lost £20,000, or more than $3 million in today's money. For the rest of his life, he forbade anyone to speak the word South Sea in his presence. Sir Isaac Newton was one of the most intelligent people who ever lived, as most of us would define intelligence. But, in Graham's terms, Newton was far from an intelligent investor. By letting the roar of the crowd override his own judgment, the world's greatest scientist acted like a fool. In short, if you've failed at investing so far, it's not because you're stupid. It's because, like Sir Isaac Newton, you haven't developed the emotional discipline that successful investing requires. In Chapter 8, Graham describes how to enhance your intelligence by harnessing your emotions and refusing to stoop to the market's level of irrationality. There you can master his lesson that being an intelligent investor is more a matter of character than brain. A Chronicle of Calamity Now let's take a moment to look at some of the major financial developments of the past few years. 1. The worst market crash since the Great Depression, with U.S. stocks losing 50.2% of their value, or $7.4 trillion, between March 2000 and October 2002. 2. Far deeper drops in the share prices of the hottest companies of the 1990s, including AOL, Cisco, JDS Uniphase, Lucent, and Qualcomm, plus the utter destruction of hundreds of Internet stocks. 3. Accusations of massive financial fraud at some of the largest and most respected corporations in America, including Enron, Tyco, and Xerox. 4. The bankruptcies of such ones glistening companies as Conseco, Global Crossing, and Worldcom. 5. Allegations that accounting firms cooked the books, and even destroyed records, to help their clients mislead the investing public. 6. Charges that top executives at leading companies siphoned off hundreds of millions of dollars for their own personal gain. 7. Proof that security analysts on Wall Street praised stocks publicly but admitted privately that they were garbage. 8. A stock market that, even after its blood-curdling decline, seems overvalued by historical measures, suggesting to many experts that stocks have further yet to fall. 9. A relentless decline in interest rates that has left investors with no attractive alternative to stocks. 10. An investing environment bristling with the unpredictable menace of global terrorism and war in the Middle East. Much of this damage could have been, and was, avoided by investors who learned and lived by Graham's principles. As Graham puts it, while enthusiasm may be necessary for great accomplishments elsewhere, on Wall Street it almost invariably leads to disaster. By letting themselves get carried away, on internet stocks, on big growth stocks, on stocks as a whole, many people made the same stupid mistakes as Sir Isaac Newton. They let other investors' judgments determine their own. They ignored Graham's warning that the really dreadful losses always occur after the buyer forgot to ask how much? Most painfully of all, by losing their self-control just when they needed it the most, 
these people proved Graham's assertion that the investor's chief problem, and even his worst enemy, is likely to be himself. The sure thing that wasn't. Many of those people got especially carried away on technology and internet stocks, believing the high-tech hype that this industry would keep outgrowing every other for years to come, if not forever. In mid-1999, after earning a 117.3% return in just the first five months of the year, Monument Internet Fund Portfolio Manager Alexander Chung predicted that his fund would gain 50% a year over the next three to five years and an annual average of 35% over the next 20 years. After his Amarindo Technology Fund rose an incredible 248.9% in 1999, Portfolio Manager Alberto Villar ridiculed anyone who dared to doubt that the Internet was a perpetual money-making machine. If you're out of this sector, you're going to underperform. You're in a horse and buggy, and I'm in a Porsche. You don't like tenfold growth opportunities? Then go with someone else. In February 2000, hedge fund manager James J. Kramer proclaimed that internet-related companies are the only ones worth owning right now. These winners of the new world, as he called them, are the only ones that are going higher consistently in good days and bad. Kramer even took a pot shot at Graham. You have to throw out all of the matrices and formulas and texts that existed before the web. If we used any of what Graham and Dodd teach us, we wouldn't have a dime under management. All these so-called experts ignored Graham's sober words of warning, obvious prospects for physical growth in a business do not translate into obvious profits for investors. While it seems easy to foresee which industry will grow the fastest, that foresight has no real value if most other investors are already expecting the same thing. By the time everyone decides that a given industry is obviously the best one to invest in, the prices of its stocks have been bid up so high that its future returns have nowhere to go but down. For now at least, no one has the gall to try claiming that technology will still be the world's greatest growth industry. But make sure you remember this, the people who now claim that the next sure thing will be healthcare, or energy, or real estate, or gold, are no more likely to be right in the end than the hypesters of high-tech turned out to be. The Silver Lining If no price seemed too high for stocks in the 1990s, in 2003 we've reached the point at which no price appears to be low enough. The pendulum has swung, as Graham knew it always does, from irrational exuberance to unjustifiable pessimism. In 2002, investors yanked $27 billion out of stock mutual funds, and a survey conducted by the Securities Industry Association found that 1 out of 10 investors have cut back on stocks by at least 25%. The same people who were eager to buy stocks in the late 1990s, when they were going up in price and, therefore, becoming expensive, sold stocks as they went down in price and, by definition, became cheaper. As Graham shows so brilliantly in Chapter 8, this is exactly backwards. The intelligent investor realizes that stocks become more risky, not less, as their prices rise, and less risky, not more, as their prices fall. The intelligent investor dreads a bull market since it makes stocks more costly to buy. And conversely, so long as you keep enough cash on hand to meet your spending needs, you should welcome a bear market, since it puts stocks back on sale. So take heart, the death of the bull market is not the bad news everyone believes it to be. Thanks to the decline in stock prices, now is a considerably safer, and saner, time to be building wealth. Read on, and let Graham show you how. Chapter 1 Investment versus Speculation Results to be expected by the intelligent investor. This chapter will outline the viewpoints that will be set forth in the remainder of the book. In particular we wish to develop at the outset our concept of appropriate portfolio policy for the individual, non-professional investor. 
Investment versus Speculation What do we mean by investor? Throughout this book the term will be used in contradistinction to speculator. As far back as 1934, in our textbook Security Analysis, we attempted a precise formulation of the difference between the two, as follows, an investment operation is one which, upon thorough analysis promises safety of principle and an adequate return. Operations not meeting these requirements are speculative. While we have clung tenaciously to this definition over the ensuing 38 years, it is worthwhile noting the radical changes that have occurred in the use of the term investor during this period. After the great market decline of 1929 to 1932 all common stocks were widely regarded as speculative by nature. A leading authority stated flatly that only bonds could be bought for investment.2, thus we had then to defend our definition against the charge that it gave too wide scope to the concept of investment. Now our concern is of the opposite sort. We must prevent our readers from accepting the common jargon which applies the term investor to anybody and everybody in the stock market. In our last edition we cited the following headline of a front-page article of our leading financial journal in June 1962. Small investors bearish, they are selling on lots short. In October 1970 the same journal had an editorial critical of what it called reckless investors, who this time were rushing in on the buying side. These quotations well illustrate the confusion that has been dominant for many years in the use of the words investment and speculation. Think of our suggested definition of investment given above, and compare it with the sale of a few shares of stock by an inexperienced member of the public, who does not even own what he is selling, and has some largely emotional conviction that he will be able to buy them back at a much lower price. It is not irrelevant to point out that when the 1962 article appeared the market had already experienced a decline of major size, and was now getting ready for an even greater upswing. It was about as poor a time as possible for selling short, in a more general sense, the later used phrase reckless investors could be regarded as a laughable contradiction in terms, something like spendthrift misers were this misuse of language not so mischievous. The newspaper employed the word investor in these instances because, in the easy language of Wall Street, everyone who buys or sells a security has become an investor, regardless of what he buys, or for what purpose, or at what price, or whether for cash or on margin. Compare this with the attitude of the public toward common stocks in 1948, when over 90% of those queried expressed themselves as opposed to the purchase of common stocks. About half gave as their reason not safe, a gamble, and about half, the reason not familiar with. It is indeed ironical, though not surprising, that common stock purchases of all kinds were quite generally regarded as highly speculative or risky at a time when they were selling on a most attractive basis, and due soon to begin their greatest advance in history. Conversely the very fact they had advanced to what were undoubtedly dangerous levels as judged by past experience later transformed them into investments, and the entire stock buying public into investors. The distinction between investment and speculation in common stocks has always been a useful one and its disappearance is a cause for concern. We have often said that Wall Street as an institution would be well advised to reinstate this distinction and to emphasize it in all its dealings with the public. Otherwise the stock exchanges may someday be blamed for heavy speculative losses, which those who suffered them had not been properly warned against. Ironically, once more, much of the recent financial embarrassment of some stock exchange firms seems to have come from the inclusion of speculative common stocks in their own capital funds. We trust that the reader of this book will gain a reasonably clear idea of the risks that are inherent in common stock commitments, risks which are inseparable from the opportunities of profit that they offer and both of which must be allowed for in the investor's calculations. What we have just said indicates that there may no longer be
Such a thing as a Simon Pure investment policy comprising representative common stocks, in the sense that one can always wait to buy them at a price that involves no risk of a market or quotational loss large enough to be disquieting. In most periods the investor must recognize the existence of a speculative factor in his common stock holdings. It is his task to keep this component within minor limits, and to be prepared financially and psychologically for adverse results that may be of short or long duration. Two paragraphs should be added about stock speculation per se, as distinguished from the speculative component now inherent in most representative common stocks. Outright speculation is neither illegal, immoral, nor, for most people, fattening to the pocketbook. More than that, some speculation is necessary and unavoidable, for in many common stock situations there are substantial possibilities of both profit and loss, and the risks therein must be assumed by someone. There is intelligent speculation as there is intelligent investing. But there are many ways in which speculation may be unintelligent. Of these the foremost are, 1, speculating when you think you are investing, 2, speculating seriously instead of as a pastime, when you lack proper knowledge and skill for it, and, 3, risking more money in speculation than you can afford to lose. In our conservative view every non-professional who operates on margin should recognize that he is ipso facto speculating, and it is his broker's duty so to advise him. And everyone who buys a so-called hot common stock issue, or makes a purchase in any way similar thereto, is either speculating or gambling. Speculation is always fascinating, and it can be a lot of fun while you are ahead of the game. If you want to try your luck at it, put aside a portion, the smaller the better, of your capital in a separate fund for this purpose. Never add more money to this account just because the market has gone up and profits are rolling in. That's the time to think of taking money out of your speculative fund, never mingle your speculative and investment operations in the same account, nor in any part of your thinking. Results to be expected by the defensive investor. We have already defined the defensive investor as one interested chiefly in safety plus freedom from bother. In general what course should he follow and what return can he expect under average normal conditions if such conditions really exist? To answer these questions we shall consider first what we wrote on the subject seven years ago, next what significant changes have occurred since then in the underlying factors governing the investor's expectable return, and finally what he should do and what he should expect under present day early 1972, conditions. 1. What we said six years ago. We recommended that the investor divide his holdings between high-grade bonds and leading common stocks, that the proportion held in bonds be never less than 25% or more than 75%, with the converse being necessarily true for the common stock component, that a simplest choice would be to maintain a 50-50 to -50 proportion between the two, with adjustments to restore the equality when market developments had disturbed it by as much as, say, 5%. As an alternative policy he might choose to reduce his common stock component to 25% if he felt the market was dangerously high, and conversely to advance it toward the maximum of 75% if he felt that a decline in stock prices was making them increasingly attractive. In 1965 the investor could obtain about 41 halves of a percent on high-grade taxable bonds and 31 fourths of a percent on good tax-free bonds. The dividend return on leading common stocks, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 892, was only about 3.2%. This fact, and others, suggested caution. We implied that at normal levels of the market the investor should be able to obtain an initial dividend return of between 31 halves of a percent and 41 halves of a percent on his stock purchases, to which should be added a steady increase in underlying value, and in the normal market price, of a representative stock list of about the same amount giving a return from dividends and appreciation combined of about 71 halves of a percent per year. 
the half-and-half half division between bonds and stocks would yield about 6% before income tax. We added that the stock component should carry a fair degree of protection against a loss of purchasing power caused by large-scale inflation. It should be pointed out that the above arithmetic indicated expectation of a much lower rate of advance in the stock market than had been realized between 1949 and 1964. That rate had averaged a good deal better than 10% for listed stocks as a whole, and it was quite generally regarded as a sort of guarantee that similarly satisfactory results could be counted on in the future. Few people were willing to consider seriously the possibility that the high rate of advance in the past means that stock prices are now too high and hence that the wonderful results since 1949 would imply not very good but bad results for the future. 4. 2. What has happened since 1964? The major change since 1964 has been the rise in interest rates on first-grade bonds to record high levels, although there has since been a considerable recovery from the lowest prices of 1970. The obtainable return on good corporate issues is now about 71 halves of a percent and even more against 41 halves of a percent in 1964. In the meantime the dividend return on Dow Jones Industrial Average type stocks had a fair advance also during the market decline of 1969-70, but as we write, with the Dow at 900, it is less than 3.5% against 3.2% at the end of 1964. The change in going interest rates produced a maximum decline of about 38% in the market price of medium term, say 20-year, bonds during this period. There is a paradoxical aspect to these developments. In 1964 we discussed at length the possibility that the price of stocks might be too high and subject ultimately to a serious decline, but we did not consider specifically the possibility that the same might happen to the price of high-grade bonds. Neither did anyone else that we know of, we did warn, on p. 90, that a long-term bond may vary widely in price in response to changes in interest rates. In the light of what has since happened we think that this warning, with attendant examples, was insufficiently stressed. For the fact is that if the investor had a given sum in the Dow Jones Industrial Average at its closing price of 874 in 1964 he would have had a small profit thereon in late 1971, even at the lowest level, 631, in 1970 his indicated loss would have been less than that shown on good long-term bonds. On the other hand, if he had confined his bond-type investments to U.S. savings bonds, short-term corporate issues, or savings accounts, he would have had no loss in market value of his principal during this period and he would have enjoyed a higher income return than was offered by good stocks. It turned out, therefore, that true cash equivalents proved to be better investments in 1964 than common stocks, in spite of the inflation experience that in theory should have favored stocks over cash. The decline in quoted principal value of good longer-term bonds was due to developments in the money market, an abstruse area which ordinarily does not have an important bearing on the investment policy of individuals. This is just another of an endless series of experiences over time that have demonstrated that the future of security prices is never predictable. Almost always bonds have fluctuated much less than stock prices, and investors generally could buy good bonds of any maturity without having to worry about changes in their market value. There were a few exceptions to this rule, and the period after 1964 proved to be one of them. We shall have more to say about change in bond prices in a later chapter. 3 expectations and policy in late 1971 and early 1972. Toward the end of 1971 it was possible to obtain 8% taxable interest on good medium-term corporate bonds, and 5.7% tax-free on good state or municipal securities. In the shorter-term field the investor could realize about 6% on U.S. government issues due in five years. In the latter case the buyer need not be concerned about a possible loss in market value, since he is sure of full repayment 
including the 6% interest return, at the end of a comparatively short holding period. The Dow Jones Industrial Average at its recurrent price level of 919.71 yields only 3.5%. Let us assume that now, as in the past, the basic policy decision to be made is how to divide the fund between high-grade bonds, or other so-called cash equivalents, and leading Dow Jones Industrial Average type stocks. What course should the investor follow under present conditions, if we have no strong reason to predict either a significant upward or a significant downward movement for some time in the future? First let us point out that if there is no serious adverse change, the defensive investor should be able to count on the current 3.5% dividend return on his stocks and also on an average annual appreciation of about 4%. As we shall explain later this appreciation is based essentially on the reinvestment by the various companies of a corresponding amount annually out of undistributed profits. On a before-tax basis the combined return of his stocks would then average, say, 7.5%, somewhat less than his interest on high-grade bonds. On an after-tax basis the average return on stocks would work out at some 5.3%. This would be about the same as is now obtainable on good tax-free medium-term bonds. These expectations are much less favorable for stocks against bonds than they were in our 1964 analysis. That conclusion follows inevitably from the basic fact that bond yields have gone up much more than stock yields since 1964. We must never lose sight of the fact that the interest and principal payments on good bonds are much better protected and therefore more certain than the dividends and price appreciation on stocks. Consequently we are forced to the conclusion that now, toward the end of 1971, bond investment appears clearly preferable to stock investment. If we could be sure that this conclusion is right we would have to advise the defensive investor to put all his money in bonds and none in common stocks until the current yield relationship changes significantly in favor of stocks. But of course we cannot be certain that bonds will work out better than stocks from today's levels. The reader will immediately think of the inflation factor as a potent reason on the other side. In the next chapter we shall argue that our considerable experience with inflation in the United States during this century would not support the choice of stocks against bonds at present differentials in yield. But there is always the possibility, though we consider it remote, of an accelerating inflation, which in one way or another would have to make stock equities preferable to bonds payable in a fixed amount of dollars. There is the alternative possibility, which we also consider highly unlikely, that American business will become so profitable, without stepped-up inflation as to justify a large increase in common stock values in the next few years. Finally, there is the more familiar possibility that we shall witness another great speculative rise in the stock market without a real justification in the underlying values. Any of these reasons, and perhaps others we haven't thought of, might cause the investor to regret a 100% concentration on bonds even at their more favorable yield levels. Hence, after this foreshortened discussion of the major considerations, we once again enunciate the same basic compromise policy for defensive investors, namely that at all times they have a significant part of their funds in bond-type holdings and a significant part also in equities. It is still true that they may choose between maintaining a simple 50 to 50 division between the two components or a ratio, dependent on their judgment, varying between a minimum of 25% and a maximum of 75% of either. We shall give our more detailed view of these alternative policies in a later chapter. Since at present the overall return envisaged from common stocks is nearly the same as that from bonds, the presently expectable return, including growth of stock values, for the investor would change little regardless of how he divides his fund between the two components. As calculated above, the aggregate return from both parts should be about 7.8% before taxes or 5.5% on a tax-free, or estimated tax-paid, basis. 
a return of this order is appreciably higher than that realized by the typical conservative investor over most of the long-term past. It may not seem attractive in relation to the 14%, or so, return shown by common stocks during the 20 years of the predominantly bull market after 1949. But it should be remembered that between 1949 and 1969 the price of the Dow Jones Industrial Average had advanced more than fivefold while its earnings and dividends had about doubled. Hence the greater part of the impressive market record for that period was based on a change in investors' and speculators' attitudes rather than in underlying corporate values. To that extent it might well be called a bootstrap operation. In discussing the common stock portfolio of the defensive investor, we have spoken only of leading issues of the type included in the 30 components of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We have done this for convenience, and not to imply that these 30 issues alone are suitable for purchase by him. Actually, there are many other companies of quality equal to or excelling the average of the Dow Jones list, these would include a host of public utilities, which have a separate Dow Jones average to represent them. But the major point here is that the defensive investors' overall results are not likely to be decisively different from one diversified or representative list than from another, or, more accurately, that neither he nor his advisors could predict with certainty whatever differences would ultimately develop. It is true that the art of skillful or shrewd investment is supposed to lie particularly in the selection of issues that will give better results than the general market. For reasons to be developed elsewhere we are skeptical of the ability of defensive investors generally to get better than average results, which in fact would mean to beat their own overall performance. Our skepticism extends to the management of large funds by experts. Let us illustrate our point by an example that at first may seem to prove the opposite. Between December 1960 and December 1970 the Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced from 616 to 839, or 36%. But in the same period the much larger Standard & Poor's Weighted Index of 500 stocks rose from 58.11 to 92.15, or 58%. Obviously the second group had proved a better buy than the first. But who would have been so rash as to predict in 1960 that what seemed like a miscellaneous assortment of all sorts of common stocks would definitely outperform the aristocratic 30 tyrants of the Dow? All this proves, we insist, that only rarely can one make dependable predictions about price changes, absolute or relative. We shall repeat here without apology, for the warning cannot be given too often, that the investor cannot hope for better than average results by buying new offerings, or hot issues of any sort meaning thereby those recommended for a quick profit. The contrary is almost certain to be true in the long run. The defensive investor must confine himself to the shares of important companies with a long record of profitable operations and in strong financial condition. Any security analyst worth his salt could make up such a list, aggressive investors may buy other types of common stocks, but they should be on a definitely attractive basis as established by intelligent analysis. To conclude this section, let us mention briefly three supplementary concepts or practices for the defensive investor. The first is the purchase of the shares of well-established investment funds as an alternative to creating his own common stock portfolio. He might also utilize one of the common trust funds, or commingled funds, operated by trust companies and banks in many states, or, if his funds are substantial, use the services of a recognized investment council firm. This will give him professional administration of his investment program along standard lines. The third is the device of dollar cost averaging, which means simply that the practitioner invests in common stocks the same number of dollars each month or each quarter. In this way he buys more shares when the market is low than when it is high, and he is likely to end up with a satisfactory overall price for all his holdings. Strictly speaking, this method is an application of a broader approach known as formula investing.
The latter was already alluded to in our suggestion that the investor may vary his holdings of common stocks between the 25% minimum and the 75% maximum, in inverse relationship to the action of the market. These ideas have merit for the defense of investor, and they will be discussed more amply in later chapters. Results to be expected by the aggressive investor. Our enterprising security buyer, of course, will desire and expect to attain better overall results than his defensive or passive companion. But first he must make sure that his results will not be worse. It is no difficult trick to bring a great deal of energy, study, and native ability into Wall Street and to end up with losses instead of profits. These virtues, if channeled in the wrong directions, become indistinguishable from handicaps. Thus it is most essential that the enterprising investor start with a clear conception as to which courses of action offer reasonable chances of success and which do not. First let us consider several ways in which investors and speculators generally have endeavored to obtain better than average results. These include 1. Trading in the market. This usually means buying stocks when the market has been advancing and selling them after it has turned downward. The stocks selected are likely to be among those which have been behaving better than the market average. A small number of professionals frequently engage in short selling. Here they will sell issues they do not own but borrow through the established mechanism of the stock exchanges. Their object is to benefit from a subsequent decline in the price of these issues, by buying them back at a price lower than they sold them for. As our quotation from the Wall Street Journal on p. 19 indicates, even small investors perish the term. Sometimes try their unskilled hand at short selling. 2. Short-term selectivity. This means buying stocks of companies which are reporting or expected to report increased earnings, or for which some other favorable development is anticipated. 3. Long-term selectivity. Here the usual emphasis is on an excellent record of past growth, which is considered likely to continue in the future. In some cases also the investor may choose companies which have not yet shown impressive results, but are expected to establish a high earning power later. Such companies belong frequently in some technological area, for example, computers, drugs, electronics, and they often are developing new processes or products that are deemed to be especially promising. We have already expressed a negative view about the investor's overall chances of success in these areas of activity. The first we have ruled out, on both theoretical and realistic grounds, from the domain of investment. Stock trading is not an operation which, on thorough analysis, offers safety of principle and a satisfactory return. More will be said on stock trading in a later chapter. In his endeavor to select the most promising stocks either for the near term or the longer future, the investor faces obstacles of two kinds, the first stemming from human fallibility and the second from the nature of his competition. He may be wrong in his estimate of the future, or even if he is right, the current market price may already fully reflect what he is anticipating. In the area of near-term selectivity, the current year's results of the company are generally common property on Wall Street, next year's results, to the extent they are predictable are already being carefully considered. Hence the investor who selects issues chiefly on the basis of this year's superior results, or on what he is told he may expect for next year, is likely to find that others have done the same thing for the same reason. In choosing stocks for their long-term prospects, the investors' handicaps are basically the same. The possibility of outright error in the prediction, which we illustrated by our airline's example on p. 6, is no doubt greater than when dealing with near-term earnings. Because the experts frequently go astray in such forecasts, it is theoretically possible for an investor to benefit greatly by making correct predictions when Wall Street as a whole is making incorrect ones. But that is only theoretical. 
how many enterprising investors could count on having the acumen or prophetic gift to beat the professional analysts at their favorite game of estimating long-term future earnings. We are thus led to the following logical if disconcerting conclusion, to enjoy a reasonable chance for continued better-than-average results, the investor must follow policies which are, 1, inherently sound and promising, and, 2, not popular on Wall Street. Are there any such policies available for the enterprising investor? In theory once again, the answer should be yes, and there are broad reasons to think that the answer should be affirmative in practice as well. Everyone knows that speculative stock movements are carried too far in both directions, frequently in the general market and at all times in at least some of the individual issues. Furthermore, a common stock may be undervalued because of lack of interest or unjustified popular prejudice. We can go further and assert that in an astonishingly large proportion of the trading in common stocks, those engaged therein don't appear to know, in polite terms, one part of their anatomy from another. In this book we shall point out numerous examples of, past, discrepancies between price and value. Thus it seems that any intelligent person, with a good head for figures, should have a veritable picnic on Wall Street, battening off other people's foolishness. So it seems, but somehow it doesn't work out that simply. Buying a neglected and therefore undervalued issue for profit generally proves a protracted and patience-trying experience. And selling short a too popular and therefore overvalued issue is apt to be a test not only of one's courage and stamina but also of the depth of one's pocketbook. The principle is sound, its successful application is not impossible, but it is distinctly not an easy art to master. There is also a fairly wide group of special situations, which over many years could be counted on to bring a nice annual return of 20% or better with a minimum of overall risk to those who knew their way around in this field. They include inter-security arbitrages, payouts or workouts and liquidations, protected hedges of certain kinds. The most typical case is a projected merger or acquisition which offers a substantially higher value for certain shares than their price on the date of the announcement. The number of such deals increased greatly in recent years, and it should have been a highly profitable period for the Kanye Shendi. But with the multiplication of merger announcements came a multiplication of obstacles to mergers and of deals that didn't go through, quite a few individual losses were thus realized in these once reliable operations. Perhaps, too, the overall rate of profit was diminished by too much competition. The lessened profitability of these special situations appears one manifestation of a kind of self-destructive process, akin to the law of diminishing returns, which has developed during the lifetime of this book. In 1949 we could present a study of stock market fluctuations over the preceding 75 years, which supported a formula, based on earnings and current interest rates, for determining a level to buy the Dow Jones Industrial Average below its central or intrinsic value, and to sell out above such value. It was an application of the governing maxim of the Rothschilds, buy cheap and sell dear. And it had the advantage of running directly counter to the ingrained and pernicious maxim of Wall Street that stocks should be bought because they have gone up and sold because they have gone down. Alas, after 1949 this formula no longer worked. A second illustration is provided by the famous Dow theory of stock market movements, in a comparison of its indicated splendid results for 1897 to 1933 and its much more questionable performance since 1934. A third and final example of the golden opportunities not Recently available, a good part of our own operations on Wall Street had been concentrated on the purchase of bargain issues easily identified as such by the fact that they were selling at less than their share in the net current assets, working capital, alone, not counting the planned account and other assets, and after deducting all liabilities ahead of the stock. It is clear that these issues were selling at a price well below the value of the enterprise as a private business. 
no proprietor or majority holder would think of selling what he owned at so ridiculously low a figure. Strangely enough, such anomalies were not hard to find. In 1957 a list was published showing nearly 200 issues of this type available in the market. In various ways practically all these bargain issues turned out to be profitable, and the average annual result proved much more remunerative than most other investments. But they too virtually disappeared from the stock market in the next decade, and with them a dependable area for shrewd and successful operation by the enterprising investor. However, at the low prices of 1970 there again appeared a considerable number of such sub-working capital issues, and despite the strong recovery of the market, enough of them remained at the end of the year to make up a full-sized portfolio. The enterprising investor under today's conditions still has various possibilities of achieving better-than-average results. The huge list of marketable securities must include a fair number that can be identified as undervalued by logical and reasonably dependable standards. These should yield more satisfactory results on the average than will the Dow Jones Industrial Average or any similarly representative list. In our view the search for these would not be worth the investor's effort unless he could hope to add, say, 5% before taxes to the average annual return from the stock portion of his portfolio. We shall try to develop one or more such approaches to stock selection for use by the active investor. Chapter 2. The Investor and Inflation Inflation, and the fight against it, has been very much in the public's mind in recent years. The shrinkage in the purchasing power of the dollar in the past, and particularly the fear, or hope by speculators, of a serious further decline in the future, has greatly influenced the thinking of Wall Street. It is clear that those with a fixed dollar income will suffer when the cost of living advances, and the same applies to a fixed amount of dollar principal. Holders of stocks, on the other hand, have the possibility that a loss of the dollar's purchasing power may be offset by advances in their dividends and the prices of their shares. On the basis of these undeniable facts many financial authorities have concluded that, 1, bonds are an inherently undesirable form of investment, and, 2, consequently, Common stocks are by their very nature more desirable investments than bonds. We have heard of charitable institutions being advised that their portfolios should consist 100% of stocks and 0% of bonds. This is quite a reversal from the earlier days when trust investments were restricted by law to high-grade bonds, and a few choice preferred stocks. Our readers must have enough intelligence to recognize that even high-quality stocks cannot be a better purchase than bonds under all conditions, i.e., regardless of how high the stock market may be and how low the current dividend return compared with the rates available on bonds. A statement of this kind would be as absurd as was the contrary one, too often heard years ago, that any bond is safer than any stock. In this chapter we shall try to apply various measurements to the inflation factor, in order to reach some conclusions as to the extent to which the investor may wisely be influenced by expectations regarding future rises in the price level. In this matter, as in so many others in finance, we must base our views of future policy on a knowledge of past experience. Is inflation something new for this country, at least in the serious form it has taken since 1965? If we have seen comparable, or worse, inflations in living experience, what lessons can be learned from them in confronting the inflation of today? Let us start with Table 2 to 1, a condensed historical tabulation that contains much information about changes in the general price level and concomitant changes in the earnings and market value of common stocks. Our figures will begin with 1915, and thus cover 55 years, presented at five-year intervals. We use 1946 instead of 1945 to avoid the last year of wartime price controls. The first thing we notice is that we have had inflation in the past, lots of it. The largest five-year dose was between 1915 and 1920, when the cost of living nearly doubled. 
This compares with the advance of 15% between 1965 and 1970. In between, we have had three periods of declining prices and then six of advances at varying rates, some rather small. On this showing, the investor should clearly allow for the probability of continuing or recurrent inflation to come. Can we tell what the rate of inflation is likely to be? No clear answer is suggested by our table, it shows variations of all sorts. It would seem sensible, however, to take our cue from the rather consistent record of the past 20 years. The average annual rise in the consumer price level for this period has been 2.5%, that for 1965 to 1970 was 4.5%. That for 1970 alone was 5.4%. Official government policy has been strongly against large scale inflation, and there are some reasons to believe that federal policies will be more effective in the future than in recent years. We think it would be reasonable for an investor at this point to base his thinking and decisions on a probable, far from certain, rate of future inflation of, say, 3% per annum. This would compare with an annual rate of about 21 halves of a percent for the entire period 1915 to 1970. What would be the implications of such an advance? It would eat up, in higher living costs, about one-half the income now obtainable on good medium-term tax-free bonds, or our assumed-after-tax equivalent from high-grade corporate bonds. This would be a serious shrinkage, but it should not be exaggerated. It would not mean that the true value, or the purchasing power, of the investor's fortune need be reduced over the years. If he spent half his interest income after taxes he would maintain this buying power intact, even against a 3% annual inflation. But the next question, naturally, is, can the investor be reasonably sure of doing better by buying and holding other things than high-grade bonds, even at the unprecedented rate of return offered in 1970-1971? Would not, for example, an all-stock program be preferable to a part-bond, part-stock program? Do not common stocks have a built-in protection against inflation, and are they not almost certain to give a better return over the years than will bonds? Have not in fact stocks treated the investor far better than have bonds over the 55-year period of our study? The answer to these questions is somewhat complicated. Common stocks have indeed done better than bonds over a long period of time in the past. The rise of the Dow Jones Industrial Average from an average of 77 in 1915 to an average of 753 in 1970 works out at an annual compounded rate of just about 4%, to which we may add another 4% for average dividend return. The corresponding figures for the S&P composite are about the same. These combined figures of 8% per year are of course much better than the return enjoyed from bonds over the same 55-year period. But they do not exceed that now offered by high-grade bonds. This brings us to the next logical question. Is there a persuasive reason to believe that common stocks are likely to do much better in future years than they have in the last five and one-half decades? Our answer to this crucial question must be a flat no. Common stocks may do better in the future than in the past, but they are far from certain to do so. We must deal here with two different time elements in investment results. The first covers what is likely to occur over the long-term future, say, the next 25 years. The second applies to what is likely to happen to the investor, both financially and psychologically, over short or intermediate periods, say 5 years or less. His frame of mind, his hopes and apprehensions, his satisfaction or discontent with what he has done above all his decisions what to do next, are all determined not in the retrospect of a lifetime of investment but rather by his experience from year to year. On this point we can be categorical. There is no close time connection between inflationary, or deflationary, conditions and the movement of common stock earnings and prices. The obvious example is the recent period, 1966 to 1970. The rise in the cost of living was 22%. 
the largest in a five-year period since 946 to 1950. But both stock earnings and stock prices as a whole have declined since 1965. There are similar contradictions in both directions in the record of previous five-year periods. Inflation and Corporate Earnings Another and highly important approach to the subject is by a study of the earnings rate on capital shown by American business. This has fluctuated, of course, with the general rate of economic activity, but it has shown no general tendency to advance with wholesale prices or the cost of living. Actually this rate has fallen rather markedly in the past 20 years in spite of the inflation of the period. To some degree the decline was due to the charging of more liberal depreciation rates. See Table 2-2, our extended studies have led to the conclusion that the investor cannot count on much above the recent 5-year rate earned on the Dow Jones Industrial Average Group, about 10% on net tangible assets, book value, behind the shares. Two since the market value of these issues is well above their book value, say, 900 market versus 560 book in mid-1971. The earnings on current market price work out only at some 61 fourths of a percent. This relationship is generally expressed in the reverse, or times earnings, manner, for example, that the Dow Jones Industrial Average price of 900 equals 18 times the actual earnings for the 12 months ended June 1971. Our figures gear indirectly with the suggestion in the previous chapter that the investor may assume an average dividend return of about 3.5% on the market value of his stocks, plus an appreciation of, say, 4% annually resulting from reinvested profits. Note that each dollar added to book value is here assumed to increase the market price by about $1.60. The reader will object that in the end our calculations make no allowance for an increase in common stock earnings and values to result from our projected 3% annual inflation. Our justification is the absence of any sign that the inflation of a comparable amount in the past has had any direct effect on reported per share earnings. The cold figures demonstrate that all the large gain in the earnings of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Unit in the past 20 years was due to a proportionately large growth of invested capital coming from reinvested profits. If inflation had operated as a separate favorable factor, its effect would have been to increase the value of previously existing capital, this in turn should increase the rate of earnings on such old capital and therefore on the old and new capital combined. But nothing of the kind actually happened in the past 20 years, during which the wholesale price level has advanced nearly 40%. Business earnings should be influenced more by wholesale prices than by consumer prices. The only way that inflation can add to common stock values is by raising the rate of earnings on capital investment. On the basis of the past record this has not been the case. In the economic cycles of the past, good business was accompanied by a rising price level and poor business by falling prices. It was generally felt that a little inflation was helpful to business profits. This view is not contradicted by the history of 1950-1970, which reveals a combination of generally continued prosperity and generally rising prices. But the figures indicate that the effect of all this on the earning power of common stock capital, equity capital, has been quite limited, in fact it has not even served to maintain the rate of earnings on the investment. Clearly there have been important offsetting influences which have prevented any increase in the real profitability of American corporations as a whole. Perhaps the most important of these have been, 1, a rise in wage rates exceeding the gains in productivity, and, 2, the need for huge amounts of new capital, thus holding down the ratio of sales to capital employed. Our figures in Table 2-2 indicate that so far from inflation having benefited our corporations and their shareholders, its effect has been quite the opposite. The most striking figures in our table are those for the growth of corporate debt between 1950 and 1969. It is surprising how little attention has been paid by economists and by Wall Street to this development. 
the debt of corporations has expanded nearly fivefold while their profits before taxes little more than doubled. With the great rise in interest rates during this period, it is evident that the aggregate corporate debt is now an adverse economic factor of some magnitude and a real problem for many individual enterprises. Note that in 1950 net earnings after interest but before income tax were about 30% of corporate debt, while in 1969 they were only 13.2% of debt. The 1970 ratio must have been even less satisfactory, in sum it appears that a significant part of the 11% being earned on corporate equities as a whole is accomplished by the use of a large amount of new debt costing 4% or less after tax credit. If our corporations had maintained the debt ratio of 1950, their earnings rate on stock capital would have fallen still lower in spite of the inflation. The stock market has considered that the public utility enterprises have been a chief victim of inflation, being caught between a great advance in the cost of borrowed money and the difficulty of raising the rates charged under the regulatory process. But this may be the place to remark that the very fact that the unit costs of electricity, gas, and telephone services have advanced so much less than the general price index puts these companies in a strong strategic position for the future. Three, they are entitled by law to charge rates sufficient for an adequate return on their invested capital, and this will probably protect their shareholders in the future as it has in the inflations of the past. All of the above brings us back to our conclusion that the investor has no sound basis for expecting more than an average overall return of, say, 8% on a portfolio of Dow Jones Industrial Average type common stocks purchased at the late 1971 price level. But even if these expectations should prove to be understated by a substantial amount, the case would not be made for an all-stock investment program. If there is one thing guaranteed for the future, it is that the earnings and average annual market value of a stock portfolio will not grow at the uniform rate of 4%, or any other figure. In the memorable words of the elder J.P. Morgan, they will fluctuate. This means, First, that the common stock buyer at today's prices, or tomorrow's, will be running a real risk of having unsatisfactory results therefrom over a period of years. It took 25 years for General Electric, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average itself, to recover the ground lost in the 1929-1932 debacle. Besides that, if the investor concentrates his portfolio on common stocks he is very likely to be led astray either by exhilarating advances or by distressing declines. This is particularly true if his reasoning is geared closely to expectations of further inflation. For then, if another bull market comes along, he will take the big rise not as a danger signal of an inevitable fall, not as a chance to cash in on his handsome profits, but rather as a vindication of the inflation hypothesis and as a reason to keep on buying common stocks no matter how high the market level nor how low the dividend return. That way lies sorrow. Alternatives to Common Stocks as Inflation Hedges the standard policy of people all over the world who mistrust their currency has been to buy and hold gold. This has been against the law for American citizens since 1935, luckily for them. In the past 35 years the price of gold in the open market has advanced from $35 per ounce to $48 in early 1972, a rise of only 35%. But during all this time the holder of gold has received no income return on his capital, and instead has incurred some annual expense for storage. Obviously. He would have done much better with his money at interest in a savings bank, in spite of the rise in the general price level. The near-complete failure of gold to protect against a loss in the purchasing power of the dollar must cast grave doubt on the ability of the ordinary investor to protect himself against inflation by putting his money in things. Quite a few categories of valuable objects have had striking advances in market value over the years, such as diamonds, paintings by masters, first editions of books, rare stamps and coins, etc. But in many, perhaps most, 
Of these cases there seems to be an element of the artificial or the precarious or even the unreal about the quoted prices. Somehow it is hard to think of paying $67,500 for a US silver dollar dated 1804, but not even minted that year, as an investment operation. For we acknowledge we are out of our depth in this area. Very few of our readers will find the swimming safe and easy there. The outright ownership of real estate has long been considered as a sound long-term investment, carrying with it a goodly amount of protection against inflation. Unfortunately, real estate values are also subject to wide fluctuations, serious errors can be made in location, price paid, etc., there are pitfalls in salesmen's wiles. Finally, diversification is not practical for the investor of moderate means, except by various types of participations with others and with the special hazards that attach to new flotations not too different from common stock ownership. This too is not our field. All we should say to the investor is, be sure it's yours before you go into it. Conclusion Naturally, we return to the policy recommended in our previous chapter. Just because of the uncertainties of the future the investor cannot afford to put all his funds into one basket, neither in the bond basket, despite the unprecedentedly high returns that bonds have recently offered, nor in the stock basket, despite the prospect of continuing inflation. The more the investor depends on his portfolio and the income therefrom, the more necessary it is for him to guard against the unexpected and the disconcerting in this part of his life. It is axiomatic that the conservative investor should seek to minimize his risks. We think strongly that the risks involved in buying, say, a telephone company bond at yields of nearly 71 halves of a percent are much less than those involved in buying the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 900, or any stock list equivalent thereto but the possibility of large-scale inflation remains, and the investor must carry some insurance against it. There is no certainty that a stock component will insure adequately against such inflation, but it should carry more protection than the bond component. This is what we said on the subject in our 1965 edition, p. 97, and we would write the same today. It must be evident to the reader that we have no enthusiasm for common stocks at these levels, 892 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. For reasons already given we feel that the defensive investor cannot afford to be without an appreciable proportion of common stocks in his portfolio, even if we regard them as the lesser of two evils, the greater being the risks in an all-bond holding. Chapter 3 A Century of Stock Market History, The Level of Stock Prices in Early 1972 The investor's portfolio of common stocks will represent a small cross-section of that immense and formidable institution known as the stock market. Prudence suggests that he have an adequate idea of stock market history, in terms particularly of the major fluctuations in its price level and of the varying relationships between stock prices as a whole and their earnings and dividends. With this background he may be in a position to form some worthwhile judgment of the attractiveness or dangers of the level of the market as it presents itself at different times. By a coincidence, useful statistical data on prices, earnings, and dividends go back just 100 years, to 1871. The material is not nearly as full or dependable in the first half period as in the second, but it will serve, in this chapter we shall present the figures, in highly condensed form, with two objects in view. The first is to show the general manner in which stocks have made their underlying advance through the many cycles of the past century. The second is to view the picture in terms of successive 10-year averages, not only of stock prices but of earnings and dividends as well, to bring out the varying relationship between the three important factors. With this wealth of material as a background we shall pass to a consideration of the level of stock prices at the beginning of 1972. The long-term history of the stock market is summarized in two tables and a chart. 
Table 3 to 1 sets forth the low and high points of 19 bear and bull market cycles in the past 100 years. We have used two indexes here. The first represents a combination of an early study by the Cowles Commission going back to 1870, which has been spliced onto and continued to date in the well-known Standard & Poor's Composite Index of 500 stocks. The second is the even more celebrated Dow Jones Industrial Average, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or the Dow, which dates back to 1897. It contains 30 companies, of which one is American Telephone and Telegraph and the other 29 are large industrial enterprises. Chart I, presented by courtesy of Standard & Poor's, depicts the market fluctuations of its 425 industrial stock index from 1900 through 1970. A corresponding chart available for the Dow Jones Industrial Average will look very much the same. The reader will note three quite distinct patterns, each covering about a third of the 70 years. The first runs from 1900 to 1924, and shows for the most part a series of rather similar market cycles lasting from three to five years. The annual advance in this period averaged just about 3%. We move on to the new era bull market, culminating in 1929, with its terrible aftermath of collapse, followed by quite irregular fluctuations until 1949. Comparing the average level of 1949 with that of 1924, we find the annual rate of advance to be a mere 11 halves of a percent, hence the close of our second period found the public with no enthusiasm at all for common stocks. By the rule of opposites the time was ripe for the beginning of the greatest bull market in our history, presented in the last third of our chart. This phenomenon may have reached its culmination in December 1968 at 118 for Standard & Poor's 425 industrials, and 108 for its 500 stock composite. As Table 3 to 1 shows, there were fairly important setbacks between 1949 and 1968, especially in 1956-57 and 1961-62. But the recoveries therefrom were so rapid that they had to be denominated, in the long-accepted semantics, as recessions in a single bull market, rather than as separate market cycles. Between the low level of 162 for the Dow in mid-1949 and the high of 995 in early 1966, the advance had been more than sixfold in 17 years, which is at the average compounded rate of 11% per year, not counting dividends of, say, 31 halves of a percent per annum. The advance for the Standard & Poor's Composite Index was somewhat greater than that of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, actually from 14 to 96. These 14% and better returns were documented in 1963 and later, in a much publicized study. Too it created a natural satisfaction on Wall Street with such fine achievements, and a quite illogical and dangerous conviction that equally marvelous results could be expected for common stocks in the future. Few people seem to have been bothered by the thought that the very extent of the rise might indicate that it had been overdone. The subsequent decline from the 1968 high to the 1970 low was 36% for the Standard & Poor's Composite, and 37% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the largest since the 44% suffered in 1939-1942, which had reflected the perils and uncertainties after Pearl Harbor. In the dramatic manner so characteristic of Wall Street, the low level of May 1970 was followed by a massive and speedy recovery of both averages, and the establishment of a new all-time high for the Standard & Poor's Industrials in early 1972. The annual rate of price advance between 1949 and 1970 works out at about 9% for the S&P Composite, or the Industrial Index, using the average figures for both years. That rate of climb was, of course, much greater than for any similar period before 1950. But in the last decade the rate of advance was much lower, 51 fourths of a percent for the S&P Composite Index and only the once familiar 3% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average.
the record of price movements should be supplemented by core responding figures for earnings and dividends, in order to provide an overall view of what has happened to our share economy over the 10 decades. We present a conspectus of this kind in our Table 3-2, p. 71. It is a good deal to expect from the reader that he study all these figures with care, but for some we hope they will be interesting and instructive. Let us comment on them as follows, the full decade figures smooth out the year-to-year -year fluctuations and leave a general picture of persistent growth. Only two of the nine decades after the first show a decrease in earnings and average prices, in 1891-1900 and 1931-1940, and no decade after 1900 shows a decrease in average dividends. But the rates of growth in all three categories are quite variable. In general the performance since World War II has been superior to that of earlier decades, but the advance in the 1960s was less pronounced than that of the 1950s. Today's investor cannot tell from this record what percentage gain in earnings dividends and prices he may expect in the next 10 years, but it does supply all the encouragement he needs for a consistent policy of common stock investment. However, a point should be made here that is not disclosed in our table. The year 1970 was marked by a definite deterioration in the overall earnings posture of our corporations. The rate of profit on invested capital fell to the lowest percentage since the World War years. Equally striking is the fact that a considerable number of companies reported net losses for the year, many became financially troubled, and for the first time in three decades there were quite a few important bankruptcy proceedings. These facts as much as any others have prompted the statement made above that the Great Boom era may have come to an end in 1969-1970. A striking feature of Table 3-2 is the change in the price-slash-earnings ratios since World War II. In June 1949 the S&P Composite Index sold at only 6.3 times the applicable earnings of the past 12 months, in March 1961 the ratio was 22.9 times. Similarly, the dividend yield on the S&P Index had fallen from over 7% in 1949 to only 3.0% in 1961, a contrast heightened by the fact that interest rates on high-grade bonds had meanwhile risen from 2.60% to 4.50%. This is certainly the most remarkable turnabout in the public's attitude in all stock market history. To people of long experience and innate caution the passage from one extreme to another carried a strong warning of trouble ahead. They could not help thinking apprehensively of the 1926-1929 bull market and its tragic aftermath. But these fears have not been confirmed by the event. True, the closing price of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in 1970 was the same as it was 61 halves years earlier and the much-heralded soaring 60s proved to be mainly a march up a series of high hills and then down again. But nothing has happened either to business or to stock prices that can compare with the bear market and depression of 1929-1932. The Stock Market Level in Early 1972 With a century-long conspectus of stock, prices, earnings, and dividends before our eyes, let us try to draw some conclusions about the level of 900 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and 100 for the S&P Composite Index in January 1972. In each of our former editions we have discussed the level of the stock market at the time of writing, and endeavored to answer the question whether it was too high for conservative purchase. The reader may find it informing to review the conclusions we reached on these earlier occasions. This is not entirely an exercise in self-punishment. It will supply a sort of connecting tissue that links the various stages of the stock market in the past 20 years and also a taken-from-life picture of the difficulties facing anyone who tries to reach an informed and critical judgment of current market levels. Let us, first, reproduce the summary of the 1948, 1953, and 1959 analyses that we gave in the 1965 edition. 
1948 we applied conservative standards to the Dow Jones level of 180, and found no difficulty in reaching the conclusion that it was not too high in relation to underlying values. When we approached this problem in 1953 the average market level for that year had reached 275, a gain of over 50% in five years. We asked ourselves the same question, namely, whether in our opinion the level of 275 for the Dow Jones Industrials was or was not too high for sound investment. In the light of the subsequent spectacular advance, it may seem strange to have to report that it was by no means easy for us to reach a definitive conclusion as to the attractiveness of the 1953 level. We did say, positively enough, that from the standpoint of value indications, our chief investment guide, the conclusion about 1953 stock prices must be favorable. But we were concerned about the fact that in 1953, the averages had advanced for a longer period than in most bull markets of the past, and that its absolute level was historically high. Setting these factors against our favorable value judgment, we advised a cautious or compromise policy. As it turned out, this was not a particularly brilliant counsel. A good profit would have foreseen that the market level was due to advance an additional 100% in the next five years. Perhaps we should add in self-defense that few if any of those whose business was stock market forecasting, as ours was not, had any better inkling than we did of what lay ahead. At the beginning of 1959 we found the Dow Jones Industrial Average at an all-time high of 584. Our lengthy analysis made from all points of view may be summarized in the following, from page 59 of the 1959 edition. In sum, we feel compelled to express the conclusion that the present level of stock prices is a dangerous one. It may well be perilous because prices are already far too high. But even if this is not the case the market's momentum is such as inevitably to carry it to unjustifiable heights. Frankly, we cannot imagine a market of the future in which there will never be any serious losses, and in which, every tyro will be guaranteed a large profit on his stock purchases. The caution we expressed in 1959 was somewhat better justified by the sequel than was our corresponding attitude in 1954. Yet it was far from fully vindicated. The Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced to 685 in 1961, then fell a little below our 584 level, to 566, later in the year, advanced again to 735 in late 1961, and then declined in near panic to 536 in May 1962 showing a loss of 27% within the brief period of six months. At the same time there was a far more serious shrinkage in the most popular growth stocks as evidenced by the striking fall of the indisputable leader, international business machines, from a high of 607 in December 1961 to a low of 300 in June 1962. This period saw a complete debacle in a host of newly launched common stocks of small enterprises, the so-called hot issues which had been offered to the public at ridiculously high prices and then had been further pushed up by needless speculation to levels little short of insane. Many of these lost 90% and more of the quotations in just a few months. The collapse in the first half of 1962 was disconcerting, if not disastrous, to many self-acknowledged speculators and to many more imprudent people who called themselves investors. But the turnabout that came later that year was equally unsuspected by the financial community. The stock market averages resumed their upward course, producing the following sequence. Dow Jones Industrial Average, Standard & Poor's 500 Stock Composite. December 1961. 735, 72.64. June 1962, 536, 52.32. November 1964, 892, 86.28. The recovery and new ascent of common stock prices was indeed remarkable and created a corresponding revision of Wall Street sentiment. 
At the low level of June 1962 predictions had appeared predominantly bearish, and after the partial recovery to the end of that year they were mixed, leaning to the skeptical side. But at the outset of 1964 the natural optimism of brokerage firms was again manifest, nearly all the forecasts were on the bullish side, and they so continued through the 1964 advance. We then approached the task of appraising the November 1964 levels of the stock market, 892 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. After discussing it learnedly from numerous angles we reached three main conclusions. The first was that old standards, of valuation, appear inapplicable, new standards have not yet been tested by time. The second was that the investor must base his policy on the existence of major uncertainties. The possibilities compass the extremes, on the one hand, of a protracted and further advance in the market's level, say by 50%, or to 1,350 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or, on the other hand, of a largely unheralded collapse of the same magnitude, bringing the average in the neighborhood of, say, 450 inches, p. 63. The third was expressed in much more definite terms. We said, speaking bluntly, if the 1964 price level is not too high how could we say that any price level is too high? And the chapter closed as follows. Investors should not conclude that the 1964 market level is dangerous merely because they read it in this book. They must weigh a reasoning against the contrary reasoning they will hear from most competent and experienced people on Wall Street. In the end each one must make his own decision and accept responsibility therefore. We suggest, however, that if the investor is in doubt as to which course to pursue he should choose the path of caution. The principles of investment, as set forth herein, would call for the following policy under 1964 conditions, in order of urgency. 1. No borrowing to buy or hold securities. Two. No increase in the proportion of funds held in common stocks. 3. A reduction in common stock holdings were needed to bring it down to a maximum of 50% of the total portfolio. The capital gains tax must be paid with as good grace as possible, and the proceeds invested in first quality bonds or held as a savings deposit. Investors who for some time have been following a bona fide dollar cost averaging plan can in logic elect either to continue their periodic purchases unchanged or to suspend them until they feel the market level is no longer dangerous. We should advise rather strongly against the initiation of a new dollar averaging plan at the late 1964 levels, since many investors would not have the stamina to pursue such a scheme if the results soon after initiation should appear highly unfavorable. This time we can say that our caution was vindicated. The Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced about 11% further, to 995, but then fell irregularly to a low of 632 in 1970, and finished that year at 839. The same kind of debacle took place in the price of hot issues I.E., with declines running as much as 90%, as had happened in the 1961-62 setback. And, as pointed out in the introduction, the whole financial picture appeared to have changed in the direction of less enthusiasm and greater doubts. A single fact may summarize the story, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed 1970 at a level lower than six years before, the first time such a thing had happened since 1944. Such were our efforts to evaluate former stock market levels. Is there anything we and our readers can learn from them? We considered the market level favorable for investment in 1948 and 1953, but too cautiously in the latter year, dangerous in 1959, at 584 for Dow Jones Industrial Average and too high, at 892, in 1964. All of these judgments could be defended even today by adroit arguments. But it is doubtful if they have been as useful as our more pedestrian counsels, in favor of a consistent and controlled common stock policy on the one hand, 
and discouraging endeavors to beat the market or to pick the winners on the other. Nonetheless we think our readers may derive some benefit from a renewed consideration of the level of the stock market, this time as of late 1971, even if what we have to say will prove more interesting than practically useful, or more indicative than conclusive. There is a fine passage near the beginning of Aristotle's ethics that goes, it is the mark of an educated mind to expect that amount of exactness which the nature of the particular subject admits. It is equally unreasonable to accept merely probable conclusions from a mathematician and to demand strict demonstration from an order. The work of a financial analyst falls somewhere in the middle between that of a mathematician and of an order. At various times in 1971 the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at the 892 level of November 1964 that we considered in our previous edition. But in the present statistical study we have decided to use the price level and the related data for the Standard & Poor's Composite Index, or S&P 500, because it is more comprehensive and representative of the general market than the 30-stock Dow Jones Industrial Average. We shall concentrate on a comparison of this material near the four dates of our former editions, namely the year ends of 1948, 1953, 1958 and 1963, plus 1968. For the current price level we shall take the convenient figure of 100, which was registered at various times in 1971 and in early 1972. The salient data are set forth in Table 3 to 3. For our earnings figures we present both the last year showing and the average of three calendar years. For 1971 dividends we use the last 12 months figures, and for 1971 bond interest and wholesale prices those of August 1971. The three-year price-slash-earnings ratio for the market was lower in October 1971 than at year-end 1963 and 1968. It was about the same as in 1958, but much higher than in the early years of the long bull market. This important indicator, taken by itself could not be construed to indicate that the market was especially high in January 1972. But when the interest yield on high-grade bonds is brought into the picture, the implications become much less favorable. The reader will note from our table that the ratio of stock returns, earnings-slash-price, to bond returns has grown worse during the entire period, so that the January 1972 figure was less favorable to stocks, by this criterion, than in any of the previous years examined. When dividend yields are compared with bond yields we find that the relationship was completely reversed between 1948 and 1972. In the early year stocks yielded twice as much as bonds, now bonds yield twice as much, and more, than stocks. Our final judgment is that the adverse change in the bond yield slash stock yield ratio fully offsets the better price slash earnings ratio for late 1971, based on the three-year earnings figures. Hence our view of the early 1972 market level would tend to be the same as it was some seven years ago, i.e., that it is an unattractive one from the standpoint of conservative investment. This would apply to most of the 1971 price range of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, between, say, 800 and 950. In terms of historical market swings the 1971 picture would still appear to be one of irregular recovery from the bad setback suffered in 1969 to 1970. In the past such recoveries have ushered in a new stage of the recurrent and persistent bull market that began in 1949. This was the expectation of Wall Street generally during 1971, after the terrible experience suffered by the public buyers of low-grade common stock offerings in the 1968-1970 cycle, it is too early, in 1971, for another twirl of the new issue merry-go-round. Hence that dependable sign of imminent danger in the market is lacking now as it was at the 892 level of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in November 1964, considered in our previous edition. Technically, then, 
the outlook would appear to favor another substantial rise far beyond the 900 Dow Jones Industrial Average level before the next serious setback or collapse. But we cannot quite leave the matter there, as perhaps we should. To us, the early 1971 market's disregard of the harrowing experiences of less than a year before is a disquieting sign. Can such heedlessness go unpunished? We think the investor must be prepared for difficult times ahead, perhaps in the form of a fairly quick replay of the 1969-1970 decline, or perhaps in the form of another bull market fling, to be followed by a more catastrophic collapse. What course to follow? Turn back to what we said in the last edition, reproduced on p. 75. This is our view at the same price level, say 900 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average in early 1972 as it was in late 1964. Chapter 4. General Portfolio Policy. The Defensive Investor. The basic characteristics of an investment portfolio are usually determined by the position and characteristics of the owner or owners. At one extreme we have had savings banks, life insurance companies, and so-called legal trust funds. A generation ago there. Investments were limited by law in many states to high-grade bonds and, in some cases, high-grade preferred stocks. At the other extreme we have the well-to-do and experienced businessman, who will include any kind of bond or stock in his security list provided he considers it an attractive purchase. It has been an old and sound principle that those who cannot afford to take risks should be content with a relatively low return on their invested funds. From this there has developed the general notion that the rate of return which the investor should aim for is more or less proportionate to the degree of risk he is ready to run. Our view is different. The rate of return sought should be dependent, rather, on the amount of intelligent effort the investor is willing and able to bring to bear on his task. The minimum return goes to our passive investor, who wants both safety and freedom from concern. The maximum return would be realized by the alert and enterprising investor who exercises maximum intelligence and skill. In 1965 we added, in many cases there may be less real risk associated with buying a bargain issue offering the chance of a large profit than with a conventional bond purchase yielding about 41 halves of a percent. This statement had more truth in it than we ourselves suspected, since in subsequent years even the best long-term bonds lost a substantial part of their market value because of the rise in interest rates. The Basic Problem of Bond Stock Allocation We have already outlined in briefest form the portfolio policy of the defensive investor. He should divide his funds between high-grade bonds and high-grade common stocks. We have suggested as a fundamental guiding rule that the investor should never have less than 25% or more than 75% of his funds in common stocks, with a consequent inverse range of between 75% and 25% in bonds. There is an implication here that the standard division should be an equal one, or 50 to 50, between the two major investment mediums. According to tradition the sound reason for increasing the percentage in common stocks would be the appearance of the bargain price levels created in a protracted bear market. Conversely, sound procedure would call for reducing the common stock component below 50% when in the judgment of the investor the market level has become dangerously high. These copybook maxims have always been easy to enunciate and always difficult to follow, because they go against the very human nature which produces that excesses of bull and bear markets. It is almost a contradiction in terms to suggest as a feasible policy for the average stock owner that he lighten his holdings when the market advances beyond a certain point and add to them after a corresponding decline. It is because the average man operates, and apparently must operate, in opposite fashion that we have had the great advances and collapses of the past, and, this writer believes, we are likely to have them in the future. If the division between investment and speculative operations were as clear now as once it was, we might be able to envisage investors as a shrewd, 
experienced group who sell out to the heedless, hapless speculators at high prices and buy back from them at depressed levels. This picture may have had some verisimilitude in bygone days, but it is hard to identify it with financial developments since 1949. There is no indication that such professional operations as those of the mutual funds have been conducted in this fashion. The percentage of the portfolio held in equities by the two major types of funds, balanced and common stock has changed very little from year to year. Their selling activities have been largely related to endeavors to switch from less to more promising holdings. If, as we have long believed, the stock market has lost contact with its old bounds, and if new ones have not yet been established, then we can give the investor no reliable rules by which to reduce his common stock holdings toward the 25% minimum and rebuild them later to the 75% maximum. We can urge that in general the investor should not have more than one half in equities unless he has strong confidence in the soundness of his stock position and is sure that he could view a market decline of the 1969-70 type with equanimity. It is hard for us to see how such strong confidence can be justified at the levels existing in early 1972. Thus we would counsel against a greater than 50% apportionment to common stocks at this time. But, for complementary reasons, it is almost equally difficult to advise a reduction of the figure well below 50%, unless the investor is disquieted in his own mind about the current market level, and will be satisfied also to limit his participation in any further rise to, say, 25% of his total funds. We are thus led to put forward for most of our readers what may appear to be an oversimplified 50 to 50 formula. Under this plan the guiding rule is to maintain as nearly as practicable an equal division between bond and stock holdings. When changes in the market level have raised the common stock component to, say, 55%, the balance would be restored by a sale of one eleventh of the stock portfolio and the transfer of the proceeds to bonds. Conversely, a fall in the common stock proportion to 45% would call for the use of one eleventh of the bond fund to buy additional equities. Yale University followed a somewhat similar plan for a number of years after 1937, but it was geared around a 35% normal holding in common stocks. In the early 1950s, however, Yale seems to have given up its once famous formula, and in 1969 held 61% of its portfolio in equities, including some convertibles. At that time the endowment funds of 71 such institutions, totaling $7.6 billion, held 60.3% in common stocks. The Yale example illustrates the almost lethal effect of the great market advance upon the once popular formula approach to investment. Nonetheless we are convinced that our 50 to 50 version of this approach makes good sense for the defense of investor. It is extremely simple, it aims unquestionably in the right direction, it gives the follower the feeling that he is at least making some moves in response to market developments, most important of all, it will restrain him from being drawn more and more heavily into common stocks as the market rises to more and more dangerous heights. Furthermore, a truly conservative investor will be satisfied with the gains shown on half his portfolio in a rising market, while in a severe decline he may derive much solace from reflecting how much better off he is than many of his more venturesome friends. While our proposed 50-50 division is undoubtedly the simplest all-purpose program devisable, it may not turn out to be the best in terms of results achieved. Of course, no approach, mechanical or otherwise, can be advanced with any assurance that it will work out better than another. The much larger income return now offered by good bonds than by representative stocks is a potent argument for favoring the bond component. The investor's choice between 50% or a lower figure in stocks may well rest mainly on his own temperament and attitude. If he can act as a cold-blooded weigher of the odds, he would be likely to favor the low 25% stock component at this time, with the idea of waiting until the Dow Jones Industrial Average Dividend Yield was, say, 
two-thirds of the bond yield before he would establish his median 50 to 50 division between bonds and stocks. Starting from 900 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and dividends of $36 on the unit, this would require either a fall in taxable bond yields from 71 halves of a percent to about 5.5% without any change in the present return on leading stocks, or a fall in the Dow Jones Industrial Average to as low as 660 if there is no reduction in bond yields and no increase in dividends. A combination of intermediate changes could produce the same buying point. A program of that kind is not especially complicated, the hard part is to adopt it and to stick to it not to mention the possibility that it may turn out to have been much too conservative. The Bond Component The choice of issues in the bond component of the investor's portfolio will turn about two main questions, should he buy taxable or tax-free bonds, and should he buy shorter or longer-term maturities? The tax decision should be mainly a matter of arithmetic, turning on the difference in yields as compared with the investor's tax bracket. In January 1972 the choice in 20-year maturities was between obtaining, say, 71 halves of a percent on grade AA corporate bonds and 5.3% on prime tax-free issues. The term municipals is generally applied to all species of tax-exempt bonds, including state obligations, there was thus for this maturity a loss in income of some 30% in passing from the corporate to the municipal field. Hence if the investor was in a maximum tax bracket higher than 30% he would have a net saving after taxes by choosing the municipal bonds, the opposite, if his maximum tax was less than 30%. A single person starts paying a 30% rate when his income after deductions passes $10,000, for a married couple the rate applies when combined taxable income passes $20,000. It is evident that a large proportion of individual investors would obtain a higher return after taxes from good municipals than from good corporate bonds. The choice of longer versus shorter maturities involves quite a different question, viz, does the investor want to assure himself against a decline in the price of his bonds, but at the cost of, 1, a lower annual yield and, 2, loss of the possibility of an appreciable gain in principal value? We think it best to discuss this question in Chapter 8, The Investor and Market Fluctuations. For a period of many years in the past the only sensible bond purchases for individuals were the U.S. savings issues. Their safety was, and is, unquestioned, they gave a higher return than other bond investments of first quality, they had a money-back option and other privileges which added greatly to their attractiveness. In our earlier editions we had an entire chapter entitled U.S. Savings Bonds, a boon to investors. As we shall point out, U.S. Savings Bonds still possess certain unique merits that make them a suitable purchase by any individual investor. For the man of modest capital, with, say, not more than $10,000 to put into bonds, we think they are still the easiest and the best choice. But those with larger funds may find other mediums more desirable. Let us list a few major types of bonds that deserve investor consideration, and discuss them briefly with respect to general description, safety, yield, market price, risk, income tax status, and other features. 1. U.S. Savings Bonds, Series E and Series H. We shall first summarize their important provisions and then discuss briefly the numerous advantages of these unique, attractive, and exceedingly convenient investments. The Series H bonds pay interest semi-annually, as do other bonds. The rate is 4.29% for the first year, and then a flat 5.10% for the next nine years to maturity. Interest on the Series E bonds is not paid out, but accrues to the holder through increase in redemption value. The bonds are sold at 75% of their face value and mature at 100% in 5 years 10 months after purchase. If held to maturity the yield works out at 5%, compounded semi-annually. If redeemed earlier, 
the yield moves up from a minimum of 4.01% in the first year to an average of 5.20% in the next 45 sixths years. Interest on the bonds is subject to federal income tax, but is exempt from state income tax. However, federal income tax on the Series E bonds may be paid at the holder's option either annually as the interest accrues, through higher redemption value, or not. Until the bond is actually disposed of. Owners of Series E bonds may cash them in at any time, shortly after purchase, at their current redemption value. Holders of Series H bonds have similar rights to cash them in at par value, cost. Series E bonds are exchangeable for Series H bonds, with certain tax advantages. Bonds lost, destroyed, or stolen may be replaced without cost. There are limitations on annual purchases, but liberal provisions for co-ownership by family members make it possible for most investors to buy as many as they can afford. Comment, there is no other investment that combines, 1, absolute assurance of principal and interest payments, 2, the right to demand full money back at any time, and, 3, guarantee of at least a 5% interest rate for at least 10 years. Holders of the earlier issues of Series E bonds have had the right to extend their bonds at maturity, and thus to continue to accumulate annual values at successively higher rates. The deferral of income tax payments over these long periods has been of great dollar advantage. We calculated has increased the effective net after-tax rate received by as much as a third in typical cases. Conversely, the right to cash in the bonds at cost price or better has given the purchasers in former years of low interest rates complete protection against the shrinkage in principal value that befell many bond investors, otherwise stated, it gave them the possibility of benefiting from the rise in interest rates by switching their low interest holdings into very high coupon issues on an even money basis. In our view the special advantages enjoyed by owners of savings bonds now will more than compensate for their lower current return as compared with other direct government obligations. 2. Other United SD8 bonds. A profusion of these issues exists, covering a wide variety of coupon rates and maturity dates. All of them are completely safe with respect to payment of interest and principal. They are subject to federal income taxes but free from state income tax. In late 1971 the long-term issues, over 10 years, showed an average yield of 6.09%, intermediate issues, 3 to 5 years, returns 6.35%, and short issues returned 6.03%. In 1970 it was possible to buy a number of old issues at large discounts. Some of these are accepted at par in settlement of estate taxes. Example, the U.S. Treasury 31-2S2-1990 are in this category, they sold at 60 in 1970, but closed 1970 above 77. It is interesting to note also that in many cases the indirect obligations of the U.S. government yield appreciably more than its direct obligations of the same maturity. As we write, an offering appears of 7.05% of certificates fully guaranteed by the Secretary of Transportation of the Department of Transportation of the United States. The yield was fully 1% more than that on direct obligations of the U.S., maturing the same year, 1986. The certificates were actually issued in the name of the trustees of the Penn Central Transportation Company, but they were sold on the basis of a statement by the U.S. Attorney General that the guarantee brings into being a general obligation of the United States, backed by its full faith and credit. Quite a number of indirect obligations of this sort have been assumed by the U.S. government in the past, and all of them have been scrupulously honored. The reader may wonder why all this hocus-pocus, involving an apparently personal guarantee by our Secretary of Transportation, and a higher cost to the taxpayer in the end. The chief reason for the indirection has been the debt limit imposed on government borrowing by the Congress. Apparently guarantees by the government are not regarded as debts, a semantic windfall for shrewder investors. 
Perhaps the chief impact of this situation has been the creation of tax-free housing authority bonds, enjoying the equivalent of a U.S. guarantee, and virtually the only tax-exempt issues that are equivalent to government bonds. Another type of government-backed issues is the recently created new community debentures, offered to yield 7.60% in September 1971. 3. SD8 and municipal bonds. These enjoy exemption from federal income tax. They are also ordinarily free of income tax in the state of issue but not elsewhere. They are either direct obligations of a state or subdivision, or revenue bonds dependent for interest payments on receipts from a toll road, bridge, building lease, etc. Not all tax-free bonds are strongly enough protected to justify their purchase by a defensive investor. He may be guided in his selection by the rating given to each issue by Moody's or Standard & Poor's. One of three highest ratings by both services, AAA, AAA, AA, AA or A, should constitute a sufficient indication of adequate safety. The yield on these bonds will vary both with the quality and the maturity, with the shorter maturities giving the lower return. In late 1971 the issues represented in Standard & Poor's Municipal Bond Index averaged AA and quality rating, 20 years in maturity, and 5.78% in yield. A typical offering of Vineland, New Jersey, bonds, rated AA for A and gave a yield of only 3% on the one-year maturity rising to 5.8% to the 1995 and 1996 maturities. 4. Corporation Bonds. These bonds are subject to both federal and state tax. In early 1972 those of highest quality yielded 7.19% for a 25-year maturity, as reflected in the published yield of Moody's AAA Corporate Bond Index. The so-called lower-medium grade issues, rated BA, returned 8.23% for long maturities. In each class shorter-term issues would yield somewhat less than longer-term obligations. Comment. The above summaries indicate that the average investor has several choices among high-grade bonds. Those in high-income tax brackets can undoubtedly obtain a better net yield from good tax-free issues than from taxable ones. For others the early 1972 range of taxable yield would seem to be from 5.00% on. U.S. savings bonds, with their special options, to about 71 halves of a percent on high-grade corporate issues. Higher Yielding Bond Investments By sacrificing quality an investor can obtain a higher income return from his bonds. Long experience has demonstrated that the ordinary investor is wiser to keep away from such high-yield bonds. While, taken as a whole, they may work out somewhat better in terms of overall return than the first quality issues. They expose the owner to too many individual risks of untoward developments, ranging from disquieting price declines to actual default. It is true that bargain opportunities occur fairly often in lower-grade bonds, but these require special study and skill to exploit successfully. Perhaps we should adhere that the limits imposed by Congress on direct bond issues of the United States have produced at least two sorts of bargain opportunities for investors in the purchase of government-backed obligations. One is provided by the tax-exempt new housing issues, and the other by the recently created, taxable, new community debentures. An offering of new housing issues in July 1971 yielded as high as 5.8%, free from both federal and state taxes, while an issue of, taxable, new community debentures sold in September 1971 yielded 7.60%. Both obligations have the full faith and credit of the United States government behind them and hence are safe without question. And, on a net basis, they yield considerably more than ordinary United States bonds. Savings Deposits in Lieu of Bonds An investor may now obtain as high an interest rate from a savings deposit in a commercial or savings bank, or from a bank certificate of deposit, as he can from a first-grade bond of short maturity. 
The interest rate on bank savings accounts may be lowered in the future, but under present conditions they are a suitable substitute for short-term bond investment by the individual. Convertible Issues These are discussed in Chapter 16. The price variability of bonds in general is treated in Chapter 8, The Investor and Market Fluctuations. Call Provisions In previous editions we had a fairly long discussion of this aspect of bond financing, because it involved a serious but little noticed injustice to the investor. In the typical case bonds were callable fairly soon after issuance, and at modest premiums, say 5%, above the issue price. This meant that during a period of wide fluctuations in the underlying interest rates the investor had to bear the full brunt of unfavorable changes and was deprived of all but a meager participation in favorable ones. Example, our standard example has been the issue of American Gas and Electric 100-year 5% debentures, sold to the public at 101 in 1928. Four years later, under near-panic conditions, the price of these good bonds fell to 621 halves, yielding 8%. By 1946, in a great reversal, bonds of this type could be sold to yield only 3%, and the 5% issue should have been quoted at close to 160. But at that point the company took advantage of the call provision and redeemed the issue at a mere 106. The call feature in these bond contracts was a thinly disguised instance of heads I win, tails you lose. At long last, the bond buying institutions refused to accept this unfair arrangement. In recent years most long-term high coupon issues have been protected against redemption for 10 years or more after issuance. This still limits their possible price rise, but not inequitably. In practical terms, we advise the investor in long-term issues to sacrifice a small amount of yield to obtain the assurance of non-calability, say for 20 or 25 years. Similarly, there is an advantage in buying a low-coupon bond at a discount rather than a high-coupon bond selling at about par and callable in a few years. For the discount, for example, of a 31 halves of a percent bond at 631 halves of a percent, yielding 7.85%, carries full protection against adverse call action. Straight, i.e., non-convertible, preferred stocks. Certain general observations should be made here on the subject of preferred stocks. Really good preferred stocks can and do exist, but they are good in spite of their investment form, which is an inherently bad one. The typical preferred shareholder is dependent for his safety on the ability and desire of the company to pay dividends on its common stock. Once the common dividends are emitted, or even in danger, his own position becomes precarious, for the directors are under no obligation to continue paying him unless they also pay on the common. On the other hand, the typical preferred stock carries no share in the company's profits beyond the fixed dividend rate. Thus the preferred holder lacks both the legal claim of the bondholder, or creditor, and the profit possibilities of a common shareholder, or partner. These weaknesses in the legal position of preferred stocks tend to come to the fore recurrently in periods of depression. Only a small percentage of all preferred issues are so strongly entrenched as to maintain an unquestioned investment status through all vicissitudes. Experience teaches that the time to buy preferred stocks is when their price is unduly depressed by temporary adversity. At such times they may be well suited to the aggressive investor but too unconventional for the defensive investor. In other words, they should be bought on a bargain basis or not at all. We shall refer later to convertible and similarly privileged issues, which carry some special possibilities of profits. These are not ordinarily selected for a conservative portfolio. Another peculiarity in the general position of preferred stocks deserves mention. They have a much better tax status for corporation buyers than for individual investors. Corporations pay income tax on only 15% of the income they receive in dividends but on the full amount of their ordinary interest income. 
Since the 1972 corporate rate is 48%, this means that $100 received as preferred stock dividends is taxed only $7.20, whereas $100 received as bond interest is taxed $48. On the other hand, individual investors pay exactly the same tax on preferred stock investments as on bond interest, except for a recent minor exemption. Thus, in strict logic, all investment-grade preferred stocks should be bought by corporations, just as all tax-exempt bonds should be bought by investors who pay income tax. Security Forms The bond form and the preferred stock form, as hitherto discussed, are well understood and relatively simple matters. A bondholder is entitled to receive fixed interest and payment of principal on a definite date. The owner of a preferred stock is entitled to a fixed dividend, and no more, which must be paid before any common dividend. His principal value does not come due on any specified date. The dividend may be cumulative or non-cumulative. He may or may not have a vote. The above describes the standard provisions and, no doubt, the majority of bond and preferred issues, but there are innumerable departures from these forms. The best known types are convertible and similar issues, and income bonds. In the latter type, interest does not have to be paid unless it is earned by the company. Unpaid interest may accumulate as a charge against future earnings but the period is often limited to three years. Income bonds should be used by corporations much more extensively than they are. Their avoidance apparently arises from a mere accident of economic history, namely, that they were first employed in quantity in connection with railroad reorganizations, and hence they have been associated from the start with financial weakness and poor investment status. But the form itself has several practical advantages, especially in comparison with and in substitution for the numerous, convertible, preferred stock issues of recent years. Chief of these is the deductibility of the interest paid from the company's taxable income, which in effect cuts the cost of that form of capital in half. From the investor's standpoint it is probably best for him in most cases that he should have, 1, an unconditional right to receive interest payments when they are earned by the company, and, 2, a right to other forms of protection in bankruptcy proceedings if interest is not earned and paid. The terms of income bonds can be tailored to the advantage of both the borrower and the lender in the manner best suited to both. Conversion privileges can, of course, be included, the acceptance by everybody of the inherently weak preferred stock form and the rejection of the stronger income bond form is a fascinating illustration of the way in which traditional institutions and habits often tend to persist on Wall Street despite new conditions calling for a fresh point of view. With every new wave of optimism or pessimism, we are ready to abandon history and time-tested principles, but we cling tenaciously and unquestioningly to our prejudices. Chapter 5 The Defensive Investor in Common Stocks Investment Merits of Common Stocks In our first edition, 1949, we found it necessary at this point to insert a long exposition of the case for including a substantial common stock component in all investment portfolios. Common stocks were generally viewed as highly speculative and therefore unsafe. They had declined fairly substantially from the high levels of 1946, but instead of attracting investors to them because of their reasonable prices, this fall had had the opposite effect of undermining confidence in equity securities. We have commented on the converse situation that has developed in the ensuing 20 years, whereby the big advance in stock prices made them appear safe and profitable investments at record high levels which might actually carry with them a considerable degree of risk. The argument we made for common stocks in 1949 turned on two main points. The first was that they had offered a considerable degree of protection against the erosion of the investor's dollar caused by inflation, whereas bonds offered no protection at all. The second advantage of common stocks lay in their higher average return to investors over the years. 
This was produced both by an average dividend income exceeding the yield on good bonds and by an underlying tendency for market value to increase over the years in consequence of the reinvestment of undistributed profits. While these two advantages have been of major importance, and have given common stocks a far better record than bonds over the long-term past, we have consistently warned that these benefits could be lost by the stock buyer if he pays too high a price for his shares. This was clearly the case in 1929, and it took 25 years for the market level to climb back to the ledge from which it had abysmally fallen in 1929 to 1932. Since 1957 common stocks have once again, through their high prices, lost their traditional advantage in dividend yield over bond interest rates. It remains to be seen whether the inflation factor and the economic growth factor will make up in the future for this significantly adverse development. It should be evident to the reader that we have no enthusiasm for common stocks in general at the 900 Dow Jones Industrial Average level of late 1971. For reasons already given we feel that the defensive investor cannot afford to be without an appreciable proportion of common stocks in his portfolio, even if he must regard them as the lesser of two evils, the greater being the risks attached to an all-bond holding. Rules for the Common Stock Component The selection of common stocks for the portfolio of the defensive investor should be a relatively simple matter. Here we would suggest four rules to be followed. 1. There should be adequate though not excessive diversification. This might mean a minimum of 10 different issues and a maximum of about 30. 2. Each company selected should be large, prominent, and conservatively financed. Indefinite as these adjectives must be, their general sense is clear. Observations on this point are added at the end of the chapter. 3. Each company should have a long record of continuous dividend payments. All the issues in the Dow Jones Industrial Average met this dividend requirement in 1971. To be specific on this point we would suggest the requirement of continuous dividend payments beginning at least in 1950. 4. The investor should impose some limit on the price he will pay for an issue in relation to its average earnings over, say, the past seven years. We suggest that this limit be set at 25 times such average earnings, and not more than 20 times those of the last 12-month period. But such a restriction would eliminate nearly all the strongest and most popular companies from the portfolio. In particular, it would ban virtually the entire category of growth stocks, which have for some years past been the favorites of both speculators and institutional investors. We must give our reasons for proposing so drastic an exclusion. Growth Stocks and the Defensive Investor the term growth stock is applied to one which has increased its per share earnings in the past at well above the rate for common stocks generally and is expected to continue to do so in the future. Some authorities would say that a true growth stock should be expected at least to double its per share earnings in 10 years, i.e., to increase them at a compounded annual rate of over 7.1%. Obviously stocks of this kind are attractive to buy and to own, provided the price paid is not excessive. The problem lies there, of course since growth stocks have long sold at high prices in relation to current earnings and at much higher multiples of their average profits over a past period. This has introduced a speculative element of considerable weight in the growth stock picture and has made successful operations in this field a far from simple matter. The leading growth issue has long been international business machines, and it has brought phenomenal rewards to those who bought it years ago and held on to it tenaciously. But we have already pointed out that this best of common stocks actually lost 50% of its market price in a six months decline during 1961-62 and nearly the same percentage in 1969-70. Other growth stocks have been even more vulnerable to adverse developments, in some cases not only has the price fallen back but the earnings as well, thus causing a double discomfiture to those who own them. A good second example for our purpose is Texas Instruments 
which in six years rose from 5 to 256, without paying a dividend, while its earnings increased from 40 cents to $3.91 per share. Note that the price advanced five times as fast as the profits, this is characteristic of popular common stocks, but two years later the earnings had dropped off by nearly 50% and the price by four-fifths, to 49. The reader will understand from these instances why we regard growth stocks as a whole as too uncertain and risky a vehicle for the defensive investor. Of course, wonders can be accomplished with the right individual selections, bought at the right levels, and later sold after a huge rise and before the probable decline. But the average investor can no more expect to accomplish this than to find money growing on trees. In contrast we think that the group of large companies that are relatively unpopular, and therefore obtainable at reasonable earnings multipliers, offers a sound if unspectacular area of choice by the general public. We shall illustrate this idea in our chapter on portfolio selection. Portfolio changes. It is now standard practice to submit all security lists for periodic inspection in order to see whether their quality can be improved. This, of course, is a major part of the service provided for clients by investment counselors. Nearly all brokerage houses are ready to make corresponding suggestions, without special fee, in return for the commission business involved. Some brokerage houses maintain investment services on a fee basis. Presumably our defensive investor should obtain, at least once a year, the same kind of advice regarding changes in his portfolio as he sought when his funds were first committed. Since he will have little expertness of his own on which to rely, it is essential that he entrust himself only to firms of the highest reputation, otherwise he may easily fall into incompetent or unscrupulous hands. It is important, in any case, that at every such consultation he make clear to his advisor that he wishes to adhere closely to the four rules of common stock selection given earlier in this chapter. Incidentally, if his list has been competently selected in the first instance, there should be no need for frequent or numerous changes. Dollar Cost Averaging The New York Stock Exchange has put considerable effort into popularizing its monthly purchase plan, under which an investor devotes the same dollar amount each month to buying one or more common stocks. This is an application of a special type of formula investment known as dollar cost averaging. During the predominantly rising market experience since 1949 the results from such a procedure were certain to be highly satisfactory, especially since they prevented the practitioner from concentrating his buying at the wrong times. In Lucille Tomlinson's comprehensive study of formula investment plans, one the author presented a calculation of the results of dollar cost averaging in the group of stocks making up the Dow Jones Industrial Index. Tests were made covering 23 10-year purchase periods, the first ending in 1929, the last in 1952. Every test showed a profit either at the close of the purchase period or within five years thereafter. The average indicated profit at the end of the 23 buying periods was 21.5%, exclusive of dividends received. Needless to say, in some instances there was a substantial temporary depreciation at market value. Miss Tomlinson ends her discussion of this ultra-simple investment formula with a striking sentence, no one has yet discovered any other formula for investing which can be used with so much confidence of ultimate success, regardless of what may happen to security prices, as dollar cost averaging. It may be objected that dollar cost averaging, while sound in principle, is rather unrealistic in practice, because few people are so situated that they can have available for common stock investment the same amount of money each year for, say, 20 years. It seems to me that this apparent objection has lost much of its force in recent years. Common stocks are becoming generally accepted as a necessary component of a sound savings investment program. 
Thus, systematic and uniform purchases of common stocks may present no more psychological and financial difficulties than similar continuous payments for United States savings bonds and for life insurance, to which they should be complementary. The monthly amount may be small, but the results after 20 or more years can be impressive and important to the saver. The Investor's Personal Situation At the beginning of this chapter we referred briefly to the position of the individual portfolio owner. Let us return to this matter in the light of our subsequent discussion of general policy. To what extent should the type of securities selected by the investor vary with his circumstances? As concrete examples representing widely different conditions, we shall take, 1, a widow left $200,000 with which to support herself and her children, 2, a successful doctor in mid-career, with savings of $100,000 and yearly accretions of $10,000, and, 3, a young man earning $200 per week and saving $1,000 a year. For the widow, the problem of living on her income is a very difficult one. On the other hand the need for conservatism in her investments is paramount. A division of her fund about equally between United States bonds and first-grade common stocks is a compromise between these objectives and corresponds to our general prescription for the defensive investor. The stock component may be placed as high as 75% if the investor is psychologically prepared for this decision, and if she can be almost certain she is not buying at too high a level. Assuredly this is not the case in early 1972. We do not preclude the possibility that the widow may qualify as an enterprising investor, in which case her objectives and methods will be quite different. The one thing the widow must not do is to take speculative chances in order to make some extra income. By this we mean trying for profits or high income without the necessary equipment to warrant full confidence in overall success. It would be far better for her to draw $2,000 per year out of her principal, in order to make both ends meet, than to risk half of it in poorly grounded, and therefore speculative, ventures. The prosperous doctor has none of the widow's pressures and compulsions, yet we believe that his choices are pretty much the same. Is he willing to take a serious interest in the business of investment? If he lacks the impulse or the flair, he will do best to accept the easy role of the defensive investor. The division of his portfolio should then be no different from that of the typical widow, and there would be the same area of personal choice in fixing the size of the stock component. The annual savings should be invested in about the same proportions as the total fund. The average doctor may be more likely than the average widow to elect to become an enterprising investor, and he is perhaps more likely to succeed in the undertaking. He has one important handicap, however, the fact that he has less time available to give to his investment education and to the administration of his funds. In fact, medical men have been notoriously unsuccessful in their security dealings. The reason for this is that they usually have an ample confidence in their own intelligence and a strong desire to make a good return on their money, without the realization that to do so successfully requires both considerable attention to the matter and something of a professional approach to security values. Finally, the young man who saves $1,000 a year, and expects to do better gradually, finds himself with the same choices, though for still different reasons. Some of his savings should go automatically into Series E bonds. The balance is so modest that it seems hardly worthwhile for him to undergo a tough educational and temperamental discipline in order to qualify as an aggressive investor. Thus a simple resort to our standard program for the defensive investor would be at once the easiest and the most logical policy. Let us not ignore human nature at this point. Finance has a fascination for many bright young people with limited means. They would like to be both intelligent and enterprising in the placement of their savings, even though investment income is much less important to them than their salaries. This attitude is all to the good. There is a great advantage for the young capitalist to begin his financial education and experience early. 
if he is going to operate as an aggressive investor he is certain to make some mistakes and to take some losses. Youth can stand these disappointments and profit by them. We urge the beginner in security buying not to waste his efforts and his money in trying to beat the market. Let him study security values and initially test out his judgment on price versus value with the smallest possible sums. Thus we return to the statement, made at the outset, that the kind of securities to be purchased and the rate of return to be sought depend not on the investor's financial resources but on his financial equipment in terms of knowledge, experience, and temperament. Note on the concept of risk. It is conventional to speak of good bonds as less risky than good preferred stocks and of the latter as less risky than good common stocks. From this was derived the popular prejudice against common stocks because they are not safe, which was demonstrated in the Federal Reserve Board survey of 1948. We should like to point out that the words risk and safety are applied to securities in two different senses, with a resultant confusion in thought. A bond is clearly proved unsafe when it defaults its interest or principal payments. Similarly, if a preferred stock or even a common stock is bought with the expectation that a given rate of dividend will be continued, then a reduction or passing of the dividend means that it has proved unsafe. It is also true that an investment contains a risk if there is a fair possibility that the holder may have to sell at a time when the price is well below cost. Nevertheless, the idea of risk is often extended to apply to a possible decline in the price of a security, even though the decline may be of a cyclical and temporary nature and even though the holder is unlikely to be forced to sell at such times. These chances are present in all securities, other than United States savings bonds, and to a greater extent in the general run of common stocks than in senior issues as a class. But we believe that what is here involved is not a true risk in the useful sense of the term. The man who holds a mortgage on a building might have to take a substantial loss if he were forced to sell it at an unfavorable time. That element is not taken into account in judging the safety or risk of ordinary real estate mortgages, the only criterion being the certainty of punctual payments. In the same way the risk attached to an ordinary commercial business is measured by the chance of its losing money, not by what would happen if the owner were forced to sell. In Chapter 8 we shall set forth our conviction that the bona fide investor does not lose money merely because the market price of his holdings declines, hence the fact that a decline may occur does not mean that he is running a true risk of loss. If a group of well-selected common stock investments shows a satisfactory overall return, as measured through a fair number of years, then this group investment has proved to be safe. During that period its market value is bound to fluctuate, and as likely as not it will sell for a while under the buyer's cost. If that fact makes the investment risky, it would then have to be called both risky and safe at the same time. This confusion may be avoided if we apply the concept of risk solely to a loss of value which either is realized through actual sale, or is caused by a significant deterioration in the company's position, or, more frequently perhaps, is the result of the payment of an excessive price in relation to the intrinsic worth of the security. Many common stocks do involve risks of such deterioration. But, it is our thesis that a properly executed group investment in common stocks does not carry any substantial risk of this sort and that therefore it should not be termed risky merely because of the element of price fluctuation. But such risk is present if there is danger that the price may prove to have been clearly too high by intrinsic value standards, even if any subsequent severe market decline may be recouped many years later. Note on the category of large, prominent, and conservatively financed corporations. The quoted phrase in our caption was used earlier in the chapter to describe the kind of common stocks to which defensive investors should limit their purchases, provided also that they had paid continuous dividends for a considerable number of years. A criterion based on adjectives is always ambiguous. Where is the dividing line for size, for prominence, and for conservatism of financial structure? 
On the last point we can suggest a specific standard that, though arbitrary, is in line with accepted thinking. An industrial company's finances are not conservative unless the common stock, at book value, represents at least half of the total capitalization, including all bank debt. Three for a railroad or public utility the figure should be at least 30%. The words large and prominent carry the notion of substantial size combined with a leading position in the industry. Such companies are often referred to as primary, all other common stocks are then called secondary, except that growth stocks are ordinarily placed in a separate class by those who buy them as such. To supply an element of concreteness here, let us suggest that to be large in present-day terms a company should have $50 million of assets or do $50 million of business. Again to be prominent a company should rank among the first quarter or first third in size within its industry group. It would be foolish, however, to insist upon such arbitrary criteria. They are offered merely as guides to those who may ask for guidance. But any rule which the investor may set for himself and which does no violence to the common sense meanings of large and prominent should be acceptable. By the very nature of the case there must be a large group of companies that some will and others will not include among those suitable for defensive investment. There is no harm in such diversity of opinion and action. In fact, it has a salutary effect upon stock market conditions, because it permits a gradual differentiation or transition between the categories of primary and secondary stock issues. Chapter 6 Portfolio Policy for the Enterprising Investor, Negative Approach The aggressive investor should start from the same base as the defensive investor, namely, a division of his funds between high-grade bonds and high-grade common stocks bought at reasonable prices. He will be prepared to branch out into other kinds of security commitments, but in each case he will want a well-reasoned justification for the departure. There is a difficulty in discussing this topic in orderly fashion, because there is no single or ideal pattern for aggressive operations. The field of choice is wide, the selection should depend not only on the individual's competence and equipment but perhaps equally well upon his interests and preferences. The most useful generalizations for the enterprising investor are of a negative sort. Let him leave high-grade preferred stocks to corporate buyers. Let him also avoid inferior types of bonds and preferred stocks unless they can be bought at bargain levels, which means ordinarily at prices at least 30% under par for high coupon issues, and much less for the lower coupons. He will let someone else buy foreign government bond issues, even though the yield may be attractive. He will also be wary of all kinds of new issues, including convertible bonds and preferreds that seem quite tempting and common stocks with excellent earnings confined to the recent past. For standard bond investments the aggressive investor would do well to follow the pattern suggested to his defensive confrere, and make his choice between high-grade taxable issues, which can now be selected to yield about 71 fourths of a percent, and good quality tax-free bonds which yield up to 5.30% on longer maturities. Second-grade bonds and preferred stocks Since in late 1971 it is possible to find first-rate corporate bonds to yield 71 fourths of a percent, and even more, it would not make much sense to buy second-grade issues merely for the higher return they offer. In fact corporations with relatively poor credit standing have found it virtually impossible to sell straight bonds i.e., non-convertibles, to the public in the past two years. Hence their debt financing has been done by the sale of convertible bonds, or bonds with warrants attached, which place them in a separate category. It follows that virtually all the non-convertible bonds of inferior rating represent older issues which are selling at a large discount. Thus they offer the possibility of a substantial gain in principal value under favorable future conditions, which would mean here a combination of an improved credit rating for the company and lower general interest rates. But even in the matter of price discounts and resultant chance of principal gain, the second-grade bonds are in competition with better issues. 
some of the well-entrenched obligations with old-style coupon rates, 21 halves of a percent to 4%, sold at about 50 cents on the dollar in 1970. Examples, American Telephone and Telegraph 25-8S, do 1986 sold at 51, Atchison Topeka and Santa Fe RR4s, do 1995, sold at 51, McGraw-Hill 37-8S, do 1992, sold at 501 halves. Hence under conditions of late 1971 the enterprising investors can probably get from good grade bonds selling at a large discount all that he should reasonably desire in the form of both income and chance of appreciation. Throughout this book we refer to the possibility that any well-defined and protracted market situation of the past may return in the future. Hence we should consider what policy the aggressive investor might have to choose in the bond field if prices and yields of high-grade issues should return to former normals. For this reason we shall reprint here our observations on that point made in the 1965 edition, when high-grade bonds yielded only 41 halves of a percent. Something should be said now about investing in second-grade issues, which can readily be found to yield any specified return up to 8% or more. The main difference between first- and second-grade bonds is usually found in the number of times the interest charges have been covered by earnings. Example, in early 1964 Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul and Pacific 5% income debenture bonds, at 68, yielded 7.35%. But the total interest charges of the road, before income taxes, were earned only 1.5 times in 1963, against our requirement of 5 times for a well-protected railroad issue.1. Many investors buy securities of this kind because they need income and cannot get along with the meager return offered by top-grade issues. Experience clearly shows that it is unwise to buy a bond or a preferred which lacks adequate safety merely because the yield is attractive. Here the word merely implies that the issue is not selling at a large discount and thus does not offer an opportunity for a substantial gain in principal value, where such securities are bought at full prices, that is, not many points under 100 the chances are very great that at some future time the holder will see much lower quotations. For when bad business comes, or just a bad market, Issues of this kind prove highly susceptible to severe sinking spells, often interest or dividends are suspended or at least endangered, and frequently there is a pronounced price weakness even though the operating results are not at all bad. As a specific illustration of this characteristic of second-quality senior issues, let us summarize the price behavior of a group of 10 railroad income bonds in 1946-47. These comprise all of those which sold at 96 or more in 1946, their high prices averaging 1,021 halves. By the following year the group had registered low prices averaging only 68, a loss of one-third of the market value in a very short time. Peculiarly enough, the railroads of the country were showing much better earnings in 1947 than in 1946, hence the drastic price decline ran counter to the business picture and was a reflection of the sell-off in the general market. But it should be pointed out that the shrinkage in these income bonds was proportionately larger than that in the common stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial List, about 23%. Obviously the purchaser of these bonds at a cost above 100 could not have expected to participate to any extent in a further rise in the securities market. The only attractive feature was the income yield, averaging about 4.25%, against 2.50% for first-grade bonds, an advantage of 1.75% in annual income. Yet the sequel showed all too soon and too plainly that for the minor advantage in annual income the buyer of these second-grade bonds was risking the loss of a substantial part of his principal. The above example permits us to pay our respects to the popular fallacy that goes under the sobriquet of a businessman's investment. 
that involves the purchase of a security showing a larger yield than is obtainable on a high-grade issue and carrying a correspondingly greater risk. It is bad business to accept an acknowledged possibility of a loss of principal in exchange for a mere 1 or 2% of additional yearly income. If you are willing to assume some risk you should be certain that you can realize a really substantial gain in principal value if things go well. Hence a second grade 5.5 or 6% bond selling at par is almost always a bad purchase. The same issue at 70 might make more sense, and if you are patient you will probably be able to buy it at that level. Second grade bonds and preferred stocks possess two contradictory attributes which the intelligent investor must bear clearly in mind. Nearly all suffer severe sinking spells in bad markets. On the other hand, a large proportion recover their position when favorable conditions return, and these ultimately work out all right. This is true even of, cumulative, preferred stocks that fail to pay dividends for many years. There were a number of such issues in the early 1940s, as a consequence of the long depression of the 1930s. During the post-war boom period of 1945 to 1947 many of these large accumulations were paid off either in cash or in new securities, and the principal was often discharged as well. As a result, large profits were made by people who, a few years previously, had bought these issues when they were friendless and sold at low prices. Too. It may well be true that, in an overall accounting, the higher yields obtainable on second-grade senior issues will prove to have offset those principal losses that were irrecoverable. In other words, an investor who bought all such issues at their offering prices might conceivably fare as well, in the long run as one who limited himself to first quality securities, or even somewhat better.3 but for practical purposes the question is largely irrelevant. Regardless of the outcome, the buyer of second-grade issues at full prices will be worried and discommoded when their price declines precipitately. Furthermore, he cannot buy enough issues to assure an average result, nor is he in a position to set aside a portion of his larger income to offset or amortize those principal losses which prove to be permanent. Finally, it is mere common sense to abstain from buying securities at around 100 if long experience indicates that they can probably be bought at 70 or less in the next week market. Foreign Government Bonds All investors with even small experience know that foreign bonds, as a whole, have had a bad investment history since 1914. This was inevitable in the light of two world wars and an intervening world depression of unexampled depth. Yet every few years market conditions are sufficiently favorable to permit the sale of some new foreign issues at a price of about par. This phenomenon tells us a good deal about the working of the average investor's mind, and not only in the field of bonds. We have no concrete reason to be concerned about the future history of well-regarded foreign bonds such as those of Australia or Norway. But we do know that, if and when trouble should come, the owner of foreign obligations has no legal or other means of enforcing his claim. Those who bought Republic of Cuba 41 2s as high as 117 in 1953 saw them default their interest and then sell as low as 20 cents on the dollar in 1963. The New York Stock Exchange bond list in that year also included Belgian Congo 51 4s at 36, Greek 7s at 30, and various issues of Poland as low as 7. How many readers have any idea of the repeated vicissitudes of the 8% bonds of Czechoslovakia? since they were first offered in this country in 1922 at 961 halves. They advanced to 112 in 1928, declined to 673 fourths in 1932, recovered to 106 in 1936, collapsed to 6 in 1939, recovered. Unbelievably, to 117 in 1946, fell promptly to 35 in 1948, and sold. As low as 8 in 1970. 
Years ago an argument of sorts was made for the purchase of foreign bonds here on the grounds that a rich creditor nation such as ours was under moral obligation to lend abroad. Time, which brings so many revenges, now finds us dealing with an intractable balance of payments problem of our own, part of which is ascribable to the large-scale purchase of foreign bonds by American investors seeking a small advantage in yield. For many years past we have questioned the inherent attractiveness of such investments from the standpoint of the buyer, perhaps we should add now that the latter would benefit both his country and himself if he declined these opportunities. Dot. New issues generally. It might seem ill-advised to attempt any broad statements about new issues as a class, since they cover the widest possible range of quality and attractiveness. Certainly there will be exceptions to any suggested rule. Our one recommendation is that all investors should be wary of new issues, which means, simply, that these should be subjected to careful examination and unusually severe tests before they are purchased. There are two reasons for this double caveat. The first is that new issues have special salesmanship behind them, which calls therefore for a special degree of sales resistance. The second is that most new issues are sold under favorable market conditions, which means favorable for the seller and consequently less favorable for the buyer. The effect of these considerations becomes steadily more important as we go down the scale from the highest quality bonds through second-grade senior issues to common stock flotations at the bottom. A tremendous amount of financing, consisting of the repayment of existing bonds at call price and their replacement by new issues with lower coupons, was done in the past. Most of this was in the category of high-grade bonds and preferred stocks. The buyers were largely financial institutions, amply qualified to protect their interests. Hence these offerings were carefully priced to meet the going rate for comparable issues, and high-powered salesmanship had little effect on the outcome. As interest rates fell lower and lower the buyers finally came to pay too high a price for these issues, and many of them later declined appreciably in the market. This is one aspect of the general tendency to sell new securities of all types when conditions are most favorable to the issuer, but in the case of first quality issues the ill effects to the purchaser are likely to be unpleasant rather than serious. The situation proves somewhat different when we study the lower-grade bonds and preferred stocks sold during the 1945-46 and 1960-61 periods. Here the effect of the selling effort is more apparent, because most of these issues were probably placed with individual and inexpert investors. It was characteristic of these offerings that they did not make an adequate showing when judged by the performance of the companies over a sufficient number of years. They did look safe enough, for the most part if it could be assumed that the recent earnings would continue without a serious setback. The investment bankers who brought out these issues presumably accepted this assumption, and their salesmen had little difficulty in persuading themselves and their customers to a like effect. Nevertheless it was an unsound approach to investment, and one likely to prove costly. Bull market periods are usually characterized by the transformation of a large number of privately owned businesses into companies with quoted shares. This was the case in 1945-46 and again beginning in 1960. The process then reached extraordinary proportions until brought to a catastrophic close in May 1962. After the usual swearing-off period of several years the whole tragicomedy was repeated, step by step, in 1967-1969. New Common Stock Offerings The following paragraphs are reproduced unchanged from the 1959 edition, with comment added. Common stock financing takes two different forms. In the case of companies already listed, additional shares are offered pro-rated to the existing stockholders. The subscription price is set below the current market, and the rights to subscribe have an initial money value. The sale of the new shares is almost always underwritten by one or more investment banking houses, but it is the general hope and expectation that all the new shares will be taken by the exercise of the subscription rights. 
Thus the sale of additional common stock of listed companies does not ordinarily call for active selling effort on the part of distributing firms. The second type is the placement with the public of common stock of what were formerly privately owned enterprises. Most of this stock is sold for the account of the controlling interests to enable them to cash in on a favorable market and to diversify their own finances. When new money is raised for the business it comes often via the sale of preferred stock, as previously noted, this activity follows a well-defined pattern, which by the nature of the security markets must bring many losses and disappointments to the public. The dangers arise both from the character of the businesses that are thus financed and from the market conditions that make the financing possible. In the early part of the century a large proportion of our leading companies were introduced to public trading. As time went on, the number of enterprises of first rank that remained closely held steadily diminished, hence original common stock flotations have tended to be concentrated more and more on relatively small concerns. By an unfortunate correlation, during the same period the stock-buying public has been developing an ingrained preference for the major companies and a similar prejudice against the minor ones. This prejudice, like many others, tends to become weaker as bull markets are built up. The large and quick profits shown by common stocks as a whole are sufficient to dull the public's critical faculty, just as they sharpen its acquisitive instinct. During these periods, also, quite a number of privately owned concerns can be found that are enjoying excellent results, although most of these would not present too impressive a record if the figures were carried back, say, 10 years or more. When these factors are put together the following consequences emerge. Somewhere in the middle of the bull market the first common stock flotations make their appearance. These are priced not unattractively, and some large profits are made by the buyers of the early issues. As the market rise continues, this brand of financing grows more frequent, the quality of the companies become steadily poorer, the prices asked and obtained verge on the exorbitant. One fairly dependable sign of the approaching end of a bull swing is the fact that new common stocks of small and nondescript companies are offered at prices somewhat higher than the current level for many medium-sized companies with a long market history. It should be added that very little of this common stock financing is ordinarily done by banking houses of prime size and reputation. The heedlessness of the public and the willingness of selling organizations to sell whatever may be profitably sold can have only one result, price collapse. In many cases the new issues lose 75% and more of their offering price. The situation is worsened by the aforementioned fact that, at bottom, the public has a real aversion to the very kind of small issue that it bought so readily in its careless moments. Many of these issues fall, proportionately, as much below their true value as they formerly sold above it. An elementary requirement for the intelligent investor is an ability to resist the blandishments of salesmen offering new common stock issues during bull markets. Even if one or two can be found that can pass severe tests of quality and value, it is probably bad policy to get mixed up in this sort of business. Of course the salesman will point to many such issues which have had good-sized market advances, including some that go up spectacularly the very day they are sold. But all this is part of the speculative atmosphere. It is easy money. For every dollar you make in this way you will be lucky if you end up by losing only two. Some of these issues may prove excellent buys, a few years later when nobody wants them and they can be had at a small fraction of their true worth. In the 1965 edition we continued our discussion of this subject as follows. While the broader aspects of the stock market's behavior since 1949 have not lent themselves well to analysis based on long experience, the development of new common stock flotations proceeded exactly in accordance with ancient prescription. It is doubtful whether we ever before had so many new issues offered, of such low quality, 
and with such extreme price collapses, as we experienced in 1960-1962.4 the ability of the stock market as a whole to disengage itself rapidly from that disaster is indeed an extraordinary phenomenon, bringing back long-buried memories of the similar invulnerability it showed to the great Florida real estate collapse in 1925. Must there be a return of the new stock offering madness before the present bull market can come to its definitive close? Who knows? But we do know that an intelligent investor will not forget what happened in 1962 and will let others make the next batch of quick profits in this area and experience the consequent harrowing losses. We follow these paragraphs in the 1965 edition by citing a horrible example, namely, the sale of stock of Aetna Maintenance Company at $9 in November 1961. In typical fashion the shares promptly advanced to $15, the next year they fell to 23 eighths, and in 1964 to 7 eighths. The later history of this company was on the extraordinary side, and illustrates some of the strange metamorphoses that have taken place in American business, great and small, in recent years. The curious reader will find the older and newer history of this enterprise in Appendix 5. It is by no means difficult to provide even more harrowing examples taken from the more recent version of the same old story which covered the years 1967 to 1970. Nothing could be more pat to our purpose than the case of AAA Enterprises, which happens to be the first company then listed in Standard & Poor's Stock Guide. The shares were sold to the public at $14 in 1968, promptly advanced to 28, but in early 1971 were quoted at a dismal 25 cents. Even this price represented a gross overvaluation of the enterprise, since it had just entered the bankruptcy court in a hopeless condition, there is so much to be learned and such important warnings to be gleaned, from the story of this flotation that we have reserved it for detailed treatment below, in Chapter 17. Chapter 7. Portfolio Policy for the Enterprising Investor, The Positive Side The enterprising investor, by definition, will devote a fair amount of his attention and efforts toward obtaining a better-than-run-of-the-mill investment result. In our discussion of general investment policy we have made some suggestions regarding bond investments that are addressed chiefly to the enterprising investor. He might be interested in special opportunities of the following kinds. 1. Tax-free new housing authority bonds effectively guaranteed by the United States government. 2. Taxable but high-yielding new community bonds, also guaranteed by the United States government. 3. Tax-free industrial bonds issued by municipalities, but serviced by lease payments made by strong corporations. References have been made to these unusual types of bond issues in Chapter 4. At the other end of the spectrum there may be lower quality bonds obtainable at such low prices as to constitute true bargain opportunities. But these would belong in the special situation area, where no true distinction exists between bonds and common stocks. Operations in Common Stocks The activities specially characteristic of the enterprising investor in the common stock field may be classified under four heads. 1 buying in low markets and selling in high markets. 2. Buying carefully chosen growth stocks. 3. Buying bargain issues of various types. 4. Buying into special situations. General market policy, formula timing. We reserve for the next chapter our discussion of the possibilities and limitations of a policy of entering the market when it is depressed and selling out in the advanced stages of a boom. For many years in the past this bright idea appeared both simple and feasible at least from first inspection of a market chart covering its periodic fluctuations. We have already admitted ruefully that the market's action in the past 20 years has not lent itself to operations of this sort on any mathematical basis. The fluctuations that have taken place, while not inconsiderable in extent, 
would have required a special talent or feel for trading to take advantage of them. This is something quite different from the intelligence which we are assuming in our readers, and we must exclude operations based on such skill from our terms of reference. The 50 to 50 plan, which we propose to the defensive investor, and described on p. 90, is about the best specific or automatic formula we can recommend to all investors under the conditions of 1972. But we have retained a broad leeway between the 25% minimum and the 75% maximum in common stocks, which we allow to those investors who have strong convictions about either the danger or the attractiveness of the general market level. Some 20 years ago it was possible to discuss in great detail a number of clear-cut formulas for varying the percentage held in common stocks, with confidence that these plans had practical utility. One the time seemed to have passed such approaches by, and there would be little point in trying to determine new levels for buying and selling out of the market patterns since 1949. That is too short a period to furnish any reliable guide to the future. Growth Stock Approach Every investor would like to select the stocks of companies that will do better than the average over a period of years. A growth stock may be defined as one that has done this in the past and is expected to do so in the future. Thus it seems only logical that the intelligent investor should concentrate upon the selection of growth stocks. Actually the matter is more complicated, as we shall try to show. It is a mere statistical chore to identify companies that have outperformed the averages in the past. The investor can obtain a list of 50 or 100 such enterprises from his broker. Why, then, should he not merely pick out the 15 or 20 most likely looking issues of this group and low? He has a guaranteed successful stock portfolio? There are two catches to this simple idea. The first is that common stocks with good records and apparently good prospects sell at correspondingly high prices. The investor may be right in his judgment of their prospects and still not fare particularly well, merely because he is paid in full and perhaps overpaid, for the expected prosperity. The second is that his judgment as to the future may prove wrong. Unusually rapid growth cannot keep up forever, when a company has already registered a brilliant expansion, its very increase in size makes a repetition of its achievement more difficult. At some point the growth curve flattens out, and in many cases it turns downward. It is obvious that if one confines himself to a few chosen instances, based on hindsight, he could demonstrate that fortunes can readily be either made or lost in the growth stock field. How can one judge fairly of the overall results obtainable here? We think that reasonably sound conclusions can be drawn from a study of the results achieved by the investment funds specializing in the growth stock approach. The authoritative manual entitled Investment Companies, published annually by Arthur Wiesenberger and Company, members of the New York Stock Exchange, computes the annual performance of some 120 such growth funds over a period of years. Of these, 45 have records covering 10 years or more. The average overall gain for these companies, unweighted for size of fund, works out at 108% for the decade 1961 to 1970, compared with 105% for the S&P Composite and 83% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Three in the two years 1969 and 1970 the majority of the 126 growth funds did worse than either index. Similar results were found in our earlier studies. The implication here is that no outstanding rewards came from diversified investment in growth companies as compared with it in common stocks generally. There is no reason at all for thinking that the average intelligent investor, even with much devoted effort, can derive better results over the years from the purchase of growth stocks than the investment companies specializing in this area. Surely these organizations have more brains and better research facilities at their disposal than you do. Consequently we should advise against the usual type of growth stock commitment for the enterprising investor.
this is one in which the excellent prospects are fully recognized in the market and already reflected in a current price-earnings ratio of, say, higher than 20. For the defensive investor we suggested an upper limit of purchase price at 25 times average earnings of the past 7 years. The two criteria would be about equivalent in most cases. The striking thing about growth stocks as a class is their tendency toward wide swings in market price. This is true of the largest and longest established companies, such as General Electric and International Business Machines, and even more so of newer and smaller successful companies. They illustrate our thesis that the main characteristic of the stock market since 1949 has been the injection of a highly speculative element into the shares of companies which have scored the most brilliant successes, and which themselves would be entitled to a high investment rating. Their credit standing is of the best, and they pay the lowest interest rates on their borrowings. The investment caliber of such a company may not change over a long span of years, but the risk characteristics of its stock will depend on what happens to it in the stock market. The more enthusiastic the public grows about it, and the faster its advances compared with the actual growth in its earnings, the riskier a proposition it becomes. But is it not true, the reader may ask, that the really big fortunes from common stocks have been garnered by those who made a substantial commitment in the early years of a company in whose future they had great confidence, and who held their original shares unwaveringly while they increased 100-fold or more in value? The answer is yes. But the big fortunes from single company investments are almost always realized by persons who have a close relationship with the particular company, through employment, family connection, etc. which justifies them in placing a large part of their resources in one medium and holding on to this commitment through all vicissitudes, despite numerous temptations to sell out at apparently high prices along the way. An investor without such close personal contact will constantly be faced with the question of whether too large a portion of his funds are in this one medium. Each decline, however temporary it proves in the sequel, will accentuate his problem, and internal and external pressures are likely to force him to take what seems to be a goodly profit but one far less than the ultimate bonanza. 3 Recommended Fields for Enterprising Investment To obtain better than average investment results over a long pull requires a policy of selection or operation possessing a twofold merit, 1, it must meet objective or rational tests of underlying soundness, and, 2, it must be different from the policy followed by most investors or speculators. Our experience and study leads us to recommend three investment approaches that meet these criteria. They differ rather widely from one another, and each may require a different type of knowledge and temperament on the part of those who assay it. The Relatively Unpopular Large Company If we assume that it is the habit of the market to overvalue common stocks which have been showing excellent growth or are glamorous for some other reason, it is logical to expect that it will undervalue, relatively, at least, companies that are out of favor because of unsatisfactory developments of a temporary nature. This may be set down as a fundamental law of the stock market and it suggests an investment approach that should prove both conservative and promising. The key requirement here is that the enterprising investor concentrate on the larger companies that are going through a period of unpopularity. While small companies may also be undervalued for similar reasons, and in many cases may later increase their earnings and share price, they entail the risk of a definitive loss of profitability and also of protracted neglect by the market in spite of better earnings. The large companies thus have a double advantage over the others. First, they have the resources and capital and brain power to carry them through adversity and back to a satisfactory earnings base. Second, the market is likely to respond with reasonable speed to any improvement shown. A remarkable demonstration of the soundness of this thesis is found in studies of the price behavior of the unpopular issues in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 
In these it was assumed that an investment was made each year in either the 6 or the 10 issues in the Dow Jones Industrial Average which were selling at the lowest multipliers of their current or previous year's earnings. These could be called the cheapest stocks in the list, and their cheapness was evidently the reflection of relative unpopularity with investors or traders. It was assumed further that these purchases were sold out at the end of holding periods ranging from 1 to 5 years. The results of these investments were then compared with the results shown in either the Dow Jones Industrial Average as a whole or in the highest multiplier, i.e., the most popular, group. The detailed material we have available covers the results of annual purchases assumed in each of the past 53 years.5 In the early period, 1917 to 1933, this approach proved unprofitable. But since 1933 the method has shown highly successful results. In 34 tests made by Drexel & Company, now Drexel Firestone, of one-year holding, from 1937 through 1969, the cheap stocks did definitely worse than the Dow Jones Industrial Average in only three instances, the results were about the same in six cases, and the cheap stocks clearly outperformed the average in 25 years. The consistently better performance of the low multiplier stocks is shown, Table 7-2, by the average results for successive five-year periods when compared with those of the Dow Jones Industrial Average and of the 10 high multipliers. The Drexel computation shows further that an original investment of $10,000 made in the low multiplier issues in 1936, and switched each year in accordance with the principle, would have grown to $66,900 by 1962. The same operations in high multiplier stocks would have ended with a value of only $25,300, while an operation in all 30 stocks would have increased the original fund to $44,000. The concept of buying unpopular large companies and its execution on a group basis, as described above, are both quite simple. But in considering individual companies a special factor of opposite import must sometimes to be taken into account. Companies that are inherently speculative because of widely varying earnings tend to sell both at a relatively high price and at a relatively low multiplier in their good years, and conversely at low prices and high multipliers in their bad years. These relationships are illustrated in Table 7-3, covering fluctuations of Chrysler Corporation common. In these cases the market has sufficient skepticism as to the continuation of the unusually high profits to value them conservatively, and conversely when earnings are low or non-existent. Note that, by the arithmetic, if a company earns next to nothing its shares must sell at a high multiplier of these minuscule profits, as it happens Chrysler has been quite exceptional in the Dow Jones Industrial Average list of leading companies, and hence it did not greatly affect the low multiplier calculations. It would be quite easy to avoid inclusion of such anomalous issues in a low multiplier list by requiring also that the price be low in relation to past average earnings or by some similar test. While writing this revision we tested the results of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Low Multiplier Method applied to a group assumed to be bought at the end of 1968 and revalued on June 30, 1971. This time the figure is proved quite disappointing, showing a sharp loss for the low multiplier 6 or 10 and a good profit for the high multiplier selections. This one bad instance should not vitiate conclusions based on 30-odd experiments, but its recent happening gives it a special adverse weight. Perhaps the aggressive investor should start with the low multiplier idea, but add other quantitative and qualitative requirements thereto in making up his portfolio. We define a bargain issue as one which, on the basis of facts established by analysis, appears to be worth considerably more than it is selling for. The genus includes bonds and preferred stocks selling well under par, as well as common stocks. To be as concrete as possible, let us suggest that an issue is not a true bargain unless the indicated value is at least 50% more than the price. 
What kind of facts would warrant the conclusion that so great a discrepancy exists? How do bargains come into existence, and how does the investor profit from them? There are two tests by which a bargain common stock is detected. The first is by the method of appraisal. This relies largely on estimating future earnings and then multiplying these by a factor appropriate to the particular issue. If the resultant value is sufficiently above the market price, and if the investor has confidence in the technique employed, he can tag the stock as a bargain. The second test is the value of the business to a private owner. This value also is often determined chiefly by expected future earnings, in which case the result may be identical with the first. But in the second test more attention is likely to be paid to the realizable value of the assets, with particular emphasis on the net current assets or working capital. At low points in the general market a large proportion of common stocks are bargain issues, as measured by these standards. A typical example was General Motors when it sold at less than 30 in 1941, equivalent to only 5 for the 1971 shares. It had been earning in excess of $4 and paying $3.50, or more, in dividends. It is true that current earnings and the immediate prospects may both be poor, but a level-headed appraisal of average future conditions would indicate values far above ruling prices. Thus the wisdom of having courage in depressed markets is vindicated not only by the voice of experience but also by application of plausible techniques of value analysis. The same vagaries of the marketplace that recurrently establish a bargain condition in the general list account for the existence of many individual bargains at almost all market levels. The market is fond of making mountains out of molehills and exaggerating ordinary vicissitudes into major setbacks. Even a mere lack of interest or enthusiasm may impel a price decline to absurdly low levels. Thus we have what appear to be two major sources of undervaluation, 1, currently disappointing results and, 2, protracted neglect or unpopularity. However, neither of these causes, if considered by itself alone, can be relied on as a guide to successful common stock investment. How can we be sure that the currently disappointing results are indeed going to be only temporary? True, we can supply excellent examples of that happening. The steel stocks used to be famous for their cyclical quality and the shrewd buyer could acquire them at low prices when earnings were low and sell them out in boom years at a fine profit. A spectacular example is supplied by Chrysler Corporation, as shown by the data in Table 7-3. If this were the standard behavior of stocks with fluctuating earnings, then making profits in the stock market would be an easy matter. Unfortunately, we could cite many examples of declines in earnings and price which were not followed automatically by a handsome recovery of both. One such was Anaconda Wire and Cable which had large earnings up to 1956, with a high price of 85 in that year. The earnings then declined irregularly for six years, the price fell to 231 halves in 1962, and the following year it was taken over by its parent enterprise, Anaconda Corporation, at the equivalent of only 33. The many experiences of this type suggest that the investor would need more than a mere falling off in both earnings and price to give him a sound basis for purchase. He should require an indication of at least reasonable stability of earnings over the past decade or more, i.e., no year of earnings deficit, plus sufficient size and financial strength to meet possible setbacks in the future. The ideal combination here is thus that of a large and prominent company selling both well below its past average price and its past average price-slash-earnings multiplier. This would no doubt have ruled out most of the profitable opportunities in companies such as Chrysler since their low price years are generally accompanied by high price slash earnings ratios. But let us assure the reader now, and no doubt we shall do it again, that there is a world of difference between hindsight profits and real money profits. We doubt seriously whether the Chrysler type of roller coaster is a suitable medium for operations by our enterprising investor.
we have mentioned protracted neglect or unpopularity as a second cause of price declines to unduly low levels. A current case of this kind would appear to be National Presto Industries. In the bull market of 1968 it sold at a high of 45, which was only 8 times the $5.61 earnings for that year. The per share profits increased in both 1969 and 1970, but the price declined to only 21 in 1970. This was less than four times the record earnings in that year and less than its net current asset value. In March 1972 it was selling at 34, still only 51 halves times the last reported earnings, and at about its enlarged net current asset value. Another example of this type is provided currently by Standard Oil of California, a concern of major importance. In early 1972 it was selling at about the same price as 13 years before, say 56. Its earnings had been remarkably steady, with relatively small growth but with only one small decline over the entire period. Its book value was about equal to the market price. With this conservatively favorable 1958-71 record the company has never shown an average annual price as high as 15 times its current earnings. In early 1972 the price-slash-earnings ratio was only about 10. A third cause for an unduly low price for a common stock may be the market's failure to recognize its true earnings picture. Our classic example here is Northern Pacific Railway which in 1946-47 declined from 36 to 131 halves. The true earnings of the road in 1947 were close to $10 per share. The price of the stock was held down in great part by its $1 dividend. It was neglected also because much of its earnings power was concealed by accounting methods peculiar to railroads. The type of bargain issue that can be most readily identified is a common stock that sells for less than the company's net working capital alone, after deducting all prior obligations. This would mean that the buyer would pay nothing at all for the fixed assets, buildings, machinery, etc., or any goodwill items that might exist. Very few companies turn out to have an ultimate value less than the working capital alone, although scattered instances may be found. The surprising thing, rather, is that there have been so many enterprises obtainable which have been valued in the market on this bargain basis. A compilation made in 1957, when the market's level was by no means low, disclosed about 150 of such common stocks. In Table 7-4 to we summarize the result of buying, on December 31, 1957, one share of each of the 85 companies in that list for which data appeared in Standard & Poor's Monthly Stock Guide, and holding them for two years. By something of a coincidence, each of the groups advanced in the two years to somewhere in the neighborhood of the aggregate net current asset value. The gain for the entire portfolio in that period was 75%, against 50% for Standard & Poor's 425 industrials. What is more remarkable is that none of the issues showed significant losses, 7 held about even, and 78 showed appreciable gains. Our experience with this type of investment selection, on a diversified basis, was uniformly good for many years prior to 1957. It can probably be affirmed without hesitation that it constitutes a safe and profitable method of determining and taking advantage of undervalued situations. However, during the general market advance after 1957 the number of such opportunities became extremely limited, and many of those available were showing small operating profits or even losses. The market decline of 1969-70 produced a new crop of these sub-working capital stocks. We discuss this group in Chapter 15, on Stock Selection for the Enterprising Investor. Bargain Issue Pattern in Secondary Companies We have defined a secondary company as one that is not a leader in a fairly important industry. Thus it is usually one of the smaller concerns in its field, but it may equally well be the chief unit in an unimportant line. By way of exception, 
Any company that has established itself as a growth stock is not ordinarily considered secondary. In the great bull market of the 1920s relatively little distinction was drawn between industry leaders and other listed issues, provided the latter were of respectable size. The public felt that a middle-sized company was strong enough to weather storms and that it had a better chance for really spectacular expansion than one that was already of major dimensions. The Depression years 1931-32, however, had a particularly devastating impact on the companies below the first rank either in size or in inherent stability. As a result of that experience investors have since developed a pronounced preference for industry leaders and a corresponding lack of interest most of the time in the ordinary company of secondary importance. This has meant that the latter group have usually sold at much lower prices in relation to earnings and assets than have the former. It has meant further that in many instances the price has fallen so low as to establish the issue in the bargain class. When investors rejected the stocks of secondary companies, even though these sold at relatively low prices, they were expressing a belief or fear that such companies faced a dismal future. In fact, at least subconsciously, they calculated that any price was too high for them because they were heading for extinction, just as in 1929 the companion theory for the blue chips was that no price was too high for them because their future possibilities were limitless. Both of these views were exaggerations and were productive of serious investment errors. Actually, the typical middle-sized listed company is a large one when compared with the average privately owned business. There is no sound reason why such companies should not continue indefinitely in operation, undergoing the vicissitudes characteristic of our economy but earning on the whole a fair return on their invested capital. This brief review indicates that the stock market's attitude towards secondary companies tends to be unrealistic and consequently to create in normal times innumerable instances of major undervaluation. As it happens, the World War II period and the post-war boom were more beneficial to the smaller concerns than to the larger ones because then the normal competition for sales was suspended and the former could expand sales and profit margins more spectacularly. Thus by 1946 the market's pattern had completely reversed itself from that before the war. Whereas the leading stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average had advanced only 40% from the end of 1938 to the 1946 high, Standard & Poor's index of low-priced stocks had shot up no less than 280% in the same period. Speculators and many self-styled investors, with the proverbial short memories of people in the stock market, were eager to buy both old and new issues of unimportant companies at inflated levels. Thus the pendulum had swung clear to the opposite extreme. The very class of secondary issues that had formerly supplied by far the largest proportion of bargain opportunities was now presenting the greatest number of examples of over-enthusiasm and overvaluation. In a different way this phenomenon was repeated in 1961 and 1968 the emphasis now being placed on new offerings of the shares of small companies of less than secondary character, and on nearly all companies in certain favored fields such as electronics, computers, franchise concerns, and others. As was to be expected the ensuing market declines fell most heavily on these overvaluations. In some cases the pendulum swing may have gone as far as definite undervaluation. If most secondary issues tend normally to be undervalued, what reason has the investor to believe that he can profit from such a situation? For if it persists indefinitely, will he not always be in the same market position as when he bought the issue? The answer here is somewhat complicated. Substantial profits from the purchase of secondary companies at bargain prices arise in a variety of ways. First, the dividend return is relatively high. Second, the reinvested earnings are substantial in relation to the price paid and will ultimately affect the price. In a 5-7 to seven year period these advantages can bulk quite large in a well-selected list. Third. A bull market is ordinarily most generous to low-priced issues, thus it tends to raise the typical bargain issue to at least a reasonable level, 
Fourth, even during relatively featureless market periods a continuous process of price adjustment goes on, under which secondary issues that were undervalued may rise at least to the normal level for their type of security. Fifth, the specific factors that in many cases made for a disappointing record of earnings may be corrected by the advent of new conditions, or the adoption of new policies, or by a change in management. An important new factor in recent years has been the acquisition of smaller companies by larger ones, usually as part of a diversification program. In these cases the consideration paid has almost always been relatively generous, and much in excess of the bargain levels existing not long before. When interest rates were much lower than in 1970, the field of bargain issues extended to bonds and preferred stocks that sold at large discounts from the amount of their claim. Currently we have a different situation in which even well-secured issues sell at large discounts if carrying coupon rates of, say, 41 halves of a percent or less. Example, American Telephone and Telegraph 25-8S, do 1986, sold as low as 51 in 1970, Deer & Company 41-2S, do 1983, sold as low as 62. These may well turn out to have been bargain opportunities before very long, if ruling interest rates should decline substantially. For a bargain bond issue in the more traditional sense perhaps we shall have to turn once more to the first mortgage bonds of railroads now in financial difficulties, which sell in the 20s or 30s. Such situations are not for the inexpert investor, lacking a real sense of values in this area, he may burn his fingers. But there is an underlying tendency for market decline in this field to be overdone. Consequently the group as a whole offers an especially rewarding invitation to careful and courageous analysis. In the decade ending in 1948 the billion-dollar group of defaulted railroad bonds presented numerous and spectacular opportunities in this area. Such opportunities have been quite scarce since then, but they seem likely to return in the 1970s. Special Situations, or Workouts Not so long ago this was a field which could almost guarantee an attractive rate of return to those who knew their way around in it and this was true under almost any sort of general market situation. It was not actually forbidden territory to members of the general public. Some who had a flair for this sort of thing could learn the ropes and become pretty capable practitioners without the necessity of long academic study or apprenticeship. Others have been keen enough to recognize the underlying soundness of this approach and to attach themselves to bright young men who handled funds devoted chiefly to these special situations. But in recent years, for reasons we shall develop later, the field of arbitrages and workouts became riskier and less profitable. It may be that in years to come conditions in this field will become more propitious. In any case it is worthwhile outlining the general nature and origin of these operations, with one or two illustrative examples. The typical special situation has grown out of the increasing number of acquisitions of smaller firms by large ones, as the gospel of diversification of products has been adopted by more and more managements. It often appears good business for such an enterprise to acquire an existing company in the field it wishes to enter rather than to start a new venture from scratch. In order to make such acquisition possible, and to obtain acceptance of the deal by the required large majority of shareholders of the smaller company, it is almost always necessary to offer a price considerably above the current level. Such corporate moves have been producing interesting profit-making opportunities for those who have made a study of this field, and have good judgment fortified by ample experience. A great deal of money was made by shrewd investors not so many years ago through the purchase of bonds of railroads in bankruptcy, bonds which they knew would be worth much more than their cost when the railroads were finally reorganized. After promulgation of the plans of reorganization A when issued market for the new securities appeared. These could almost always be sold for considerably more than the cost of the old issues which were to be exchanged therefore. There were risks of non-consummation of the plans or of unexpected delays. 
but on the whole such arbitrage operations proved highly profitable. There were similar opportunities growing out of the breakup of public utility holding companies pursuant to 1935 legislation. Nearly all these enterprises proved to be worth considerably more when changed from holding companies to a group of separate operating companies. The underlying factor here is the tendency of the security markets to undervalue issues that are involved in any sort of complicated legal proceedings. An old Wall Street motto has been, never buy into a lawsuit. This may be sound advice to the speculator seeking quick action on his holdings. But the adoption of this attitude by the general public is bound to create bargain opportunities in the securities affected by it, since the prejudice against them holds their prices down to unduly low levels. The exploitation of special situations is a technical branch of investment which requires a somewhat unusual mentality and equipment. Probably only a small percentage of our enterprising investors are likely to engage in it, and this book is not the appropriate medium for expounding its complications. Broader Implications of Our Rules for Investment Investment policy, as it has been developed here, depends in the first place on a choice by the investor of either the defensive, passive, or aggressive, enterprising, role. The aggressive investor must have a considerable knowledge of security values, enough, in fact, to warrant viewing his security operations as equivalent to a business enterprise. There is no room in this philosophy for a middle ground, or a series of gradations, between the passive and aggressive status. Many, perhaps most, investors seek to place themselves in such an intermediate category, in our opinion that is a compromise that is more likely to produce disappointment than achievement. As an investor you cannot soundly become half a businessman, expecting thereby to achieve half the normal rate of business profits on your funds. It follows from this reasoning that the majority of security owners should elect the defensive classification. They do not have the time, or the determination, or the mental equipment to embark upon investing as a quasi-business. They should therefore be satisfied with the excellent return now obtainable from a defensive portfolio, and with even less, and they should stoutly resist the recurrent temptation to increase this return by deviating into other paths. The enterprising investor may properly embark upon any security operation for which his training and judgment are adequate and which appears sufficiently promising when measured by established business standards. In our recommendations and caveats for this group of investors we have attempted to apply such business standards. In those for the defensive investor we have been guided largely by the three requirements of underlying safety, simplicity of choice, and promise of satisfactory results, in terms of psychology as well as arithmetic. The use of these criteria has led us to exclude from the field of recommended investment a number of security classes that are normally regarded as suitable for various kinds of investors. These prohibitions were listed in our first chapter on p. 30. Let us consider a little more fully than before what is implied in these exclusions. We have advised against the purchase at full prices of three important categories of securities, 1, foreign bonds, 2, ordinary preferred stocks, and, 3, secondary common stocks, including, of course, original offerings of such issues. By full prices we mean prices close to par for bonds or preferred stocks, and prices that represent about the fair business value of the enterprise in the case of common stocks. The greater number of defensive investors are to avoid these categories regardless of price, the enterprising investor is to buy them only when obtainable at bargain prices, which we define as prices not more than two-thirds of the appraisal value of the securities. What would happen if all investors were guided by our advice in these matters? That question was considered in regard to foreign bonds, on p. 138, and we have nothing to add at this point. Investment-grade preferred stocks would be bought solely by corporations, such as insurance companies, which would benefit from the special income tax status of stock issues owned by them.
The most troublesome consequence of our policy of exclusion is in the field of secondary common stocks. If the majority of investors, being in the defensive class, are not to buy them at all, the field of possible buyers becomes seriously restricted. Furthermore, if aggressive investors are to buy them only at bargain levels, then these issues would be doomed to sell for less than their fair value, except to the extent that they were purchased unintelligently. This may sound severe and even vaguely unethical. Yet in truth we are merely recognizing what has actually happened in this area for the greater part of the past 40 years. Secondary issues, for the most part, do fluctuate about a central level which is well below their fair value. They reach and even surpass that value at times, but this occurs in the upper reaches of bull markets, when the lessons of practical experience would argue against the soundness of paying the prevailing prices for common stocks. Thus we are suggesting only that the aggressive investor recognize the facts of life as it is lived by secondary issues and that they accept the central market levels that are normal for that class as their guide in fixing their own levels for purchase. There is a paradox here, nevertheless. The average well-selected secondary company may be fully as promising as the average industrial leader. What the smaller concern lacks in inherent stability it may readily make up in superior possibilities of growth. Consequently it may appear illogical to many readers to term unintelligent the purchase of such secondary issues at their full enterprise value. We think that the strongest logic is that of experience. Financial history says clearly that the investor may expect satisfactory results, on the average, from secondary common stocks only if he buys them for less than their value to a private owner, that is, on a bargain basis. The last sentence indicates that this principle relates to the ordinary outside investor. Anyone who can control a secondary company or who is part of a cohesive group with such control, is fully justified in buying the shares on the same basis as if he were investing in a close corporation or other private business. The distinction between the position, and consequent investment policy, of insiders and of outsiders becomes more important as the enterprise itself becomes less important. It is a basic characteristic of a primary or leading company that a single detached share is ordinarily worth as much as a share in a controlling block. In secondary companies the average market value of a detached share is substantially less than its worth to a controlling owner. Because of this fact, the matter of shareholder management relations and of those between inside and outside shareholders tends to be much more important and controversial in the case of secondary than in that of primary companies. At the end of Chapter 5 we commented on the difficulty of making any hard and fast distinction between primary and secondary companies. The many common stocks in the boundary area may properly exhibit an intermediate price behavior. It would not be illogical for an investor to buy such an issue at a small discount from its indicated or appraisal value, on the theory that it is only a small distance away from a primary classification and that it may acquire such a rating unqualifiedly in the not-too-distant future. Thus the distinction between primary and secondary issues need not be made too precise, for, if it were, then a small difference in quality must produce a large differential and justified purchase price. In saying this we are admitting a middle ground in the classification of common stocks, although we counseled against such a middle ground in the classification of investors. Our reason for this apparent inconsistency is as follows, no great harm comes from some uncertainty of viewpoint regarding a single security, because such cases are exceptional and not a great deal is at stake in the matter. But the investor's choice as between the defensive or the aggressive status is of major consequence to him, and he should not allow himself to be confused or compromised in this basic decision. Chapter 8. The Investor and Market Fluctuations To the extent that the investor's funds are placed in high-grade bonds of relatively short maturity, say, of seven years or less, he will not be affected significantly by changes in market prices and need not take them into account. This applies also to his holdings. 
of U.S. savings bonds, which he can always turn in at his cost price or more, his longer-term bonds may have relatively wide price swings during their lifetimes, and his common stock portfolio is almost certain to fluctuate in value over any period of several years. The investor should know about these possibilities and should be prepared for them both financially and psychologically. He will want to benefit from changes in market levels, certainly through an advance in the value of his stock holdings as time goes on, and perhaps also by making purchases and sales at advantageous prices. This interest on his part is inevitable, and legitimate enough. But it involves the very real danger that it will lead him into speculative attitudes and activities. It is easy for us to tell you not to speculate, the hard thing will be for you to follow this advice. Let us repeat what we said at the outset, if you want to speculate do so with your eyes open, knowing that you will probably lose money in the end, be sure to limit the amount at risk and to separate it completely from your investment program. We shall deal first with the more important subject of price. Changes in common stocks, and pass later to the area of bonds. In Chapter 3 we supplied a historical survey of the stock market's action over the past hundred years. In this section we shall return to that material from time to time in order to see what the past record promises the investor, in either the form of long-term appreciation of a portfolio held relatively unchanged through successive rises and declines, or in the possibilities of buying near bear market lows and selling not too far below bull market highs. Market Fluctuations as a Guide to Investment Decisions Since common stocks, even of investment grade, are subject to recurrent and wide fluctuations in their prices, the intelligent investor should be interested in the possibilities of profiting from these pendulum swings. There are two possible ways by which he may try to do this, the way of timing and the way of pricing. By timing we mean the endeavor to anticipate the action of the stock market, to buy or hold when the future course is deemed to be upward, to sell or refrain from buying when the course is downward. By pricing we mean the endeavor to buy stocks when they are quoted below their fair value and to sell them when they rise above such value. A less ambitious form of pricing is the simple effort to make sure that when you buy you do not pay too much for your stocks. This may suffice for the defensive investor, whose emphasis is on long pull holding, but as such it represents an essential minimum of attention to market levels.1. We are convinced that the intelligent investor can derive satisfactory results from pricing of either type. We are equally sure that if he places his emphasis on timing, in the sense of forecasting, he will end up as a speculator and with a speculator's financial results. This distinction may seem rather tenuous to the layman, and it is not commonly accepted on Wall Street. As a matter of business practice, or perhaps of thoroughgoing conviction, the stockbrokers and the investment services seem wedded to the principle that both investors and speculators in common stocks should devote careful attention to market forecasts. The farther one gets from Wall Street, the more skepticism one will find, we believe, as to the pretensions of stock market forecasting or timing. The investor can scarcely take seriously the innumerable predictions which appear almost daily and are his for the asking. Yet in many cases he pays attention to them and even acts upon them. Why? Because he has been persuaded that it is important for him to form some opinion of the future course of the stock market, and because he feels that the brokerage or service forecast is at least more dependable than his own. We lack space here to discuss in detail the pros and cons of market forecasting. A great deal of brain power goes into this field, and undoubtedly some people can make money by being good stock market analysts. But it is absurd to think that the general public can ever make money out of market forecasts. For who will buy when the general public, at a given signal, rushes to sell out at a profit? If you, the reader, expect to get rich over the years by following some system or leadership in market forecasting, you must be expecting to try to do what countless others are aiming at, and to be able to do it better than your numerous competitors in the market.
There is no basis either in logic or in experience for assuming that any typical or average investor can anticipate market movements more successfully than the general public, of which he is himself a part. There is one aspect of the timing philosophy which seems to have escaped everyone's notice. Timing is of great psychological importance to the speculator because he wants to make his profit in a hurry. The idea of waiting a year before his stock moves up is repugnant to him. But a waiting period, as such, is of no consequence to the investor. What advantage is there to him in having his money uninvested until he receives some, presumably, trustworthy signal that the time has come to buy? He enjoys an advantage only if by waiting he succeeds in buying later at a sufficiently lower price to offset his loss of dividend income. What this means is that timing is of no real value to the investor unless it coincides with pricing, that is, unless it enables him to repurchase his shares at substantially under his previous selling price. In this respect the famous Dow theory for timing purchases and sales has had an unusual history. Briefly, this technique takes its signal to buy from a special kind of breakthrough of the stock averages on the upside, and its selling signal from a similar breakthrough on the downside. The calculated, not necessarily actual, results of using this method showed an almost unbroken series of profits and operations from 1897 to the early 1960s. On the basis of this presentation the practical value of the Dow theory would have appeared firmly established. The doubt, if any, would apply to the dependability of this published record as a picture of what a Dow theorist would actually have done in the market. A closer study of the figures indicates that the quality of the results shown by the Dow theory changed radically after 1938, a few years after the theory had begun to be taken seriously on Wall Street. Its spectacular achievement had been in giving a sell signal, at 306, about a month before the 1929 crash and in keeping its followers out of the long bear market until things had pretty well righted themselves, at 84, in 1933. But from 1938 on the Dow theory operated mainly by taking its practitioners out at a pretty good price but then putting them back in again at a higher price. For nearly 30 years thereafter, one would have done appreciably better by just buying and holding the Dow Jones Industrial Average. In our view, based on much study of this problem, the change in the Dow theory results is not accidental. It demonstrates an inherent characteristic of forecasting and trading formulas in the fields of business and finance. Those formulas that gain adherence and importance do so because they have worked well over a period, or sometimes merely because they have been plausibly adapted to the statistical record of the past. But as their acceptance increases, their reliability tends to diminish. This happens for two reasons, first, the passage of time brings new conditions which the old formula no longer fits. Second, in stock market affairs the popularity of a trading theory has itself an influence on the market's behavior which detracts in the long run from its profit-making possibilities. The popularity of something like the Dow theory may seem to create its own vindication, since it would make the market advance or decline by the very action of its followers when a buying or selling signal is given. A stampede of this kind is, of course, much more of a danger than an advantage to the public trader. Buy low sell high approach we are convinced that the average investor cannot deal successfully with price movements by endeavoring to forecast them. Can he benefit from them after they have taken place, i.e., by buying after each major decline and selling out after each major advance? The fluctuations of the market over a period of many years prior to 1950 lent considerable encouragement to that idea. In fact, a classic definition of a shrewd investor was one who bought in a bear market when everyone else was selling, and sold out in a bull market when everyone else was buying. If we examine our chart I, covering the fluctuations of the Standard & Poor's Composite Index between 1900 and 1970, and the supporting figures in Table 3 to 1, p. 66, we can readily see why this viewpoint appeared valid until fairly recent years. 
Between 1897 and 1949 there were 10 complete market cycles. Running from bear market low to bull market high and back to bear market low. Six of these took no longer than four years, four ran for six or seven years, and one, the famous new era cycle of 1921 to 1932, lasted 11 years. The percentage of advance from the lows to highs ranged from 44% to 500%, with most between about 50% and 100%. The percentage of subsequent declines ranged from 24% to 89%, with most found between 40% and 50%. It should be remembered that a decline of 50% fully offsets a preceding advance of 100%. Nearly all the bull markets had a number of well-defined characteristics in common, such as, 1, a historically high price level, 2, high price-slash-earnings ratios, 3, low dividend yields as against bond yields, 4, much speculation on margin, and, 5, many offerings of new common stock issues of poor quality. Thus to the student of stock market history it appeared that the intelligent investor should have been able to identify the recurrent bear and bull markets, to buy in the former and sell in the latter, and to do so for the most part at reasonably short intervals of time. Various methods were developed for determining buying and selling levels of the general market, based on either value of factors or percentage movements of prices or both. But we must point out that even prior to the unprecedented bull market that began in 1949, there were sufficient variations in the successive market cycles to complicate and sometimes frustrate the desirable process of buying low and selling high. The most notable of these departures, of course, was the great bull market of the late 1920s, which threw all calculations badly out of gear. Even in 1949, therefore, it was by no means a certainty that the investor could base his financial policies and procedures mainly on the endeavor to buy at low levels in bear markets and to sell out at high levels in bull markets. It turned out, in the sequel, that the opposite was true. The market's behavior in the past 20 years has not followed the former pattern, nor obeyed what once were well-established danger signals, nor permitted its successful exploitation by applying old rules for buying low and selling high. Whether the old, fairly regular bull and bear market pattern will eventually return we do not know. But it seems unrealistic to us for the investor to endeavor to base his present policy on the classic formula, i.e., to wait for demonstrable bear market levels before buying any common stocks. Our recommended policy has, however, made provision for changes in the proportion of common stocks to bonds in the portfolio, if the investor chooses to do so, according as the level of stock prices appears less or more attractive by value standards. Formula Plans In the early years of the stock market rise that began in 1949-50 considerable interest was attracted to various methods of taking advantage of the stock market cycles. These have been known as formula investment plans. The essence of all such plans, except the simple case of dollar averaging, is that the investor automatically does some selling of common stocks when the market advances substantially. In many of them a very large rise in the market level would result in the sale of all common stock holdings, others provided for a retention of a minor proportion of equities under all circumstances. This approach had the double appeal of sounding logical, and conservative, and of showing excellent results when applied retrospectively to the stock market over many years in the past. Unfortunately, its vogue grew greatest at the very time when it was destined to work least well. Many of the formula planners found themselves entirely or nearly out of the stock market at some level in the middle 1950s. True, they had realized excellent profits, but in a broad sense the market ran away from them thereafter, and their formulas gave them little opportunity to buy back a common stock position. There is a similarity between the experience of those adopting the formula investing approach in the early 1950s and those who embraced the purely mechanical version of the Dow theory some 20 years earlier. 
In both cases the advent of popularity marked almost the exact moment when the system ceased to work well. We have had a like discomforting experience with our own central value method of determining indicated buying and selling levels of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The moral seems to be that any approach to money making in the stock market which can be easily described and followed by a lot of people is by its terms too simple and too easy to last. Spinoza's concluding remark applies to Wall Street as well as to philosophy, all things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. Market Fluctuations of the Investor's Portfolio Every investor who owns common stocks must expect to see them fluctuate in value over the years. The behavior of the Dow Jones Industrial Average since our last edition was written in 1964 probably reflects pretty well what has happened to the stock portfolio of a conservative investor who limited his stock holdings to those of large, prominent, and conservatively financed corporations. The overall value advanced from an average level of about 890 to a high of 995 in 1966, and 985 again in 1968 fell to 631 in 1970, and made an almost full recovery to 940 in early 1971. Since the individual issues set their high and low marks at different times, the fluctuations in the Dow Jones group as a whole are less severe than those in the separate components, we have traced through the price fluctuations of other types of diversified and conservative common stock portfolios and we find that the overall results are not likely to be markedly different from the above. In general, the shares of second-line companies fluctuate more widely than the major ones, but this does not necessarily mean that a group of well-established but smaller companies will make a poorer showing over a fairly long period. In any case the investor may as well resign himself in advance to the probability rather than the mere possibility that most of his holdings will advance, say, 50% or more from their low point and decline the equivalent one-third or more from their high point at various periods in the next five years. A serious investor is not likely to believe that the day-to-day -day or even month-to-month -month fluctuations of the stock market make him richer or poorer. But what about the longer-term and wider changes? Here practical questions present themselves, and the psychological problems are likely to grow complicated. A substantial rise in the market is at once a legitimate reason for satisfaction and a cause for prudent concern, but it may also bring a strong temptation toward imprudent action. Your shares have advanced, good. You are richer than you were, good. But has the price risen too high, and should you think of selling? Or should you kick yourself for not having bought more shares when the level was lower? Or, worst thought of all, should you now give way to the bull market atmosphere, become infected with the enthusiasm, the overconfidence and the greed of the great public, of which, after all, you are a part, and make larger and dangerous commitments? Presented thus in print, the answer to the last question is a self-evident no, but even the intelligent investor is likely to need considerable willpower to keep from following the crowd. It is for these reasons of human nature, even more than by calculation of financial gain or loss, that we favor some kind of mechanical method for varying the proportion of bonds to stocks in the investor's portfolio. The chief advantage, perhaps, is that such a formula will give him something to do. As the market advances he will from time to time make sales out of his stock holdings, putting the proceeds into bonds, as it declines he will reverse the procedure. These activities will provide some outlet for his otherwise too pent-up energies. If he is the right kind of investor he will take added satisfaction from the thought that his operations are exactly opposite from those of the crowd. Business Valuations versus Stock Market Valuations The impact of market fluctuations upon the investor's true situation may be considered also from the standpoint of the shareholder as the part owner of various businesses. The holder of marketable shares actually has a double status, and with it the privilege of taking advantage of either it is choice. On the one hand his position is analogous to that of a minority shareholder or silent partner in a private business. 
here his results are entirely dependent on the profits of the enterprise or on a change in the underlying value of its assets. He would usually determine the value of such a private business interest by calculating his share of the net worth as shown in the most recent balance sheet. On the other hand, the common stock investor holds a piece of paper, an engraved stock certificate, which can be sold in a matter of minutes at a price which varies from moment to moment, when the market is open, that is, and often is far removed from the balance sheet value. The development of the stock market in recent decades has made the typical investor more dependent on the course of price quotations and less free than formerly to consider himself merely a business owner. The reason is that the successful enterprises in which he is likely to concentrate his holdings sell almost constantly at prices well above their net asset value, or book value, or balance sheet value. In paying these market premiums the investor gives precious hostages to fortune, for he must depend on the stock market itself to validate his commitments. This is a factor of prime importance in present-day investing, and it has received less attention than it deserves. The whole structure of stock market quotations contains a built-in contradiction. The better a company's record and prospects, the less relationship the price of its shares will have to their book value. But the greater the premium above book value, the less certain the basis of determining its intrinsic value, i.e., the more this value will depend on the changing moods and measurements of the stock market. Thus we reach the final paradox, that the more successful the company, the greater are likely to be the fluctuations in the price of its shares. This really means that, in a very real sense, the better the quality of a common stock, the more speculative it is likely to be, at least as compared with the unspectacular middle-grade issues. What we have said applies to a comparison of the leading growth companies with the bulk of well-established concerns, we exclude from our purview here those issues which are highly speculative because the businesses themselves are speculative. The argument made above should explain the often erratic price behavior of our most successful and impressive enterprises. Our favorite example is the monarch of them all, international business machines. The price of its shares fell from 607 to 307 months in 1962-63, after two splits its price fell from 387 to 219 in 1970. Similarly, Xerox, an even more impressive earnings gainer in recent decades, fell from 171 to 87 in 1962-63, and from 116 to 65 in 1970. These striking losses did not indicate any doubt about the future long-term growth of IBM or Xerox, they reflected instead a lack of confidence in the premium valuation that the stock market itself had placed on these excellent prospects. The previous discussion leads us to a conclusion of practical importance to the conservative investor in common stocks. If he is to pay some special attention to the selection of his portfolio, it might be best for him to concentrate on issues selling at a reasonably close approximation to their tangible asset value, say, at not more than one-third above that figure. Purchases made at such levels, or lower, may with logic be regarded as related to the company's balance sheet, and as having a justification or support independent of the fluctuating market prices. The premium over book value that may be involved can be considered as a kind of extra fee paid for the advantage of stock exchange listing and the marketability that goes with it. A caution is needed here. A stock does not become a sound investment merely because it can be bought at close to its asset value. The investor should demand, in addition, a satisfactory ratio of earnings to price, a sufficiently strong financial position, and the prospect that its earnings will at least be maintained over the years. This may appear like demanding a lot from a modestly priced stock, but the prescription is not hard to fill under all but dangerously high market conditions. Once the investor is willing to forego brilliant prospects, i.e., better than average expected growth, he will have no difficulty in finding a wide selection of issues meeting these criteria. In our chapters on the selection of common stocks, 
Chapters 14 and 15, we shall give data showing that more than half of the Dow Jones Industrial Average issues met our asset value criterion at the end of 1970. The most widely held investment of all, American Telephone and Tel. Actually sells below its tangible asset value as we write. Most of the line and power shares, in addition to their other advantages, are now, early 1972, available at prices reasonably close to their asset values. The investor with a stock portfolio having such book values behind it can take a much more independent and detached view of stock market fluctuations than those who have paid high multipliers of both earnings and tangible assets. As long as the earning power of his holdings remains satisfactory, he can give as little attention as he pleases to the vagaries of the stock market. More than that, at times he can use these vagaries to play the master game of buying low and selling high. The A&P Example At this point we shall introduce one of our original examples, which dates back many years but which has a certain fascination for us because it combines so many aspects of corporate and investment experience. It involves the Great Atlantic and Pacific D Company here is the story. A&P shares were introduced to trading on the curb market, now the American Stock Exchange, in 1929 and sold as high as 494. By 1932 they had declined to 104, although the company's earnings were nearly as large in that generally catastrophic year as previously. In 1936 the range was between 111 and 131. Then in the business recession and bear market of 1938 the shares fell to a new low of 36. That price was extraordinary. It meant that the preferred and common were together selling for $126 million, although the company had just reported that it held $85 million in cash alone and a working capital, or net current assets, of $134 million. A&P was the largest retail enterprise in America, if not in the world, with a continuous and impressive record of large earnings for many years. Yet in 1938 this outstanding business was considered on Wall Street to be worth less than its current assets alone which means less as a going concern than if it were liquidated. Why? First, because there were threats of special taxes on chain stores, second, because net profits had fallen off in the previous year, and, third, because the general market was depressed. The first of these reasons was an exaggerated and eventually groundless fear, the other two were typical of temporary influences. Let us assume that the investor had bought A&P Common in. 1937 at, say, 12 times its 5-year average earnings, or about 80. We are far from asserting that the ensuing decline to 36 was of no importance to him. He would have been well advised to scrutinize the picture with some care, to see whether he had made any miscalculations. But if the results of his study were reassuring, as they should have been, he was entitled then to disregard the market decline as a temporary vagary of finance, unless he had the funds and the courage to take advantage of it by buying more on the bargain basis offered. Sequel and Reflections the following year, 1939, A. and P. shares advanced to 1,171 halves, or three times the low price of 1938 and well above the average of 1937. Such a turnabout in the behavior of common stocks is by no means uncommon, but in the case of A and P. it was more striking than most. In the years after 1949 the grocery chain's shares rose with the general market until in 1961 the split-up stock, 10 for 1 reached a high of 701 halves which was equivalent to 705 for the 1938 shares. This price of 701 halves was remarkable for the fact it was 30 times the earnings of 1961. Such a price-slash-earnings ratio, which compares with 23 times for the Dow Jones Industrial Average in that year, must have implied expectations of a brilliant growth in earnings. 
This optimism had no justification in the company's earnings record in the preceding years, and it proved completely wrong. Instead of advancing rapidly, the course of earnings in the ensuing period was generally downward. The year after the 701 halves high the price fell by more than half to 34. But this time the shares did not have the bargain quality that they showed at the low quotation in 1938. After varying sorts of fluctuations the price fell to another low of 211 halves in 1970 and 18 in 1972, having reported the first quarterly deficit in its history. We see in this history how wide can be the vicissitudes of a major American enterprise in little more than a single generation, and also with what miscalculations and excesses of optimism and pessimism the public has valued its shares. In 1938 the business was really being given away, with no takers. In 1961 the public was clamoring for the shares at a ridiculously high price. After that came a quick loss of half the market value, and some years later a substantial further decline. In the meantime the company was to turn from an outstanding to a mediocre earnings performer, its profit in the boom year 1968 was to be less than in 1958, it had paid a series of confusing small stock dividends not warranted by the current additions to surplus, and so forth. A&P was a larger company in 1961 and 1972 than in 1938, but not as well run, not as profitable, and not as attractive. There are two chief morals to this story. The first is that the stock market often goes far wrong, and sometimes an alert and courageous investor can take advantage of its patent errors. The other is that most businesses change in character and quality over the years, sometimes for the better, perhaps more often for the worse. The investor need not watch his company's performance like a hawk, but he should give it a good, hard look from time to time. Let us return to our comparison between the holder of marketable shares and the man with an interest in a private business. We have said that the former has the option of considering himself merely as the part owner of the various businesses he has invested in, or as the holder of shares which are saleable at any time he wishes at their quoted market price. But note this important fact. The true investor scarcely ever is forced to sell his shares, and at all other times he is free to disregard the current price quotation. He need pay attention to it and act upon it only to the extent that it suits his book, and no more. Thus the investor who permits himself to be stampeded or unduly worried by unjustified market declines in his holdings is perversely transforming his basic advantage into a basic disadvantage. That man would be better off if his stocks had no market quotation at all for he would then be spared the mental anguish caused him by other person's mistakes of judgment. Incidentally, a widespread situation of this kind actually existed during the Dark Depression days of 1931 to 1933. There was then a psychological advantage in owning business interests that had no quoted market. For example, people who owned first mortgages on real estate that continued to pay interest were able to tell themselves that their investments had kept their full value, there being no market quotations to indicate otherwise. On the other hand, Many listed corporation bonds of even better quality and greater underlying strength suffered severe shrinkages in their market quotations, thus making their owners believe they were growing distinctly poorer. In reality the owners were better off with the listed securities, despite the low prices of these. For if they had wanted to, or were compelled to, they could at least have sold the issues, possibly to exchange them for even better bargains. Or they could just as logically have ignored the market's action as temporary and basically meaningless. But it is self-deception to tell yourself that you have suffered no shrinkage in value merely because your securities have no quoted market at all. Returning to our A&P shareholder in 1938, we assert that as long as he held on to his shares he suffered no loss in their price decline, beyond what his own judgment may have told him was occasioned by a shrinkage in their underlying or intrinsic value. If no such shrinkage had occurred, 
he had a right to expect that in due course the market quotation would return to the 1937 level or better, as in fact it did the following year. In this respect his position was at least as good as if he had owned an interest in a private business with no quoted market for its shares. For in that case, too, he might or might not have been justified in mentally lopping off part of the cost of his holdings because of the impact of the 1938 recession, depending on what had happened to his company. Critics of the value approach to stock investment argue that listed common stocks cannot properly be regarded or appraised in the same way as an interest in a similar private enterprise, because the presence of an organized security market injects into equity ownership the new and extremely important attribute of liquidity. But what this liquidity really means is, first, that the investor has the benefit of the stock market's daily and changing appraisal of his holdings, for whatever that appraisal may be worth, and, second, that the investor is able to increase or decrease his investment at the market's daily figure, if he chooses. Thus the existence of a quoted market gives the investor certain options that he does not have if his security is unquoted. But it does not impose the current quotation on an investor who prefers to take his idea of value from some other source. Let us close this section with something in the nature of a parable. Imagine that in some private business you own a small share that cost you $1,000. One of your partners, named Mr. Market, is very obliging indeed. Every day he tells you what he thinks your interest is worth and furthermore offers either to buy you out or to sell you an additional interest on that basis. Sometimes his idea of value appears plausible and justified by business developments and prospects as you know them. Often, on the other hand, Mr. Market lets his enthusiasm or his fears run away with him, and the value he proposes seems to you a little short of silly. If you are a prudent investor or a sensible businessman, Will you let Mr. Market's daily communication determine your view of the value of the $1,000 interest in the enterprise? Only in case you agree with him, or in case you want to trade with him. You may be happy to sell out to him when he quotes you a ridiculously high price, and equally happy to buy from him when his price is low. But the rest of the time you will be wiser to form your own ideas of the value of your holdings, based on full reports from the company about its operations and financial position. The true investor is in that very position when he owns a listed common stock. He can take advantage of the daily market price or leave it alone, as dictated by his own judgment and inclination. He must take cognizance of important price movements, for otherwise his judgment will have nothing to work on. Conceivably they may give him a warning signal which he will do well to heed, this in plain English means that he is to sell his shares because the price has gone down, foreboding worse things to come. In our view such signals are misleading at least as often as they are helpful. Basically, price fluctuations have only one significant meaning for the true investor. They provide him with an opportunity to buy wisely when prices fall sharply and to sell wisely when they advance a great deal. At other times he will do better if he forgets about the stock market and pays attention to his dividend returns and to the operating results of his companies. Summary the most realistic distinction between the investor and the speculator is found in their attitude toward stock market movements. The speculator's primary interest lies in anticipating and profiting from market fluctuations. The investor's primary interest lies in acquiring and holding suitable securities at suitable prices. Market movements are important to him in a practical sense, because they alternately create low price levels at which he would be wise to buy and high price levels at which he certainly should refrain from buying and probably would be wise to sell. It is far from certain that the typical investor should regularly hold off buying until low market levels appear, because this may involve a long wait, very likely the loss of income, and the possible missing of investment opportunities. On the whole it may be better for the investor to do a stock buying whenever he has money to put in stocks, except when the general market level is much higher than can be justified by well-established standards of value.
If he wants to be shrewd he can look for the ever-present bargain opportunities in individual securities. Aside from forecasting the movements of the general market, much effort and ability are directed on Wall Street toward selecting stocks or industrial groups that in matter of price will do better than the rest over a fairly short period in the future. Logical as this endeavor may seem, we do not believe it is suited to the needs or temperament of the true investor, particularly since he would be competing with a large number of stock market traders and first-class financial analysts who are trying to do the same thing. As in all other activities that emphasize price movements first and underlying values second. The work of many intelligent minds constantly engaged in this field tends to be self-neutralizing and self-defeating over the years. The investor with a portfolio of sound stocks should expect their prices to fluctuate and should neither be concerned by sizable declines nor become excited by sizable advances. He should always remember that market quotations are there for his convenience, either to be taken advantage of or to be ignored. He should never buy a stock because it has gone up or sell one because it has gone down. He would not be far wrong if this motto read more simply, never buy a stock immediately after a substantial rise or sell one immediately after a substantial drop. Something should be said about the significance of average market prices as a measure of managerial competence. The shareholder judges whether his own investment has been successful in terms both of dividends received and of the long-range trend of the average market value. The same criteria should logically be applied in testing the effectiveness of a company's management and the soundness of its attitude toward the owners of the business. This statement may sound like a truism, but it needs to be emphasized. For as yet there is no accepted technique or approach by which management is brought to the bar of market opinion. On the contrary, managements have always insisted that they have no responsibility of any kind for what happens to the market value of their shares. It is true, of course, that they are not accountable for those fluctuations in price which, as we have been insisting, bear no relationship to underlying conditions and values. But it is only the lack of alertness and intelligence among the rank and file of shareholders that permits this immunity to extend to the entire realm of market quotations, including the permanent establishment of a depreciated and unsatisfactory price level. Good managements produce a good average market price, and bad managements produce bad market prices. Fluctuations in Bond Prices the investor should be aware that even though safety of its principal and interest may be unquestioned, a long-term bond could vary widely in market price in response to changes in interest rates. In Table A to 1 we give data for various years back to 1902 covering yields for high-grade corporate and tax-free issues. As individual illustrations we add the price fluctuations of two representative railroad issues for a similar period. These are the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe General Mortgage 4s, to 1995, for generations one of our premier non-callable bond issues, and the Northern Pacific Rye. Threes, due 2047, originally a 150-year maturity. Long a typical bearded bond. Because of their inverse relationship the low yields correspond to the high prices and vice versa. The decline in the Northern Pacific Threes in 1940 represented mainly doubts as to the safety of the issue. It is extraordinary that the price recovered to an all-time high in the next few years, and then lost two-thirds of its price chiefly because of the rise in general interest rates. There have been startling variations, as well, in the price of even the highest-grade bonds in the past 40 years. Note that bond prices do not fluctuate in the same, inverse, proportion as the calculated yields, because their fixed maturity value of 100% exerts a moderating influence. However, for very long maturities, as in our Northern Pacific example, prices and yields change at close to the same rate. Since 1964 record movements in both directions have taken place in the high-grade bond market. Taking prime municipals, tax-free, as an example, their yield more than doubled, 
from 3.2% in January 1965 to 7% in June 1970. Their price index declined, correspondingly, from 110.8 to 67.5. In mid-1970 the yields on high-grade long-term bonds were higher than at any time in the nearly 200 years of this country's economic history. 25 years earlier, just before our protracted bull market began, bond yields were at their lowest point in history, long-term municipals returned as little as 1%, and industrials gave 2.40% compared with the 41 halves to 5% formerly considered normal. Those of us with a long experience on Wall Street had seen Newton's law of action and reaction, equal and opposite work itself out repeatedly in the stock market, the most noteworthy example being the rise in the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 64 in 1921 to 381 in 1929, followed by a record collapse to 41 in 1932. But this time the widest pendulum swings took place in the usually state and slow-moving array of high-grade bond prices and yields. Moral Nothing important on Wall Street can be counted on to occur exactly in the same way as it happened before. This represents the first half of our favorite dictum, the more it changes, the more it's the same thing. If it is virtually impossible to make worthwhile predictions about the price movements of stocks, it is completely impossible to do so for bonds. In the old days, at least, one could often find a useful clue to the coming end of a bull or bear market by studying the prior action of bonds but no similar clues were given to a coming change in interest rates and bond prices. Hence the investor must choose between long-term and short-term bond investments on the basis chiefly of his personal preferences. If he wants to be certain that the market values will not decrease, his best choices are probably U.S. savings bonds, Series E or H, which were described above, p. 93. Either issue will give him a 5% yield, after the first year the Series E for up to 55 sixths years, the Series H for up to 10 years, with a guaranteed resale value of cost or better. If the investor wants the 7.5% now available on good long-term corporate bonds, or the 5.3% on tax-free municipals, he must be prepared to see them fluctuate in price. Banks and insurance companies have the privilege of valuing high-rated bonds of this type on the mathematical basis of amortized cost which disregards market prices, it would not be a bad idea for the individual investor to do something similar. The price fluctuations of convertible bonds and preferred stocks are the resultant of three different factors, 1, variations in the price of the related common stock, 2, variations in the credit standing of the company, and, 3, variations in general interest rates. A good many of the convertible issues have been sold by companies that have credit ratings well below the best. Three some of these were badly affected by the financial squeeze in 1970. As a result, convertible issues as a whole have been subjected to triply unsettling influences in recent years, and price variations have been unusually wide. In the typical case, therefore, the investor would delude himself if he expected to find in convertible issues that ideal combination of the safety of a high-grade bond and price protection plus a chance to benefit from an advance in the price of the common. This may be a good place to make a suggestion about the long-term bond of the future. Why should not the effects of changing interest rates be divided on some practical and equitable basis between the borrower and the lender? One possibility would be to sell long-term bonds with interest payments that vary with an appropriate index of the going rate. The main results of such an arrangement would be, 1, the investor's bond would always have a principal value of about 100, if the company maintains its credit rating, but the interest received will vary, say, with the rate offered on conventional new issues. 2, the corporation would have the advantages of long-term debt, being spared problems and costs of frequent renewals of refinancing, but its interest costs would change from year to year.
Over the past decade the bond investor has been confronted by an increasingly serious dilemma, shall he choose complete stability of principal value, but with varying and usually low, short-term, interest rates? Or shall he choose a fixed interest income, with considerable variations, usually downward, it seems, in his principal value? It would be good for most investors if they could compromise between these extremes, and be assured that neither their interest return nor their principal value will fall below a stated minimum over, say, a 20-year period. This could be arranged, without great difficulty, in an appropriate bond contract of a new form. Important note, in effect the US government has done a similar thing in its combination of the original savings bonds contracts with their extensions at higher interest rates. The suggestion we make here would cover a longer fixed investment period than the savings bonds, and would introduce more flexibility in the interest rate provisions. It is hardly worthwhile to talk about non-convertible preferred stocks, since their special tax status makes the safe ones much more desirable holdings by corporations, for example, insurance companies, than by individuals. The poorer quality ones almost always fluctuate over a wide range, percentage-wise, not too differently from common stocks. We can offer no other useful remark about them. Table 16 to 2 below, p. 406, gives some information on the price changes of lower grade non convertible preferreds between December 1968 and December 1970. The average decline was 17%, against 11.3% for the SP Composite Index of Common Stocks. Chapter 9 Investing in Investment Funds. One course open to the defense of investor is to put his money into investment company shares. Those that are redeemable on demand by the holder, at net asset value, are commonly known as mutual funds, or open-end funds. Most of these are actively selling additional shares through a core of salesmen. Those with non-redeemable shares are called closed-end companies or funds, the number of their shares remains relatively constant. All of the funds of any importance are registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, and are subject to its regulations and controls. The industry is a very large one. At the end of 1970 there were 383 funds registered with the SEC, having assets totaling $54.60 billions. Of these 356 companies, with $50.60 billions, were mutual funds, and 27 companies with $4 billions, were closed-end. There are different ways of classifying the funds. One is by the broad division of their portfolio, they are balanced funds if they have a significant, generally about one-third, component of bonds or stock funds if their holdings are nearly all common stocks. There are some other varieties here, such as bond funds, hedge funds, letter stock funds, etc. Another is by their objectives, as their primary aim is for income, price stability, or capital appreciation, growth. Another distinction is by their method of sale. Load funds add a selling charge, generally about 9% of asset value on minimum purchases, to the value before charge. One others, known as no-load funds, make no such charge, the managements are content with the usual investment council fees for handling the capital. Since they cannot pay salesmen's commissions, the size of the no-load funds tends to be on the low side. The buying and selling prices of the closed-end funds are not fixed by the companies, but fluctuate in the open market as does the ordinary corporate stock. Most of the companies operate under special provisions of the income tax law, designed to relieve the shareholders from double taxation on their earnings. In effect, the funds must pay out virtually all their ordinary income, i.e., dividends and interest received, less expenses. In addition they can pay out their realized long-term profits on sales of investments, in the form of capital gains dividends which are treated by the shareholder as if they were his own security profits. There is another option here, 
which we emit to avoid clutter, nearly all the funds have but one class of security outstanding. A new wrinkle, introduced in 1967, divides the capitalization into a preferred issue, which will receive all the ordinary income, and a capital issue, or common stock, which will receive all the profits on security sales. These are called dual-purpose funds. Many of the companies that state their primary aim is for capital gains concentrate on the purchase of the so-called growth stocks, and they often have the word growth in their name. Some specialize in a designated area such as chemicals, aviation, overseas investments, this is usually indicated in their titles. The investor who wants to make an intelligent commitment in fund shares has thus a large and somewhat bewildering variety of choices before him, not too different from those offered in direct investment. In this chapter we shall deal with some major questions, viz. 1. Is there any way by which the investor can assure himself of better than average results by choosing the right funds? Sub-question, what about the performance funds? 2. If not, how can he avoid choosing funds that will give him worse than average results? 3. Can he make intelligent choices between different types of funds, for example, balanced versus all stock, open-end versus closed-end, load versus no load? Investment Fund Performance as a Whole before trying to answer these questions we should say something about the performance of the fund industry as a whole. Has it done a good job for its shareholders? In the most general way, how have fund investors fared as against those who made their investments directly? We are quite certain that the funds in the aggregate have served a useful purpose. They have promoted good habits of savings and investment, they have protected countless individuals against costly mistakes in the stock market, they have brought their participants' income and profits commensurate with the overall returns from common stocks. On a comparative basis we would hazard the guess that the average individual who put his money exclusively in investment fund shares in the past 10 years has fared better than the average person who made his common stock purchases directly. The last point is probably true even though the actual performance of the fund seems to have been no better than that of common stocks as a whole, and even though the cost of investing in mutual funds may have been greater than that of direct purchases. The real choice of the average individual has not been between constructing and acquiring a well-balanced common stock portfolio or doing the same thing, a bit more expensively, by buying into the funds. More likely his choice has been between succumbing to the wiles of the doorbell ringing mutual fund salesmen on the one hand, as against succumbing to the even wilier and much more dangerous peddlers of second and third-rate new offerings. We cannot help thinking, do that the average individual who opens a brokerage account with the idea of making conservative common stock investments is likely to find himself beset by untoward influences in the direction of speculation and speculative losses, these temptations should be much less for the mutual fund buyer. But how have the investment funds performed as against the general market? This is a somewhat controversial subject, but we shall try to deal with it in simple but adequate fashion. Table 9 to 1 gives some calculated results for 1961 to 1970 of our 10 largest stock funds at the end of 1970, but choosing only the largest one from each management group. It summarizes the overall return of each of these funds for 1961 to 1965, 1966 to 1970, and for the single years. 1969 and 1970. We also give average results based on the sum of one share of each of the 10 funds. These companies had combined assets of over $15 billion at the end of 1969, or about one-third of all the common stock funds. Thus they should be fairly representative of the industry as a whole. In theory, there should be a bias in this list on the side of better than industry performance, since these better companies should have been entitled to more rapid expansion than the others, but this may not be the case in practice. Some interesting facts can be gathered from this table. First, 
we find that the overall results of these 10 funds for 1961 to 1970 were not appreciably different from those of the Standard & Poor's 500 stock composite average, or the S&P 425 industrial stock average. But they were definitely better than those of the Dow Jones industrial average. This raises the intriguing question as to why the 30 giants in the Dow Jones Industrial Average did worse than the much more numerous and apparently rather miscellaneous list used by Standard & Poor's. A second point is that the fund's aggregate performance as against the S&P index has improved somewhat in the last five years, compared with the preceding five. The fund's gain ran a little lower than S&P's in 1961 to 1965 and a little higher than S&P's in 1966 to 1970. The third point is that a wide difference exists between the results of the individual funds. We do not think the mutual fund industry can be criticized for doing no better than the market as a whole. Their managers and their professional competitors administer so large a portion of all marketable common stocks that what happens to the market as a whole must necessarily happen, approximately, to the sum of their funds. Note that the trust assets of insured commercial banks included $181 billion of common stocks at the end of 1969. If we add to this the common stocks and accounts handled by investment advisors, plus the $56 billion of mutual and similar funds, we must conclude that the combined decisions of these professionals pretty well determine the movements of the stock averages, and that the movement of the stock averages pretty well determines the fund's aggregate results. Are there better than average funds and can the investor select these so as to obtain superior results for himself? Obviously all investors could not do this, since in that case we would soon be back where we started with no one doing better than anyone else. Let us consider the question first in a simplified fashion. Why shouldn't the investor find out what fund has made the best showing of the lot over a period of sufficient years in the past, assume from this that its management is the most capable and will therefore do better than average in the future, and put his money in that fund. This idea appears the more practicable because, in the case of the mutual funds, he could obtain this most capable management without paying any special premium for it as against the other funds. By contrast, among non-investment corporations the best managed companies sell at correspondingly high prices in relation to their current earnings and assets. The evidence on this point has been conflicting over the years. But our table 9 to 1 covering the 10 largest funds indicates that the results shown by the top 5 performers of 1961 to 1965 carried over on the whole through 1966 to 1970, even though two of this set did not do as well as two of the other five. Our studies indicate that the investor in mutual fund shares may properly consider comparative performance over a period of years in the past, say at least five, provided the data do not represent a large net upward movement of the market as a whole. In the latter case spectacularly favorable results may be achieved in unorthodox ways, as will be demonstrated in our following section on performance funds. Such results in themselves may indicate only that the fund managers are taking undue speculative risks, and getting away with same for the time being. Performance funds. One of the new phenomena of recent years was the appearance of the cult of performance in the management of investment funds, and even of many trust funds. We must start this section with the important disclaimer that it does not apply to the large majority of well established funds, but only to a relatively small section of the industry which has attracted a disproportionate amount of attention. The story is simple enough. Some of those in charge set out to get much better than average, or Dow Jones Industrial Average, results. They succeeded in doing this for a while, garnering considerable publicity and additional funds to manage. The aim was legitimate enough, unfortunately, it appears that, in the context of investing really sizable funds, the aim cannot be accomplished without incurring sizable risks. And in a comparatively short time the risks came home to roost. 
Several of the circumstances surrounding the performance phenomenon caused ominous headshaking by those of us whose experience went far back, even to the 1920s, and whose views, for that very reason, were considered old-fashioned and irrelevant to this, second, new era. In the first place, and on this very point, nearly all these brilliant performers were young men, in their 30s and 40s, whose direct financial experience was limited to the all-but-continuous bull market of 1948 to 1968. Secondly, they often acted as if the definition of a sound investment was a stock that was likely to have a good rise in the market in the next few months. This led to large commitments in newer ventures at prices completely disproportionate to their assets or recorded earnings. They could be justified only by a combination of naive hope in the future accomplishments of these enterprises with an apparent shrewdness in exploiting the speculative enthusiasms of the uninformed and greedy public. This section will not mention people's names. But we have every reason to give concrete examples of companies. The performance fund most in the public eye was undoubtedly Manhattan Fund Incorporated, organized at the end of 1965. Its first offering was of 27 million shares at $9.25 to $10 per share. The company started out with $247 million of capital. Its emphasis was, of course, on capital gains. Most of its funds were invested in issues selling at high multipliers of current earnings, paying no dividends, or very small ones, with a large speculative following and spectacular price movements. The fund showed an overall gain of 38.6% in 1967, against 11% for the S&P Composite Index. But thereafter its performance left much to be desired, as is shown in Table 9-2. The portfolio of Manhattan Fund at the end of 1969 was unorthodox to say the least. It is an extraordinary fact that two of its largest investments were in companies that filed for bankruptcy within six months thereafter, and a third faced creditors' actions in 1971. It is another extraordinary fact that shares of at least one of these doomed companies were bought not only by investment funds but by university endowment funds, the trust departments of large banking institutions, and the like. A third extraordinary fact was that the founder-manager of Manhattan Fund sold his stock in a separately organized management company to another large concern for over $20 million in its stock, at that time the management company sold had less than $1 million in assets. This is undoubtedly one of the greatest disparities of all times between the results for the manager and the managers. A book published at the end of 19,692 provided profiles of nine. Teen men who were tops at the demanding game of managing billions of dollars of other people's money. The summary told us further that they are young, some earn more than a million dollars a year, they are a new financial breed, they all have a total fascination with the market, and a spectacular knack for coming up with winners. A fairly good idea of the accomplishments of this top group can be obtained by examining the published results of the funds they manage. Such results are available for funds directed by 12 of the 19 persons described in the money managers. Typically enough, they showed up well in 1966, and brilliantly in 1967. In 1968 their performance was still good in the aggregate, but mixed as to individual funds. In 1969 they all showed losses, with only one managing to do a bit better than the S&P Composite Index. In 1970 their comparative performance was even worse than in 1969. We have presented this picture in order to point a moral, which perhaps can best be expressed by the old French proverb, plus a change, plus c'est la même chose. Bright, energetic people, usually quite young, had promised to perform miracles with other people's money since time immemorial. They have usually been able to do it for a while, or at least to appear to have done it, and they have inevitably brought losses to their public in the end. About a half century ago the miracles were often accompanied by flagrant manipulation, misleading corporate reporting, 
outrageous capitalization structures, and other semi-fraudulent financial practices. All this brought on an elaborate system of financial controls by the SEC, as well as a cautious attitude toward common stocks on the part of the general public. The operations of the new money managers in 1965-1969 came a little more than one full generation after the shenanigans of 1926-1929. The specific malpractices banned after the 1929 crash were no longer resorted to, they involved the risk of jail sentences. But in many corners of Wall Street they were replaced by newer gadgets and gimmicks that produced very similar results in the end. Outright manipulation of prices disappeared. But there were many other methods of drawing the gullible public's attention to the profit possibilities and hot issues. Blocks of letter stock 3 could be bought well below the quoted market price, subject to undisclosed restrictions on their sale, they could immediately be carried in the reports at their full market value, showing a lovely and illusory profit. And so on. It is amazing how, in a completely different atmosphere of regulation and prohibitions, Wall Street was able to duplicate so much of the excesses and errors of the 1920s. No doubt there will be new regulations and new prohibitions. The specific abuses of the late 1960s will be fairly adequately banned from Wall Street. But it is probably too much to expect that the urge to speculate will ever disappear, or that the exploitation of that urge can ever be abolished. It is part of the armament of the intelligent investor to know about these extraordinary popular delusions, for and to keep as far away from them as possible. The picture of most of the performance funds is a poor one if we start after their spectacular record in 1967. With the 1967 figures included, their overall showing is not at all disastrous. On that basis one of the money manager's operators did quite a bit better than the S&P Composite Index, 3 did distinctly worse, and 6 did about the same. Let us take as a check another group of performance funds, the 10 that made the best showing in 1967, with gains ranging from 84% up to 301% in that single year. Of these, 4 gave a better overall 4-year performance than the S&P index, if the 1967 gains are included, and 2 excelled the index in 1968-1970. None of these funds was large, and the average size was about $60 million. Thus, there is a strong indication that smaller size is a necessary factor for obtaining continued outstanding results. The foregoing account contains the implicit conclusion that there may be special risks involved in looking for superior performance by investment fund managers. All financial experience up to now indicates that large funds, soundly managed, can produce at best only slightly better than average results over the years. If they are unsoundly managed they can produce spectacular, but largely illusory, profits for a while followed inevitably by calamitous losses. There have been instances of funds that have consistently outperformed the market averages for, say, 10 years or more. But these have been scarce exceptions, having most of their operations in specialized fields, with self-imposed limits on the capital employed, and not actively sold to the public. Closed-end versus open-end funds Almost all the mutual funds or open-end funds, which offer their holders the right to cash in their shares at each day's valuation of the portfolio, have a corresponding machinery for selling new shares. By this means most of them have grown in size over the years. The closed-end companies, nearly all of which were organized a long time ago, have a fixed capital structure, and thus have diminished in relative dollar importance. Open-end companies are being sold by many thousands of energetic and persuasive salesmen, the closed-end shares have no one especially interested in distributing them. Consequently it has been possible to sell most mutual funds to the public at a fixed premium of about 9% above net asset value, to cover salesmen's commissions, etc., while the majority of close-end shares have been consistently obtainable at less than their asset value. 
This price discount has varied among individual companies, and the average discount for the group as a whole has also varied from one day to another. Figures on this point for 1961-1970 are given in Table 9-3. It does not take much shrewdness to suspect that the lower relative price for closed-end is against open-end shares has very little to do with the difference in the overall investment results between the two groups. That this is true is indicated by the comparison of the annual results for 1961-1970 of the two groups included in Table 9-3. Thus we arrive at one of the few clearly evident rules for investors' choices. If you want to put money in investment funds, buy a group of closed-end shares at a discount of, say, 10% to 15% from asset value, instead of paying a premium of about 9% above asset value for shares of an open-end company. Assuming that the future dividends and changes in asset values continue to be about the same for the two groups, you will thus obtain about one-fifth more for your money from the closed-end shares. The mutual fund salesman will be quick to counter with the argument, ah, but if you own closed-end shares you can never be sure what price you can sell them for. The discount can be greater than it is today, and you will suffer from the wider spread. With our shares you are guaranteed the right to turn in your shares at 100% of asset value, nevertheless. Let us examine this argument a bit, it will be a good exercise in logic and plain common sense. Question, assuming that the discount on closed-end shares does widen, how likely is it that you will be worse off with those shares than with an otherwise equivalent purchase of open-end shares? This calls for a little arithmetic. Assume that investor A buys some open-end shares at 109% of asset value, and investor B buys closed-end shares at 85% thereof, plus 11 halves of a percent commission. Both sets of shares earn and pay 30% of this asset value in, say, 4 years, and end up with the same value as at the beginning. Investor A redeems his shares at 100% of value, losing the 9% premium he paid. His overall return for the period is 30% less 9%, or 21% on asset value. This, in turn, is 19% on his investment. How much must investor B realize on his closed-end shares to obtain the same return on his investment as investor A? The answer is 73%, or a discount of 27% from asset value. In other words, the closed-end man could suffer a widening of 12 points in the market discount, about double, before his return would get down to that of the open-end investor. An adverse change of this magnitude has happened rarely, if ever, in the history of closed-end shares. Hence it is very unlikely that you will obtain a lower overall return from a, representative, closed-end company, bought at a discount if its investment performance is about equal to that of a representative mutual fund. If a small load, or no load, fund is substituted for one with the usual 81 halves of a percent load, the advantage of the closed-end investment is of course reduced, but it remains an advantage. The fact that a few closed-end funds are selling at premiums greater than the true 9% charge on most mutual funds introduces a separate question for the investor. Do these premium companies enjoy superior management of sufficient proven worth to warrant their elevated prices? If the answer is sought in the comparative results for the past 5 or 10 years, the answer would appear to be no. Three of the six premium companies have mainly foreign investments. A striking feature of these is the large variation in prices in a few years' time, at the end of 1971 sold at only on a quarter of its high, another at a third, another at less than half. If we consider the three domestic companies selling above asset value, we find that the average of their 10-year overall returns was somewhat better than that of 10 discount funds, but the opposite was true in the last five years. A comparison of the 1961-1970 record of Lehman Corporation and of General American Investors, two of our oldest and largest closed-end companies, is given in Table 9-5.
One of these sold 14% above and the other 7.6% below its net asset value at the end of 1970. The difference in price to net asset relationships did not appear warranted by these figures. Investment in balanced funds the 23 balanced funds covered in the Wiesenberger report had between 25% and 59% of their assets in preferred stocks and bonds, the average being just 40%. The balance was held in common stocks. It would appear more logical for the typical investor to make his bond-type investments directly, rather than to have them form part of a mutual fund commitment. The average income return shown by these balanced funds in 1970 was only 3.9% per annum on asset value or say 3.6% on the offering price. The better choice for the bond component would be the purchase of United States savings bonds, or corporate bonds rated A or better, or tax-free bonds, for the investor's bond portfolio. Chapter 10. The Investor and His Advisors The investment of money in securities is unique among business operations in that it is almost always based in some degree on advice received from others. The great bulk of investors are amateurs. Naturally they feel that in choosing their securities they can profit by professional guidance. Yet there are peculiarities inherent in the very concept of investment advice. If the reason people invest is to make money, then in seeking advice they are asking others to tell them how to make money. That idea has some element of naivety. Businessmen seek professional advice on various elements of their business, but they do not expect to be told how to make a profit. That is their own bailiwick. When they, or non-business people, rely on others to make investment profits for them, they are expecting a kind of result for which there is no true counterpart in ordinary business affairs. If we assume that there are normal or standard income results to be obtained from investing money in securities, then the role of the advisor can be more readily established. He will use his superior training and experience to protect his clients against mistakes and to make sure that they obtain the results to which their money is entitled. It is when the investor demands more than an average return on his money or when his advisor undertakes to do better for him, that the question arises whether more is being asked or promised than is likely to be delivered. Advice on investments may be obtained from a variety of sources. These include, 1, a relative or friend, presumably knowledgeable in securities, 2, a local, commercial, banker, 3, a brokerage firm or investment banking house, 4, a financial service or periodical, and, 5, an investment counselor. The miscellaneous character of this list suggests that no logical or systematic approach in this matter has crystallized, as yet, in the minds of investors. Certain common-sense considerations relate to the criterion of normal or standard results mentioned above. Our basic thesis is this, if the investor is to rely chiefly on the advice of others in handling his funds, then neither he must limit himself and his advisors strictly to standard, conservative, and even unimaginative forms of investment or he must have an unusually intimate and favorable knowledge of the person who is going to direct his funds into other channels. But if the ordinary business or professional relationship exists between the investor and his advisors, he can be receptive to less conventional suggestions only to the extent that he himself has grown in knowledge and experience and has therefore become competent to pass independent judgment on the recommendations of others. He has then passed from the category of defensive or unenterprising investor into that of aggressive or enterprising investor. Investment Council and Trust Services of Banks The truly professional investment advisors, that is, the well-established investment council firms, who charge substantial annual fees, are quite modest in their promises and pretensions. For the most part they place their clients' funds in standard interest and dividend-paying securities, and they rely mainly on normal investment experience for their overall results. 
In the typical case it is doubtful whether more than 10% of the total fund is ever invested in securities other than those of leading companies, plus government bonds, including state and municipal issues, nor do they make a serious effort to take advantage of swings in the general market. The leading investment council firms make no claim to being brilliant, they do pride themselves on being careful, conservative, and competent. Their primary aim is to conserve the principal value over the years and produce a conservatively acceptable rate of income. Any accomplishment beyond that, and they do strive to better the goal, they regard in the nature of extra service rendered. Perhaps their chief value to their clients lies in shielding them from costly mistakes. They offer as much as the defensive investor has the right to expect from any counselor serving the general public. What we have said about the well-established investment council firms applies generally to the trust and advisory services of the larger banks. Financial Services The so-called financial services are organizations that send out uniform bulletins, sometimes in the form of telegrams, to their subscribers. The subjects covered may include the state and prospects of business, the behavior and prospect of the securities markets, and information and advice regarding individual issues. There is often an inquiry department which will answer questions affecting an individual subscriber. The cost of the service averages much less than the fee that investment counselors charge their individual clients. Some organizations, notably Babson's and Standard & Poor's, operate on separate levels as a financial service and as investment counsel. Incidentally, other organizations, such as Scudder, Stevens & Clark, operate separately as investment counsel and as one or more investment funds. The financial services direct themselves, on the whole, to a quite different segment of the public than do the investment counsel firms. The latter's clients generally wish to be relieved of bother and the need for making decisions. The financial services offer information and guidance to those who are directing their own financial affairs or are themselves advising others. Many of these services confine themselves exclusively, or nearly so, to forecasting market movements by various technical methods. We shall dismiss these with the observation that their work does not concern investors as the term is used in this book. On the other hand, some of the best known, such as Moody's Investment Service and Standard & Poor's, are identified with statistical organizations that compile the voluminous statistical data that form the basis for all serious security analysis. These services have a varied clientele, ranging from the most conservative-minded investor to the rankest speculator. As a result they must find it difficult to adhere to any clear-cut or fundamental philosophy in arriving at their opinions and recommendations. An old established service of the type of Moody's and the others must obviously provide something worthwhile to a broad class of investors. What is it? Basically they address themselves to the matters in which the average active investor speculator is interested, and their views on these either command some measure of authority or at least appear more reliable than those of the unaided client. For years the financial services have been making stock market forecasts without anyone taking this activity very seriously. Like everyone else in the field they are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Wherever possible they hedge their opinions so as to avoid the risk of being proved completely wrong. There is a well-developed heart of Delphic phrasing that adjusts itself successfully to whatever the future brings, in our view, perhaps a prejudiced one, this segment of their work has no real significance except for the light it throws on human nature in the securities markets. Nearly everyone interested in common stocks wants to be told by someone else what he thinks the market is going to do. The demand being there, it must be supplied. Their interpretations and forecasts of business conditions, of course, are much more authoritative and informing. These are an important part of the great body of economic intelligence which is spread continuously among buyers and sellers of securities and tends to create fairly rational prices for stocks and bonds under most circumstances. 
Undoubtedly the material published by the financial services adds to the store of information available and fortifies the investment judgment of their clients. It is difficult to evaluate their recommendations of individual securities. Each service is entitled to be judged separately, and the verdict could properly be based only on an elaborate and inclusive study covering many years. In our own experience we have noted among them a pervasive attitude which we think tends to impair what could otherwise be more useful advisory work. This is their general view that a stock should be bought if the near-term prospects of the business are favorable and should be sold if these are unfavorable, regardless of the current price. Such a superficial principle often prevents the services from doing the sound analytical job of which their staffs are capable, namely, to ascertain whether a given stock appears over or undervalued at the current price in the light of its indicated long-term future earning power. The intelligent investor will not do his buying and selling solely on the basis of recommendations received from a financial service. Once this point is established, the role of the financial service then becomes the useful one of supplying information and offering suggestions. Advice from brokerage houses Probably the largest volume of information and advice to the security-owning public comes from stockbrokers. These are members of the New York Stock Exchange, and of other exchanges, who execute buying and selling orders for a standard commission. Practically all the houses that deal with the public maintain a statistical or analytical department, which answers inquiries and makes recommendations. A great deal of analytical literature, some of it elaborate and expensive, is distributed gratis to the firm's customers, more impressively referred to as clients. A great deal is at stake in the innocent appearing question whether customers or clients is the more appropriate name. A business has customers, a professional person or organization has clients. The Wall Street brokerage fraternity has probably the highest ethical standards of any business, but it is still feeling its way toward the standards and standing of a true profession. In the past Wall Street has thrived mainly on speculation, and stock market speculators as a class were almost certain to lose money. Hence it has been logically impossible for brokerage houses to operate on a thoroughly professional basis. To do that would have required them to direct their efforts toward reducing rather than increasing their business. The farthest that certain brokerage houses have gone in that direction, and could have been expected to go, is to refrain from inducing or encouraging anyone to speculate. Such houses have confined themselves to executing orders given them, to supplying financial information and analyzes, and to rendering opinions on the investment merits of securities. Thus, in theory at least, they are devoid of all responsibility for either the profits or the losses of their speculative customers. Most stock exchange houses, however, still adhere to the old-time slogans that they are in business to make commissions and that the way to succeed in business is to give the customers what they want. Since the most profitable customers want speculative advice and suggestions, the thinking and activities of the typical firm are pretty closely geared to day-to-day -day trading in the market. Thus it tries hard to help its customers make money in a field where they are condemned almost by mathematical law to lose in the end. By this we mean that the speculative part of their operations cannot be profitable over the long run for most brokerage house customers. But to the extent that their operations resemble true investing they may produce investment gains that more than offset the speculative losses. The investor obtains advice and information from stock exchange houses through two types of employees, now known officially as customers brokers, or account executives, and financial analysts. The customers broker, also called a registered representative, formerly bore the less dignified title of customer's man. Today he is for the most part an individual of good character and considerable knowledge of securities, who operates under a rigid code of right conduct. Nevertheless, since his business is to earn commissions, he can hardly avoid being speculation-minded. 
Thus the security buyer who wants to avoid being influenced by speculative considerations will ordinarily have to be careful and explicit in his dealing with his customer's broker, he will have to show clearly, by word and deed, that he is not interested in anything faintly resembling a stock market tip. Once the customer's broker understands clearly that he has a real investor on his hands, he will respect this point of view and cooperate with it. The financial analyst, formerly known chiefly as security analyst, is a person of particular concern to the author who has been one himself for more than five decades and has helped educate countless others. At this stage we refer only to the financial analysts employed by brokerage houses. The function of the security analyst is clear enough from his title. It is he who works up the detailed studies of individual securities, develops careful comparisons of various issues in the same field, and forms an expert opinion of the safety or attractiveness or intrinsic value of all the different kinds of stocks and bonds. By what must seem a quirk to the outsider there are no formal requirements for being a security analyst. Contrast with this the facts that a customer's broker must pass an examination, meet the required character tests, and be duly accepted and registered by the New York Stock Exchange. As a practical matter, nearly all the younger analysts have had extensive business school training, and the oldsters have acquired at least the equivalent in the school of long experience. In the great majority of cases, the employing brokerage house can be counted on to assure itself of the qualifications and competence of its analysts. The customer of the brokerage firm may deal with the security analysts directly, or his contact may be an indirect one via the customer's broker. In either case the analyst is available to the client for a considerable amount of information and advice. Let us make an emphatic statement here. The value of the security analyst to the investor depends largely on the investor's own attitude. If the investor asks the analyst the right questions, he is likely to get the right, or at least valuable, answers. The analysts hired by brokerage houses, we are convinced, are greatly handicapped by the general feeling that they are supposed to be market analysts as well. When they are asked whether a given common stock is sound, the question often means, is this stock likely to advance during the next few months? As a result many of them are compelled to analyze with one eye on the stock ticker, a pose not conducive to sound thinking or worthwhile conclusions. In the next section of this book we shall deal with some of the concepts and possible achievements of security analysis. A great many analysts working for stock exchange firms could be of prime assistance to the bona fide investor who wants to be sure that he gets full value for his money, and possibly a little more. As in the case of the customer's brokers, what is needed at the beginning is a clear understanding by the analyst of the investor's attitude and objectives. Once the analyst is convinced that he is dealing with a man who is value-minded rather than quotation-minded there is an excellent chance that his recommendations will prove of real overall benefit. The CFA Certificate for Financial Analysts An important step was taken in 1963 toward giving professional standing and responsibility to financial analysts. The official title of Chartered Financial Analyst, CFA, is now awarded to those senior practitioners who pass required examinations and meet other tests of fitness. One the subjects covered include security analysis and portfolio management. The analogy with the long-established professional title of Certified Public Accountant, CPA, is evident and intentional. This relatively new apparatus of recognition and control should serve to elevate the standards of financial analysts and eventually to place their work on a truly professional basis. Dealings with Brokerage Houses One of the most disquieting developments of the period in which we write this revision has been the financial embarrassment, in plain words, bankruptcy or near-bankruptcy of quite a few New York Stock Exchange firms, including at least two of considerable size. This is the first time in half a century or more that such a thing has happened, and it is startling for more than one reason. 
For many decades the New York Stock Exchange has been moving in the direction of closer and stricter controls over the operations and financial condition of its members, including minimum capital requirements, surprise audits, and the like. Besides this, we have had 37 years of control over the exchanges and their members by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Finally, the stock brokerage industry itself has operated under favorable conditions, namely, a huge increase in volume, fixed minimum commission rates, largely eliminating competitive fees, and a limited number of member firms. The first financial troubles of the brokerage houses, in 1969, were attributed to the increase in volume itself. This, it was claimed, overtaxed their facilities, increased their overhead, and produced many troubles in making financial settlements. It should be pointed out this was probably the first time in history that important enterprises have gone broke because they had more business than they could handle. In 1970, as brokerage failures increased, they were blamed chiefly on the falling off in volume. A strange complaint when one reflects that the turnover of the NYSE in 1970 totaled 2,937 million shares, the largest volume in its history and well over twice as large as in any year before 1965. During the 15 years of the bull market ending in 1964 the annual volume had averaged only 712 million shares, one quarter of the 1970 figure but the brokerage business had enjoyed the greatest prosperity in its history. If, as it appears, the member firms as a whole had allowed their overhead and other expenses to increase at a rate that could not sustain even a mild reduction in volume during part of a year, this does not speak well for either their business acumen or their financial conservatism. A third explanation of the financial trouble finally emerged out of a mist of concealment, and we suspect that it is the most plausible and significant of the three. It seems that a good part of the capital of certain brokerage houses was held in the form of common stocks owned by the individual partners. Some of these seem to have been highly speculative and carried at inflated values. When the market declined in 1969 the quotations of such securities fell drastically and a substantial part of the capital of the firms vanished with them. Two, in effect the partners were speculating with the capital that was supposed to protect the customers against the ordinary financial hazards of the brokerage business, in order to make a double profit thereon. This was inexcusable, we refrain from saying more. The investor should use his intelligence not only in formulating his financial policies but also in the associated details. These include the choice of a reputable broker to execute his orders. Up to now it was sufficient to counsel our readers to deal only with a member of the New York Stock Exchange, unless he had compelling reasons to use a non-member firm. Reluctantly, we must add some further advice in this area. We think that people who do not carry margin accounts, and in our vocabulary this means all non-professional investors, should have the delivery and receipt of their securities handled by their bank. When giving a buying order to your brokers you can instruct them to deliver the securities bought to your bank against payment therefore by the bank. Conversely, when selling you can instruct your bank to deliver the securities to the broker against payment of the proceeds. These services will cost a little extra but they should be well worth the expense in terms of safety and peace of mind. This advice may be disregarded, as no longer called for, after the investor is sure that all the problems of stock exchange firms have been disposed of, but not before. Investment Bankers The term investment banker is applied to a firm that engages to an important extent in originating, underwriting, and selling new issues of stocks and bonds. To underwrite means to guarantee to the issuing corporation, or other issuer, that the security will be fully sold. A number of the brokerage houses carry on a certain amount of underwriting activity. Generally this is confined to participating in underwriting groups formed by leading investment bankers. There is an additional tendency for brokerage firms to originate and sponsor a minor amount of new issue financing, particularly in the form of smaller issues of common stocks when a bull market is in full swing. 
Investment banking is perhaps the most respectable department of the Wall Street community, because it is here that finance plays its constructive role of supplying new capital for the expansion of industry. In fact, much of the theoretical justification for maintaining active stock markets, notwithstanding their frequent speculative excesses, lies in the fact that organized security exchanges facilitate the sale of new issues of bonds and stocks. If investors or speculators could not expect to see a ready market for a new security offered them, they might well refuse to buy it. The relationship between the investment banker and the investor is basically that of the salesman to the prospective buyer. For many years past the great bulk of the new offerings and dollar value has consisted of bond issues that were purchased in the main by financial institutions such as banks and insurance companies. In this business the security salesmen have been dealing with shrewd and experienced buyers. Hence any recommendations made by the investment bankers to these customers have had to pass careful and skeptical scrutiny. Thus these transactions are almost always affected on a business-like footing. But a different situation obtains in a relationship between the individual security buyer and the investment banking firms, including the stockbrokers acting as underwriters. Here the purchaser is frequently inexperienced and seldom shrewd. He is easily influenced by what the salesman tells him, especially in the case of common stock issues, since often his unconfessed desire in buying is chiefly to make a quick profit. The effect of all this is that the public investor's protection lies less in his own critical faculty than in the scruples and ethics of the offering houses. It is a tribute to the honesty and competence of the underwriting firms that they are able to combine fairly well the discordant roles of advisor and salesman. But it is imprudent for the buyer to trust himself to the judgment of the seller. In 1959 we stated at this point, the bad results of this unsound attitude show themselves recurrently in the underwriting field and with notable effects in the sale of new common stock issues during periods of active speculation. Shortly thereafter this warning proved urgently needed. As already pointed out, the years 1960-61 and, again, 1968-69 were marked by an unprecedented outpouring of issues of lowest quality, sold to the public at absurdly high offering prices and in many cases pushed much higher by heedless speculation and some semi-manipulation. A number of the more important Wall Street houses have participated to some degree in these less than creditable activities, which demonstrates that the familiar combination of greed, folly, and irresponsibility has not been exorcised from the financial scene. The intelligent investor will pay attention to the advice and recommendations received from investment banking houses, especially those known by him to have an excellent reputation, but he will be sure to bring sound and independent judgment to bear upon these suggestions, either his own, if he is competent, or that of some other type of advisor. Other Advisors It is a good old custom, especially in the smaller towns, to consult one's local banker about investments. A commercial banker may not be a thoroughgoing expert on security values but he is experienced and conservative. He is especially useful to the unskilled investor, who is often tempted to stray from the straight and unexciting path of a defensive policy and needs the steadying influence of a prudent mind. The more alert and aggressive investor, seeking counsel in the selection of security bargains, will not ordinarily find the commercial banker's viewpoint to be especially suited to his own objectives. We take a more critical attitude toward the widespread custom of asking investment advice from relatives or friends. The inquirer always thinks he has good reason for assuming that the person consulted has superior knowledge or experience. Our own observation indicates that it is almost as difficult to select satisfactory lay advisors as it is to select the proper securities unneeded. Much bad advice is given free. Summary Investors who are prepared to pay a fee for the management of their funds may wisely select some well-established and well-recommended investment counsel firm. Alternatively, 
they may use the investment department of a large trust company or the supervisory service supplied on a fee basis by a few of the leading New York stock exchange houses. The results to be expected are in no wise exceptional, but they are commensurate with those of the average well-informed and cautious investor. Most security buyers obtain advice without paying for it specifically. It stands to reason, therefore, that in the majority of cases they are not entitled to and should not expect better than average results. They should be wary of all persons, whether customers brokers or security salesmen, who promise spectacular income or profits. This applies both to the selection of securities and to guidance in the elusive, and perhaps elusive, art of trading in the market. Defensive investors, as we have defined them, will not ordinarily be equipped to pass independent judgment on the security recommendations made by their advisors. But they can be explicit, and even repetitiously so, in stating the kind of securities they want to buy. If they follow our prescription they will confine themselves to high-grade bonds in the common stocks of leading corporations, preferably those that can be purchased at individual price levels that are not high in the light of experience and analysis. The security analyst of any reputable stock exchange house can make up a suitable list of such common stocks and can certify to the investor whether or not the existing price level therefore is a reasonably conservative one as judged by past experience. The aggressive investor will ordinarily work in active cooperation with his advisors. He will want their recommendations explained in detail, and he will insist on passing his own judgment upon them. This means that the investor will gear his expectations and the character of his security operations to the development of his own knowledge and experience in the field. Only in the exceptional case, where the integrity and competence of the advisors have been thoroughly demonstrated, should the investor act upon the advice of others without understanding and approving the decision made. There have always been unprincipled stock salesmen and fly-by-night stock brokers, and, as a matter of course, we have advised our readers to confine their dealings, if possible, to members of the New York Stock Exchange. But we are reluctantly compelled to add the extra cautious counsel that security deliveries and payments be made through the intermediary of the investor's bank. The distressing Wall Street brokerage house picture may have cleared up completely in a few years, but in late 1971 we still suggest, better safe than sorry. Chapter 11. Security Analysis for the Lay Investor, General Approach. Financial analysis is now a well-established and flourishing profession, or semi-profession. The various societies of analysts that make up the National Federation of Financial Analysts have over 13,000 members, most of whom make their living out of this branch of mental activity. Financial analysts have textbooks, a code of ethics, and a quarterly journal. They also have their share of unresolved problems. In recent years there has been a tendency to replace the general concept of security analysis by that of financial analysis. The latter phrase has a broader implication and is better suited to describe the work of most senior analysts on Wall Street. It would be useful to think of security analysis as limiting itself pretty much to the examination and evaluation of stocks and bonds, whereas financial analysis would comprise that work, plus the determination of investment policy, portfolio selection, plus a substantial amount of general economic analysis. One In this chapter we shall use whatever designation is most applicable, with chief emphasis on the work of the security analyst proper. The security analyst deals with the past, the present, and the future of any given security issue. He describes the business, he summarizes its operating results and financial position, he sets forth its strong and weak points, its possibilities and risks, he estimates its future earning power under various assumptions, or as a best guess. He makes elaborate comparisons of various companies, or of the same company at various times. Finally, he expresses an opinion as to the safety of the issue, if it is a bond or investment-grade preferred stock, or as to its attractiveness as a purchase, if it is a common stock. 
In doing all these things the security analyst avails himself of a number of techniques, ranging from the elementary to the most abstruse. He may modify substantially the figures in the company's annual statements, even though they bear the secret imprimatur of the certified public accountant. He is on the lookout particularly for items in these reports that may mean a good deal more or less than they say. The security analyst develops and applies standards of safety by which we can conclude whether a given bond or preferred stock may be termed sound enough to justify purchase for investment. These standards relate primarily to past average earnings, but they are concerned also with capital structure, working capital, asset values, and other matters. In dealing with common stocks the security analyst until recently has only rarely applied standards of value as well defined as were his standards of safety for bonds and preferred stocks. Most of the time he contended himself with a summary of past performances, a more or less general forecast of the future, with particular emphasis on the next 12 months, and a rather arbitrary conclusion. The latter was, and still is, often drawn with one eye on the stock ticker or the market charts. In the past few years, however, much attention has been given by practicing analysts to the problem of valuing growth stocks. Many of these have sold at such high prices in relation to past and current earnings that those recommending them have felt a special obligation to justify their purchase by fairly definite projections of expected earnings running fairly far into the future. Certain mathematical techniques of a rather sophisticated sort have perforce been invoked to support the valuations arrived at. We shall deal with these techniques, in foreshortened form, a little later. However, we must point out a troublesome paradox here which is that the mathematical valuations have become most prevalent precisely in those areas where one might consider them least reliable. For the more dependent the valuation becomes on anticipations of the future, and the less it is tied to a figure demonstrated by past performance, the more vulnerable it becomes to possible miscalculation and serious error. A large part of the value found for a high multiplier growth stock is derived from future projections which differ markedly from past performance, except perhaps in the growth rate itself. Thus it may be said that security analysts today find themselves compelled to become most mathematical and scientific in the very situations which lend themselves least auspiciously to exact treatment. Let us proceed, nonetheless, with our discussion of the more important elements and techniques of security analysis. The present highly condensed treatment is directed to the needs of the non-professional investor. At the minimum he should understand what the security analyst is talking about and driving at, beyond that, he should be equipped, if possible to distinguish between superficial and sound analysis. Security analysis for the lay investor is thought of as beginning with the interpretation of a company's annual financial report. This is a subject which we have covered for laymen in a separate book, entitled The Interpretation of Financial Statements. We do not consider it necessary or appropriate to traverse the same ground in this chapter, especially since the emphasis in the present book is on principles and attitudes rather than on information and description. Let us pass on to two basic questions underlying the selection of investments. What are the primary tests of safety of a corporate bond or preferred stock? What are the chief factors entering into the valuation of a common stock? Bond analysis. The most dependable and hence the most respectable branch of security analysis concerns itself with the safety, or quality, of bond issues and investment grade preferred stocks. The chief criterion used for corporate bonds is the number of times that total interest charges have been covered by available earnings for some years in the past. In the case of preferred stocks, it is the number of times that bond interest and preferred dividends combined have been covered. The exact standards applied will vary with different authorities. Since the tests are at bottom arbitrary, there is no way to determine precisely the most suitable criteria. In the 1961 revision of our textbook, Security Analysis, we recommend certain coverage standards, which appear in Table 11 to 1. 
our basic test is applied only to the average results for a period of years. Other authorities require also that a minimum coverage be shown for every year considered. We approve a poorest year test as an alternative to the seven-year average test. It would be sufficient if the bond or preferred stock met either of these criteria. A. For investment-grade preferred stocks. The same minimum figures as above are required to be shown by the ratio of earnings before income taxes to the sum of fixed charges plus twice preferred dividends. Note, the inclusion of twice the preferred dividends allows for the fact that preferred dividends are not income tax deductible, whereas interest charges are so deductible. b. Other categories of bonds and preferreds. The standards given above are not applicable to 1. Public utility holding companies, 2. Financial companies, 3. Real estate companies. Requirements for these special groups are omitted here. It may be objected that the large increase in bond interest rates since 1961 would justify some offsetting reduction in the coverage of charges required. Obviously it would be much harder for an industrial company to show a 7 times coverage of interest charges at 8% than at 41 halves of a percent. To meet this changed situation we now suggest an alternative requirement related to the percent earned on. The principal amount of the debt. These figures might be 33% before taxes for an industrial company. 20% for a public utility, and 25% for a railroad. It should be borne in mind here that the rate actually paid by most companies on their total debt is considerably less than the current 8% figures, since they have the benefit of older issues bearing lower coupons. The poorest year requirement could be set at about two-thirds of the seven-year requirement. In addition to the earnings coverage test, a number of others are generally applied. These include the following. 1. Size of enterprise. There is a minimum standard in terms of volume of business for a corporation, varying as between industrials, utilities, and railroads, and of population for a municipality. 2. Stock-slash-equity ratio. This is the ratio of the market price of the junior stock issues to the total face amount of the debt, or the debt plus preferred stock. It is a rough measure of the protection, or cushion, afforded by the presence of a junior investment that must first bear the brunt of unfavorable developments. This factor includes the market's appraisal of the future prospects of the enterprise. 3. Property value. The asset values, as shown on the balance sheet or as appraised, were formerly considered the chief security and protection for a bond issue. Experience has shown that in most cases safety resides in the earning power, and if this is deficient the assets lose most of their reputed value. Asset values, however, retain importance as a separate test of ample security for bonds and preferred stocks in three enterprise groups public utilities, because rates may depend largely on the property investment, real estate concerns, and investment companies. At this point the alert investor should ask, how dependable are tests of safety that are measured by past and present performance, in view of the fact that payment of interest and principal depends upon what the future will bring forth? The answer can be founded only on experience. Investment history shows that bonds and preferred stocks that have met stringent tests of safety, based on the past, have in the great majority of cases been able to face the vicissitudes of the future successfully. This has been strikingly demonstrated in the major field of railroad bonds, a field that has been marked by a calamitous frequency of bankruptcies and serious losses. In nearly every case the roads that got into trouble had long been overbonded, had shown an inadequate coverage of fixed charges in periods of average prosperity, and would thus have been ruled out by investors who applied strict tests of safety. Conversely, Practically every road that has met such tests has escaped financial embarrassment. Our premise was strikingly vindicated by the financial history of the numerous railroads reorganized in the 1940s and in 1950. All of these, with one exception, 
started their careers with fixed charges reduced to a point where the current coverage of fixed interest requirements was ample, or at least respectable. The exception was the New Haven Railroad, which in its reorganization year, 1947, earned its new charges only about 1.1 times. In consequence, while all the other roads were able to come through rather difficult times with solvency unimpaired, the New Haven relapsed into trusteeship, for the third time, in 1961. In Chapter 17 below we shall consider some aspects of the bankruptcy of the Penn Central Railroad, which shook the financial community in 1970. An elementary fact in this case was that the coverage of fixed charges did not meet conservative standards as early as 1965, hence a prudent bond investor would have avoided or disposed of the bond issues of the system long before its financial collapse. Our observations on the adequacy of the past record to judge future safety apply, and to an even greater degree, to the public utilities, which constitute a major area for bond investment. Receivership of a soundly capitalized, electric, utility company or system is almost impossible. Since Securities and Exchange Commission control was instituted, along with the breakup of most of the holding company systems, public utility financing has been sound and bankruptcies unknown. The financial troubles of electric and gas utilities in the 1930s were traceable almost 100% to financial excesses and mismanagement, which left their imprint clearly on the company's capitalization structures. Simple but stringent tests of safety, therefore, would have warned the investor away from the issues that were later to default. Among industrial bond issues the long-term record has been different. Although the industrial group as a whole has shown a better growth of earning power than either the railroads or the utilities, it has revealed a lesser degree of inherent stability for individual companies and lines of business. Thus in the past, at least, there have been persuasive reasons for confining the purchase of industrial bonds and preferred stocks to companies that not only are of major size but also have shown an ability in the past to withstand a serious depression. Few defaults of industrial bonds have occurred since 1950, but this fact is attributable in part to the absence of a major depression during this long period. Since 1966 there have been adverse developments in the financial position of many industrial companies. Considerable difficulties have developed as the result of unwise expansion. On the one hand this has involved large additions to both bank loans and long-term debt, on the other it has frequently produced operating losses instead of the expected profits. At the beginning of 1971 it was calculated that in the past seven years the interest payments of all non-financial firms had grown from $9.8 billion in 1963 to $26.1 billion in 1970, and that interest payments had taken 29% of the aggregate profits before interest and taxes in 1971, against only 16% in 1963.3 Obviously, the burden on many individual firms had increased much more than this. Overbonded companies have become all too familiar. There is every reason to repeat the caution expressed in our 1965 edition. We are not quite ready to suggest that the investor may count on an indefinite continuance of this favorable situation, and hence relax his standards of bond selection in the industrial or any other group. Common Stock Analysis The ideal form of common stock analysis leads to evaluation of the issue which can be compared with the current price to determine whether or not the security is an attractive purchase. This valuation, in turn, would ordinarily be found by estimating the average earnings over a period of years in the future and then multiplying that estimate by an appropriate capitalization factor. The now standard procedure for estimating future earning power starts with average past data for physical volume, prices received, and operating margin. Future sales in dollars are then projected on the basis of assumptions as to the amount of change in volume and price level over the previous base. These estimates, in turn, are grounded first on general economic forecasts of gross national product, 
and then on special calculations applicable to the industry and company in question. An illustration of this method of valuation may be taken from our 1965 edition and brought up to date by adding the sequel. The value line, a leading investment service, makes forecasts of future earnings and dividends by the procedure outlined above, and then derives a figure of price potentiality, or projected market value, by applying a valuation formula to each issue based largely on certain past relationships. In Table 11-2 we reproduce the projections for 1967-1969 made in June 1964, and compare them with the earnings, and average market price actually realized in 1968, which approximates the 1967-1969 period. The combined forecasts proved to be somewhat on the low side, but not seriously so. The corresponding predictions made six years before had turned out to be over-optimistic on earnings and dividends, but this had been offset by use of a low multiplier with the result that the price potentiality figure proved to be about the same as the actual average price for 1963. The reader will note that quite a number of the individual forecasts were wide of the mark. This is an instance in support of our general view that composite or group estimates are likely to be a good deal more dependable than those for individual companies. Ideally, perhaps, the security analyst should pick out the three or four companies whose future he thinks he knows the best, and concentrate his own and his client's interest on what he forecasts for them. Unfortunately, it appears to be almost impossible to distinguish in advance between those individual forecasts which can be relied upon and those which are subject to a large chance of error. At bottom, this is the reason for the wide diversification practiced by the investment funds. For it is undoubtedly better to concentrate on one stock that you know is going to prove highly profitable, rather than dilute your results to a mediocre figure, merely for diversification's sake. But this is not done because it cannot be done dependably. For the prevalence of wide diversification is in itself a pragmatic repudiation of the fetish of selectivity, to which Wall Street constantly pays lip service. Factors affecting the capitalization rate Though average future earnings are supposed to be the chief determinant of value, the security analyst takes into account a number of other factors of a more or less definite nature. Most of these will enter into his capitalization rate, which can vary over a wide range, depending upon the quality of the stock issue. Thus, although two companies may have the same figure of expected earnings per share in 1973-1975, say $4, the analyst may value one as low as 40 and the other as high as 100. Let us deal briefly with some of the considerations that enter into these divergent multipliers. 1. General long-term prospects. No one really knows anything about what will happen in the distant future, but analysts and investors have strong views on the subject just the same. These views are reflected in the substantial differentials between the price-slash-earnings ratios of individual companies and of industry groups. At this point we added in our 1965 edition. For example, at the end of 1963 the chemical companies in the Dow Jones Industrial Average were selling at considerably higher multipliers than the oil companies, indicating stronger confidence in the prospects of the former than of the latter. Such distinctions made by the market are often soundly based but when dictated mainly by past performance they are as likely to be wrong as right. We shall supply here, in Table 11-3, the 1963 year-end material on the chemical and oil company issues in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and carry their earnings to the end of 1970. It will be seen that the chemical companies, despite their high multipliers, made practically no gain in earnings in the period after 1963. The oil companies did much better than the chemicals and about in line with the growth implied in their 1963 multipliers. Thus our chemical stock example proved to be one of the cases in which the market multipliers were proven wrong. 2. Management. 
On Wall Street a great deal is constantly said on this subject, but little that is really helpful. Until objective, quantitative, and reasonably reliable tests of managerial competence are devised and applied, this factor will continue to be looked at through a fog. It is fair to assume that an outstandingly successful company has unusually good management. This will have shown itself already in the past record, it will show up again in the estimates for the next five years, and once more in the previously discussed factor of long-term prospects. The tendency to count it still another time as a separate bullish consideration can easily lead to expensive overvaluations. The management factor is most useful, we think, in those cases in which a recent change has taken place that has not yet had the time to show its significance in the actual figures. Two spectacular occurrences of this kind were associated with the Chrysler Motor Corporation. The first took place as far back as 1921, when Walter Chrysler took command of the almost moribund Maxwell Motors, and in a few years made it a large and highly profitable enterprise, while numerous other automobile companies were forced out of business. The second happened as recently as 1962, when Chrysler had fallen far from its once highest state and the stock was selling at its lowest price in many years. Then new interests, associated with consolidation coal, took over the reins. The earnings advanced from the 1961 figure of $1.24 per share to the equivalent of $17 in 1963, and the price rose from a low of 381 halves in 1962 to the equivalent of nearly 200 the very next year. 3. Financial Strength and Capital Structure Stock of a company with a lot of surplus cash and nothing ahead of the common is clearly a better purchase, at the same price, than another one with the same per share earnings but large bank loans and senior securities. Such factors are properly and carefully taken into account by security analysts. A modest amount of bonds or preferred stock, however, is not necessarily a disadvantage to the common, nor is the moderate use of seasonal bank credit. Incidentally, a top-heavy structure, too little common stock in relation to bonds and preferred, may under favorable conditions make for a huge speculative profit in the common. This is the factor known as leverage. 4. Dividend Record one of the most persuasive tests of high quality is an uninterrupted record of dividend payments going back over many years. We think that a record of continuous dividend payments for the last 20 years or more is an important plus factor in the company's quality rating. Indeed the defense of investor might be justified in limiting his purchases to those meeting this test. 5. Current Dividend Rate This, our last additional factor, is the most difficult one to deal with in satisfactory fashion. Fortunately, the majority of companies have come to follow what may be called a standard dividend policy. This has meant the distribution of about two-thirds of their average earnings, except that in the recent period of high profits and inflationary demands for more capital the figure has tended to be lower. In 1969 it was 59.5% for the stocks in the Dow Jones average, and 55% for all American corporations, where the dividend bears a normal relationship to the earnings, the valuation may be made on either basis without substantially affecting the result. For example, a typical secondary company with expected average earnings of $3 and an expected dividend of $2 of may be valued at either 12 times its earnings or 18 times its dividend, to yield a value of 36 in both cases. However, an increasing number of growth companies are departing from the once standard policy of paying out 60% or more of earnings in dividends, on the grounds that the shareholders' interests will be better served by retaining nearly all the profits to finance expansion. The issue presents problems and requires careful distinctions. We have decided to defer our discussion of the vital question of proper dividend policy to a later section, Chapter 19, where we shall deal with it as a part of the general problem of management shareholder relations. Capitalization Rates for Growth Stocks 
Most of the writing of security analysts on formal appraisals relates to the valuation of growth stocks. Our study of the various methods has led us to suggest a foreshortened and quite simple formula for the valuation of growth stocks, which is intended to produce figures fairly close to those resulting from the more refined mathematical calculations. Our formula is value equals current, normal, earnings times, 8.5 plus twice the expected annual growth rate. The growth figure should be that expected over the next 7 to 10 years. In Table 11 to 4 we show how our formula works out for various rates of assumed growth. It is easy to make the converse calculation and to determine what rate of growth is anticipated by the current market price, assuming our formula is valid. In our last edition we made that calculation for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and for six important stock issues. These figures are reproduced in Table 11 to 5. We commented at the time. The difference between the implicit 32.4% annual growth rate for Xerox and the extremely modest 2.8% for General Motors is indeed striking. It is explainable in part by the stock market's feeling that General Motors' 1963 earnings, the largest for any corporation in history, can be maintained with difficulty and exceeded only modestly at best. The price-earnings ratio of Xerox, on the other hand, is quite representative of speculative enthusiasm fastened upon a company of great achievement and perhaps still greater promise. The implicit or expected growth rate of 5.1% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average compares with an actual annual increase of 3.4% compounded, between 1951 to 1953 and 1961 to 1963. We should have added a caution somewhat as follows, the valuations of expected high growth stocks are necessarily on the low side, if we were to assume these growth rates will actually be realized. In fact, according to the arithmetic, if a company could be assumed to grow at a rate of 8% or more indefinitely in the future its value would be infinite, and no price would be too high to pay for the shares. What the valuer actually does in these cases is to introduce a margin of safety into his calculations, somewhat as an engineer does in his specifications for a structure. On this basis the purchases would realize his assigned objective, in 1963, a future overall return of 71 halves of a percent per annum, even if the growth rate actually realized proves substantially less than that projected in the formula. Of course, then, if that rate were actually realized the investor would be sure to enjoy a handsome additional return. There is really no way of valuing a high-growth company, with an expected rate above, say, 8% annually, in which the analyst can make realistic assumptions of both the proper multiplier for the current earnings and the expectable multiplier for the future earnings. As it happened the actual growth for Xerox and IBM proved very close to the high rates implied from our formula. As just explained, this fine showing inevitably produced a large advance in the price of both issues. The growth of the Dow Jones Industrial Average itself was also about as projected by the 1963 closing market price. But the moderate rate of 5% did not involve the mathematical dilemma of Xerox and IBM. It turned out that the 23% price rise to the end of 1970, plus the 28% in aggregate dividend return received, gave not far from the 71 halves of a percent annual overall gain posited in our formula. In the case of the other four companies it may suffice to say that their growth did not equal the expectations implied in the 1963 price and that their quotations failed to rise as much as the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Warning, this material is supplied for illustrative purposes only, and because of the inescapable necessity in security analysis to project the future growth rate for most companies studied. Let the reader not be misled into thinking that such projections have any high degree of reliability or, conversely, that future prices can be counted on to behave accordingly as the prophecies are realized, surpassed, or disappointed. We should point out that any scientific, or at least reasonably dependable, 
stock evaluation based on anticipated future results must take future interest rates into account. A given schedule of expected earnings, or dividends, would have a smaller present value if we assume a higher than if we assume a lower interest structure. Such assumptions have always been difficult to make with any degree of confidence, and the recent violent swings in long-term interest rates render forecasts of this sort almost presumptuous. Hence we have retained our old formula above, simply because no new one would appear more plausible. Industry Analysis Because the general prospects of the enterprise carry major weight in the establishment of market prices, it is natural for the security analyst to devote a great deal of attention to the economic position of the industry and of the individual company in its industry. Studies of this kind can go into unlimited detail. They are sometimes productive of valuable insights into important factors that will be operative in the future and are insufficiently appreciated by the current market. Where a conclusion of that kind can be drawn with a fair degree of confidence, it affords a sound basis for investment decisions. Our own observation, however, leads us to minimize somewhat the practical value of most of the industry studies that are made available to investors. The material developed is ordinarily of a kind with which the public is already fairly familiar and that has already exerted considerable influence on market quotations. Rarely does one find a brokerage house study that points out, with a convincing array of facts, that a popular industry is heading for a fall or that an unpopular one is due to prosper. Wall Street's view of the longer future is notoriously fallible, and this necessarily applies to that important part of its investigations which is directed toward the forecasting of the course of profits in various industries. We must recognize, however, that the rapid and pervasive growth of technology in recent years is not without major effect on the attitude and the labors of the security analyst. More so than in the past, the progress or retrogression of the typical company in the coming decade may depend on its relation to new products and new processes, which the analyst may have a chance to study and evaluate in advance. Thus there is doubtless a promising area for effective work by the analyst, based on field trips, interviews with research men and on intensive technological investigation on his own. There are hazards connected with investment conclusions derived chiefly from such glimpses into the future, and not supported by presently demonstrable value. Yet there are perhaps equal hazards in sticking closely to the limits of value set by sober calculations resting on actual results. The investor cannot have it both ways. He can be imaginative and play for the big profits that are the reward for vision proves sound by the event but then he must run a substantial risk of major or minor miscalculation. Or he can be conservative, and refuse to pay more than a minor premium for possibilities as yet unproved, but in that case he must be prepared for the later contemplation of golden opportunities foregone. A two-part appraisal process. Let us return for a moment to the idea of valuation or appraisal of a common stock, which we began to discuss above on p. 288. A great deal of reflection on the subject has led us to conclude that this better be done quite differently than is now the established practice. We suggest that analysts work out first what we call the past performance value, which is based solely on the past record. This would indicate what the stock would be worth, absolutely, or as a percentage of the Dow Jones Industrial Average or of the S&P Composite, if it is assumed that its relative past performance will continue unchanged in the future. This includes the assumption that its relative growth rate, as shown in the last seven years, will also continue unchanged over the next seven years, this process could be carried out mechanically by applying a formula that gives individual weights to past figures for profitability, stability, and growth, and also for current financial condition. The second part of the analysis should consider to what extent the value based solely on past performance should be modified because of new conditions expected in the future. 
Such a procedure would divide the work between senior and junior analysts as follows. 1. The senior analyst would set up the formula to apply to all companies generally for determining past performance value. 2. The junior analysts would work up such factors for the designated companies, pretty much in mechanical fashion. 3. The senior analyst would then determine to what extent a company's performance, absolute or relative, is likely to differ from its past record, and what change should be made in the value to reflect such anticipated changes. It would be best if the senior analyst's report showed both the original valuation and the modified one, with his reasons for the change. Is a job of this kind worth doing? Our answer is in the affirmative, but our reasons may appear somewhat cynical to the reader. We doubt whether the valuation so reached will prove sufficiently dependable in the case of the typical industrial company, great or small. We shall illustrate the difficulties of this job in our discussion of Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa, in the next chapter. Nonetheless it should be done for such common stocks. Why? First, many security analysts are bound to make current or projected valuations, as part of their daily work. The method we propose should be an improvement on those generally followed today. Secondly, because it should give useful experience and insight to the analysts who practice this method. Thirdly, because work of this kind could produce an invaluable body of recorded experience, as has long been the case in medicine that may lead to better methods of procedure and a useful knowledge of its possibilities and limitations. The public utility stocks might well prove an important area in which this approach will show real pragmatic value. Eventually the intelligent analyst will confine himself to those groups in which the future appears reasonably predictable, or where the margin of safety of past performance value over current price is so large that he can take his chances on future variations, as he does in selecting well-secured senior securities. In subsequent chapters we shall supply concrete examples of the application of analytical techniques. But they will only be illustrations. If the reader finds the subject interesting he should pursue it systematically and thoroughly before he considers himself qualified to pass a final buy or sell judgment of his own on a security issue. Chapter 12. Things to Consider About Per Share Earnings This chapter will begin with two pieces of advice to the investor that cannot avoid being contradictory in their implications. The first is, don't take a single year's earnings seriously. The second is, if you do pay attention to short-term earnings, look out for booby. Traps in the per-share figures. If our first warning were followed strictly the second would be unnecessary. But it is too much to expect that most shareholders can relate all their common stock decisions to the long-term record and the long-term prospects. The quarterly figures, and especially the annual figures, receive major attention in financial circles, and this emphasis can hardly fail to have its impact on the investor's thinking. He may well need some education in this area, for it abounds in misleading possibilities. As this chapter is being written the earnings report of Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa, for 1970 appears in the Wall Street Journal. The first figures shown are 1970-1969 Share Earnings $5.20 The little at the outset is explained in a footnote to refer to primary earnings, before special charges. There is much more footnote material, in fact it occupies twice as much space as do the basic figures themselves. For the December quarter alone, the earnings per share are given as $1.58 in 1970 against $1.56 in 1969. The investor or speculator interested in Alcoa shares, reading those figures, might say to himself, not so bad. I knew that 1970 was a recession year in aluminum. But the fourth quarter shows a gain over 1969, with earnings at the rate of $6.32 per year. Let me see. The stock is selling at 62. Why, that's less than 10 times earnings. 
that makes it look pretty cheap, compared with 16 times for international nickel, etc., etc. But if our investor speculator friend had bothered to read all the material in the footnote, he would have found that instead of one figure of earnings per share for the year 1970 there were actually four, viz. 1970. 1969. Primary earnings $5.20, $5.58. Net income, after special charges, 4.32, 5.58. Fully diluted, before special charges, 5.01, 5.35. Fully diluted, after special charges, 4.19, 5.35. For the fourth quarter alone only two figures are given. Primary earnings, $1.58, $1.56. Net income, after special charges, 0 .70, 1.56. What do all these additional earnings mean? Which earnings are true earnings for the year in the December quarter? If the latter should be taken at 70 cents, the net income after special charges, the annual rate would be $2.80 instead of $6.32, and the price 62 would be 22 times earnings, instead of the 10 times we started with. Part of the question as to the true earnings of Alcoa can be answered quite easily. The reduction from $5.20 to $5.01, to allow for the effects of dilution, is clearly called for. Alcoa has a large bond issue convertible into common stock, to calculate the earning power of the common, based on the 1970 results, it must be assumed that the conversion privilege will be exercised if it should prove profitable to the bondholders to do so. The amount involved in the Alcoa picture is relatively small, and hardly deserves detailed comment. But in other cases, making allowance for conversion rights, and the existence of stock purchase warrants, can reduce the apparent earnings by half, or more. We shall present examples of a really significant dilution factor below, page 411. The financial services are not always consistent in their allowance for the dilution factor in their reporting and analyzes. Let us turn now to the matter of special charges. This figure of $18,800,000, or $0.88 cents per share, deducted in the fourth quarter, is not unimportant. Is it to be ignored entirely, or fully recognized as an earnings reduction, or partly recognized and partly ignored? The alert investor might ask himself also how does it happen that there was a virtual epidemic of such special charge-offs appearing after the close of 1970, but not in previous years? Could there possibly have been some fine Italian hands at work with the accounting, but always, of course, within the limits of the permissible? When we look closely we may find that such losses, charged off before they actually occur, can be charmed away, as it were, with no unhappy effect on either past or future primary earnings. In some extreme cases they might be availed of to make subsequent earnings appear nearly twice as large as in reality, by a more or less prestidigitous treatment of the tax credit involved. In dealing with Alcoa's special charges, the first thing to establish is how they arose. The footnotes are specific enough. The deductions came from four sources, viz. 1. Management's estimate of the anticipated costs of closing down the manufactured products division. 2. Ditto for closing down Alcoa Castings Company's plants. 3. Ditto for losses in phasing out Alcoa Credit Company. 4. Also, estimated costs of $5.3 million associated with completion of the contract for a curtain wall. All of these items are related to future costs and losses. It is easy to say that they are not part of the regular operating results of 1970, but if so, where do they belong? Are they so extraordinary and non-recurring as to belong nowhere? A widespread enterprise such as Alcoa, doing a $1.5 million business annually, must have a lot of divisions, 
departments, affiliates, and the like. Would it not be normal rather than extraordinary for one or more to prove unprofitable, and to require closing down? Similarly for such things as a contract to build a wall. Suppose that any time a company had a loss on any part of its business it had the bright idea of charging it off as a special item, and thus reporting its primary earnings per share so as to include only its profitable contracts and operations? Like King Edward VII's sundial, that marked only the sunny hours. The reader should know two ingenious aspects of the Alcoat procedure we have been discussing. The first is that by anticipating future losses the company escapes the necessity of allocating the losses themselves to an identifiable year. They don't belong in 1970, because they were not actually taken in that year. And they won't be shown in the year when they are actually taken, because they have already been provided for. Neat work, but might it not be just a little misleading? The Alcoa footnote says nothing about the future tax saving from these losses. Most other statements of this sort state specifically that only the after-tax effect has been charged off. If the Alcoa figure represents future losses before the related tax credit, then not only will future earnings be freed from the weight of these charges, as they are actually incurred, but they will be increased by a tax credit of some 50% thereof. It is difficult to believe that the accounts will be handled that way. But it is a fact that certain companies which have had large losses in the past have been able to report future earnings without charging the normal taxes against them, in that way making a very fine profits appearance indeed, based paradoxically enough on their past disgraces. Tax credits resulting from past year's losses are now being shown separately as special items, but they will enter into future statistics as part of the final net income figure. However, a reserve now set up for future losses, if net of expected tax credit, should not create an addition of this sort to the net income of later years. The other ingenious feature is the use by Alcoa and many other companies of the 1970 year end for making these special charge-offs. The stock market took what appeared to be a bloodbath in the first half of 1970. Everyone expected relatively poor results for the year for most companies. Wall Street was now anticipating better results in 1971, 1972, etc. What a nice arrangement, then, to charge as much as possible to the bad year, which had already been written off mentally and had virtually receded into the past, leaving the way clear for nicely fattened figures in the next few years. Perhaps this is good accounting, good business policy, and good for management shareholder relationships. But we have lingering doubts. The combination of widely, or should it be wildly? Diversified operations with the impulse to clean house at the end of 1970 has produced some strange-looking footnotes to the annual reports. The reader may be amused by the following explanation given by a New York Stock Exchange company, which shall remain unnamed, of its special items aggregating $2,357,000, or about a third of the income before charge-offs, consists of provision for closing Spalding United Kingdom operations provision for reorganizational expenses of a division, costs of selling a small baby pants and bib manufacturing company, disposing of part interest in a Spanish car leasing facility, and liquidation of a ski boot operation. Years ago the strong companies used to set up contingency reserves out of the profits of good years to absorb some of the bad effects of depression years to come. The underlying idea was to equalize the reported earnings, more or less, and to improve the stability factor in the company's record. A worthy motive it would seem, but the accountants quite rightly objected to the practice as misstating the true earnings. They insisted that each year's results be presented as they were, good or bad, and the shareholders and analysts be allowed to do the averaging or equalizing for themselves. We seem now to be witnessing the opposite phenomenon, with everyone charging off as much as possible against forgotten 1970, so as to start 1971 with a slate not only clean but specially prepared to show pleasing per share figures in the coming years.
It is time to return to our first question. What then were the true earnings of Alcoa in 1970? The accurate answer would be the $5.01 per share, after dilution, less that part of the 82 cents of special charges that may properly be attributed to occurrences in 1970. But we do not know what that portion is, and hence we cannot properly state the true earnings for the year. The management and the auditor should have given us their best judgment on this point, but they did not do so. And furthermore, the management and the auditor should have provided for deduction of the balance of these charges from the ordinary earnings of a suitable number of future years, say, not more than five. This evidently they will not do either, since they have already conveniently disposed of the entire sum as a 1970 special charge. The more seriously investors take the per share earnings figures as published, the more necessary it is for them to be on their guard against accounting factors of one kind and another that may impair the true comparability of the numbers. We have mentioned three sorts of these factors, the use of special charges, which may never be reflected in the per share earnings, the reduction in the normal income tax deduction by reason of past losses, and the dilution factor implicit in the existence of substantial amounts of convertible securities or warrants. One a fourth item that has had a significant effect on reported earnings in the past is the method of treating depreciation, chiefly as between the straight line and the accelerated schedules. We refrain from details here. But as an example current as we write, let us mention the 1970 report of train company this firm showed an increase of nearly 20% in per share earnings over 1969, $3.29 versus $2.76 but half of this came from returning to the older straight line depreciation rates, less burdensome on earnings than the accelerated method used the year before. The company will continue to use the accelerated rate on its income tax return, thus deferring income tax payments on the difference, still another factor, important at times is the choice between charging off research and development costs in the year they are incurred or amortizing them over a period of years. Finally, let us mention the choice between the FIFO, first in first out, and LIFO, last in first out, methods of valuing inventories. An obvious remark here would be that investors should not pay any attention to these accounting variables if the amounts involved are relatively small. But Wall Street being as it is, even items quite minor in themselves can be taken seriously. Two days before the Alcoa report appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the paper had quite a discussion of the corresponding statement of Dow Chemical. It closed with the observation that many analysts had been troubled by the fact that Dow had included a 21-cent item in regular profits for 1969, instead of treating it as an item of extraordinary income. Why the fuss? Because, evidently, evaluations of Dow Chemical involving many millions of dollars in the aggregate seemed to depend on exactly what was the percentage gain for 1969 over 1968, in this case either 9% or 41 halves of a percent. This strikes us as rather absurd, it is very unlikely that small differences involved in one year's results could have any bearing on future average profits or growth, and on a conservative, realistic valuation of the enterprise. By contrast, Consider another statement also appearing in January 1971. This concerned Northwest Industries Incorporated's report for 1970. The company was planning to write off, as a special charge, not less than $264 million in one fell swoop. Of this, $200 million represents the loss to be taken on the proposed sale of the railroad subsidiary to its employees and the balance a write-down of a recent stock purchase. These sums would work out to a loss of about $35 per share of common before dilution offsets, or twice its then current market price. Here we have something really significant. If the transaction goes through, and if the tax laws are not changed, this loss provided for in 1970 will permit Northwest Industries to realize about $400 million of future profits, within five years, 
from its other diversified interests without paying income tax thereon. What will then be the real earnings of that enterprise, should they be calculated with or without provision for the nearly 50% in income taxes which it will not actually have to pay? In our opinion, the proper mode of calculation would be first to consider the indicated earning power on the basis of full income tax liability, and to derive some broad idea of the stock's value based on that estimate. To this should be added some bonus figure, representing the value per share of the important but temporary tax exemption the company will enjoy. Allowance must be made, also, for a possible large-scale dilution in this case. Actually, the convertible preferred issues and warrants would more than double the outstanding common shares if the privileges are exercised. All this may be confusing and wearisome to our readers, but it belongs in our story. Corporate accounting is often tricky, security analysis can be complicated, stock valuations are really dependable only in exceptional cases. For most investors it would be probably best to assure themselves that they are getting good value for the prices they pay, and let it go at that. Use of Average Earnings In former times analysts and investors paid considerable attention to the average earnings over a fairly long period in the past usually from 7 to 10 years. This mean figure was useful for ironing out the frequent ups and downs of the business cycle, and it was thought to give a better idea of the company's earning power than the results of the latest year alone. One important advantage of such an averaging process is that it will solve the problem of what to do about nearly all the special charges and credits. They should be included in the average earnings. For certainly most of these losses and gains represent a part of the company's operating history. If we do this for Alcoa, the average earnings for 1961 to 1970, 10 years, would appear as $3.62 and for the 7 years 1964 to 1970 as $4.62 per share. If such figures are used in conjunction with ratings for growth and stability of earnings during the same period, they could give a really informing picture of the company's past performance. Calculation of the Past Growth Rate It is of prime importance that the growth factor in a company's record be taken adequately into account. Where the growth has been large the recent earnings will be well above the 7 or 10 year average, and analysts may deem these long-term figures irrelevant. This need not be the case. The earnings can be given in terms both of the average and the latest figure. We suggest that the growth rate itself be calculated by comparing the average of the last three years with corresponding figures 10 years earlier. Where there is a problem of special charges or credits it may be dealt with on some compromise basis, note the following calculation for the growth of Alcoa as against that of Sears Roebuck and the Dow Jones Industrial Average Group as a whole. Comment: These few figures could be made the subject of a long discussion. They probably show as well as any others, derived by elaborate mathematical treatment, the actual growth of earnings for the long period 1958-1970. But how relevant is this figure? generally considered central in common stock valuations, to the case of Alcoa. Its past growth rate was excellent, actually a bit better than that of acclaimed Sears Roebuck and much higher than that of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Composite. But the market price at the beginning of 1971 seemed to pay no attention to this fine performance. Alcoa sold at only 111 halves times the recent three-year average, while Sears sold at 27 times and the Dow Jones Industrial Average itself at 15 plus times. How did this come about? Evidently Wall Street has fairly pessimistic views about the future course of Alcoa's earnings, in contrast with its past record. Surprisingly enough, the high price for Alcoa was made as far back as 1959. In that year it sold at 116, or 45 times its earnings. This compares with a 1959 adjusted high price of 251 halves for Sears Roebuck, or 20 times its then earnings, even though Alcoa's profits did show excellent growth thereafter.
it is evident that in this case the future possibilities were greatly overestimated in the market price. It closed 1978 exactly half of the 1959 high, while Sears tripled in price and the Dow Jones Industrial Average moved up nearly 30%. It should be pointed out that Alcoa's earnings on capital funds had been only average or less, and this may be the decisive factor here. High multipliers have been maintained in the stock market only if the company has maintained better than average profitability. Let us apply at this point to Alcoa the suggestion we made in the previous chapter for a two-part appraisal process. Such an approach might have produced a past performance value for Alcoa of 10% of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or $84 per share relative to the closing price of $840 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average in 1970. On this basis the shares would have appeared quite attractive at their price of 571 fourths. To what extent should the senior analyst have marked down the past performance value to allow for adverse developments that he saw in the future? Frankly, we have no idea. Assume he had reason to believe that the 1971 earnings would be as low as $2.50 per share, a large drop from the 1970 figure, as against an advance expected for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Very likely the stock market would take this poor performance quite seriously, but would it really establish the once mighty Aluminum Company of America as a relatively unprofitable enterprise, to be valued at less than its tangible assets behind the shares? In 1971 the price declined from a high of 70 in May to a low of 36 in December, against a book value of 55. Alcoa is surely a representative industrial company of huge size, but we think that its price and earnings history is more unusual, even contradictory, than that of most other large enterprises. Yet this instance supports to some degree, the doubts we expressed in the last chapter as to the dependability of the appraisal procedure when applied to the typical industrial company. Chapter 13 a comparison of four listed companies. In this chapter we should like to present a sample of security analysis and operation. We have selected, more or less at random, four companies which are found successively on the New York Stock Exchange list. These are Ultracorp, a merger of Electric, Autolite and Mergenthaler Linotype Enterprises, Emerson Electric Company, a manufacturer of electric and electronic products, Emery Air Freight, a domestic forwarder of air freight, and Emhart Corporation originally a maker of bottling machinery only, but now also in builder's hardware. There are some broad resemblances between the three manufacturing firms, but the differences will seem more significant. There should be sufficient variety in the financial and operating data to make the examination of interest. In Table 13 to 1 we present a summary of what the four companies were selling for in the market at the end of 1970, and a few figures on their 1970 operations. We then detail certain key ratios, which relate on the one hand to performance and on the other to price. Comment is called for on how various aspects of the performance pattern agree with the relative price pattern. Finally, we shall pass the four companies in review, suggesting some comparisons and relationships and evaluating each in terms of the requirements of a conservative common stock investor. Table 13 to 2 A Comparison of Four Listed Companies, Continued the most striking fact about the four companies is that the current price-slash-earnings ratios vary much more widely than their operating performance or financial condition. Two of the enterprises, Eltra and Emhart, were modestly priced at only 9.7 times and 12 times the average earnings for 1968 to 1970, as against a similar figure of 15.5 times for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The other two, Emerson and Emery, showed very high multiples of 33 and 45 times such earnings. There is bound to be some explanation of a difference such as this, and it is found in the superior growth of the favored company's profits in recent years, especially by the freight forwarder. 
but the growth figures of the other two firms were not unsatisfactory. For more comprehensive treatment let us review briefly the chief elements of performance as they appear from our figures. 1. Profitability. A. All the companies show satisfactory earnings on their book value, but the figures for Emerson and Emory are much higher than for the other two. A high rate of return on invested capital often goes along with a high annual growth rate in earnings per share. All the companies except Emory showed better earnings on book value in 1969 than in 1961, but the Emory figure was exceptionally large in both years. b. For manufacturing companies, the profit figure per dollar of sales is usually an indication of comparative strength or weakness. We use here the ratio of operating income to sales, as given in Standard & Poor's listed stock reports. Here again the results are satisfactory for all four companies, with an especially impressive showing by Emerson. The changes between 1961 and 1969 vary considerably among the companies. 2. Stability. This we measure by the maximum decline in per share earnings in any one of the past 10 years, as against the average of the three preceding years. No decline translates into 100% stability, and this was registered by the two popular concerns. But the shrinkages of Elter and Emhart were quite moderate in the poor year 1970, amounting to only 8% each by our measurement, against 7% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 3. Growth. The two low multiplier companies show quite satisfactory growth rates, in both cases doing better than the Dow Jones Group. The Elter figures are especially impressive when set against its low price-slash-earnings ratio. The growth is of course more impressive for the high multiplier pair. 4. Financial position. The three manufacturing companies are in sound financial condition, having better than the standard ratio of $2 of current assets for $1 of current liabilities. Emory Air Freight has a lower ratio, but it falls in a different category, and with its fine record it would have no problem raising needed cash. All the companies have relatively low long-term debt. Dilution note, Emerson Electric had $163 million of market value of low-dividend convertible preferred shares outstanding at the end of 1970. In our analysis we have made allowance for the dilution factor in the usual way by treating the preferred as if converted into common. This decreased recent earnings by about $0.10 cents per share, or some 4%. 5. Dividends. What really counts is the history of continuance without interruption. The best record here is Emhart's, which has not suspended a payment since 1902. Eltra's record is very good, Emerson's quite satisfactory, Emery Freight is a newcomer. The variations in payout percentage do not seem especially significant. The current dividend yield is twice as high on the cheap pair as on the dear pair, corresponding to the price-slash-earnings ratios. 6. Price History. The reader should be impressed by the percentage advance shown in the price of all four of these issues, as measured from the lowest to the highest points during the past 34 years. In all cases the low price has been adjusted for subsequent stock splits, note that for the Dow Jones Industrial Average the range from low to high was on the order of 11 to 1, for our companies the spread has varied from only 17 to 1 for Emhart to no less than 528 to 1 for Emory Air Freight. These manifold price advances are characteristic of most of our older common stock issues, and they proclaim the great opportunities of profit that have existed in the stock markets of the past. But they may indicate also how overdone were the declines in the bear markets before 1950 when the low prices were registered. Both Eltra and Emhart sustained price shrinkages of more than 50% in the 1969-70 price break. Emerson and Emory had serious, but less distressing, declines. The former rebounded to a new all-time high before the end of 1970, the latter in early 1971. General Observations on the Four Companies 
Emerson Electric has an enormous total market value, dwarfing the other three companies combined. It is one of our goodwill giants, to be commented on later. A financial analyst blessed, or handicapped, with a good memory will think of an analogy between Emerson Electric and Zenith Radio, and that would not be reassuring. For Zenith had a brilliant growth record for many years, it too sold in the market for $1.7 billion, in 1966, but its profits fell from $43 million in 1968 to only half as much in 1970, and in that year's big sell-off its price declined to 221 halves against the previous top of 89. High valuations entail high risks. Emory Air Freight must be the most promising of the four companies in terms of future growth, if the price-slash-earnings ratio of nearly 40 times its highest reported earnings is to be even partially justified. The past growth, of course, has been most impressive. But these figures may not be so significant for the future if we consider that they started quite small, at only $570,000 of net earnings in 1958. It often proves much more difficult to continue to grow at a high rate after volume and profits have already expanded to big totals. The most surprising aspect of Emory's story is that its earnings and market price continued to grow apace in 1970, which was the worst year in the domestic air passenger industry. This is a remarkable achievement indeed, but it raises the question whether future profits may not be vulnerable to adverse developments, through increased competition pressure for new arrangements between forwarders and airlines, etc. An elaborate study might be needed before a sound judgment could be passed on these points, but the conservative investor cannot leave them out of his general reckoning. Emhart and Eltra. Emhart has done better in its business than in the stock market over the past 14 years. In 1958 it sold as high as 22 times the current earnings, about the same ratio as for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Since then its profits tripled as against a rise of less than 100% for the Dow, but its closing price in 1970 was only a third above the 1958 high, versus 43% for the Dow. The record of Eltra is somewhat similar. It appears that neither of these companies possesses glamour, or sex appeal, in the present market, but in all the statistical data they show up surprisingly well. Their future prospects? We have no sage remarks to make here, but this is what Standard & Poor's had to say about the four companies in 1971. Eltra, long-term prospects, certain operations are cyclical, but an established competitive position and diversification are offsetting factors. Emerson Electric, while adequately priced, at 71, on the current outlook, the shares have appeal for the long-term may continue to quee. Sission policy together with a strong position in industrial fields and an accelerated international program suggests further sales and earnings progress. Emory Air Freight, the shares appear amply priced, at 57 on current prospects, but are well worth holding for the long pull. Emhart, although restricted this year by lower capital spending in the glass container industry, earnings should be aided by an improved business environment in 1972. The shares are worth holding, at 34. Conclusions Many financial analysts will find Emerson and Emery more interesting and appealing stocks than the other two, primarily, perhaps, because of their better market action, and secondarily because of their faster recent growth in earnings. Under our principles of conservative investment the first is not a valid reason for selection, that is something for the speculators to play around with. The second has validity, but within limits. Can the past growth and the presumably good prospects of Emory Air Freight justify a price more than 60 times its recent earnings? Question mark one our answer would be, maybe for someone who has made an in-depth study of the possibilities of this company and come up with exceptionally firm and optimistic conclusions. 
but not for the careful investor who wants to be reasonably sure in advance that he is not committing the typical Wall Street error of overenthusiasm for good performance in earnings and in the stock market. The same cautionary statements seem called for in the case of Emerson Electric, with a special reference to the market's current valuation of over a billion dollars for the intangible, or earning power, factor here. We should add that the electronics industry, once a fair-haired child of the stock market, has in general fallen on disastrous days. Emerson is an outstanding exception, but it will have to continue to be such an exception for a great many years in the future before the 1970 closing price will have been fully justified by its subsequent performance. By contrast, both Eltra at 27 and Amhart at 33 have the earmarks of companies with sufficient value behind their price to constitute reasonably protected investments. Here the investor can, if he wishes, consider himself basically a part owner of these businesses, at a cost corresponding to what the balance sheet shows to be the money invested therein. The rate of earnings on invested capital has long been satisfactory, the stability of profits also, the past growth rate surprisingly so. The two companies will meet our seven statistical requirements for inclusion in a defensive investor's portfolio. These will be developed in the next chapter, but we summarize them as follows. 1. Adequate size. 2. A sufficiently strong financial condition. 3. Continued dividends for at least the past 20 years. 4. No earnings deficit in the past 10 years. 5. 10-year growth of at least one-third in per-share earnings. 6. Price of stock no more than 11 halves times net asset value. 7. Price no more than 15 times average earnings of the past three years. We make no predictions about the future earnings performance of Eltro or Emhart. In the investor's diversified list of common stocks there are bound to be some that prove disappointing, and this may be the case for one or both of this pair. But the diversified list itself, based on the above principles of selection, plus whatever other sensible criteria the investor may wish to apply, should perform well enough across the years. At least, long experience tells us so. A final observation, an experienced security analyst, even if he accepted our general reasoning on these four companies, would have hesitated to recommend that a holder of Emerson or Emery exchange his shares for Eltro or Emhart at the end of 1970, unless the holder understood clearly the philosophy behind the recommendation. There was no reason to expect that in any short period of time the low multiplier duo would outperform the high multipliers. The latter were well thought of in the market and thus had a considerable degree of momentum behind them, which might continue for an indefinite period. The sound basis for preferring Eltra and Emhart to Emerson and Emery would be the client's considered conclusion that he preferred value-type investments to glamour-type investments. Thus, to a substantial extent, common stock investment policy must depend on the attitude of the individual investor. This approach is treated at greater length in our next chapter. Chapter 14 Stock Selection for the Defensive Investor It is time to turn to some broader applications of the techniques of security analysis. Since we have already described in general terms the investment policies recommended for our two categories of investors, it would be logical for us now to indicate how security analysis comes into play in order to implement these policies. The defensive investor who follows our suggestions will purchase only high-grade bonds plus a diversified list of leading common stocks. He is to make sure that the price at which he bought the latter is not unduly high as judged by applicable standards. In setting up this diversified list he has a choice of two approaches, the Dow Jones Industrial Average type of portfolio and the quantitatively tested portfolio. In the first he acquires a true cross-section sample of the leading issues, which will include both some favored growth companies, whose shares sell out especially high multipliers, and also less popular and less expensive enterprises. This could be done 
most simply perhaps, by buying the same amounts of all 30 of the issues in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Dow Jones Industrial Average. 10 shares of each, at the 900 level for the average, would cost an aggregate of about $16,000. On the basis of the past record he might expect approximately the same future results by buying shares of several representative investment funds. His second choice would be to apply a set of standards to each purchase, to make sure that he obtains, 1. A minimum of quality in the past performance and current financial position of the company, and also, 2. A minimum of quantity in terms of earnings and assets per dollar of price. At the close of the previous chapter we listed seven such quality and quantity criteria suggested for the selection of specific common stocks. Let us describe them in order. 1. Adequate size of the enterprise. All our minimum figures must be arbitrary and especially in the matter of size required. Our idea is to exclude small companies which may be subject to more than average vicissitudes especially in the industrial field. There are often good possibilities in such enterprises but we do not consider them suited to the needs of the defensive investor, let us use round amounts, not less than $100 million of annual sales for an industrial company and, not less than $50 million of total assets for a public utility. 2. A sufficiently strong financial condition. For industrial companies current assets should be at least twice current liabilities, a so-called 2 to 1 current ratio. Also, long-term debt should not exceed the net current assets, or working capital. For public utilities the debt should not exceed twice the stock equity, at book value. 3. Earnings stability. Some earnings for the common stock in each of the past 10 years. 4. Dividend record. Uninterrupted payments for at least the past 20 years. 5. Earnings growth. A minimum increase of at least one-third in per-share earnings in the past 10 years using three-year averages at the beginning and end. 6. Moderate price-slash-earnings ratio. Current price should not be more than 15 times average earnings of the past three years. 7. Moderate ratio of price to assets. Current price should not be more than 11 halves times the book value last reported. However, a multiplier of earnings below 15 could justify a correspondingly higher multiplier of assets. As a rule of thumb we suggest that the product of the multiplier times the ratio of price to book value should not exceed 22.5. This figure corresponds to 15 times earnings and 11 halves times book value. It would admit an issue selling at only 9 times earnings and 2.5 times asset value, etc. General Comments these requirements are set up especially for the needs and the temperament of defensive investors. They will eliminate the great majority of common stocks as candidates for the portfolio, and in two opposite ways. On the one hand they will exclude companies that are, 1, too small, 2, in relatively weak financial condition, 3, with a deficit stigma in their 10-year record, and, 4, not having a long history of continuous dividends. Of these tests the most severe under recent financial conditions are those of financial strength. A considerable number of our large and formerly strongly entrenched enterprises have weakened their current ratio or overexpanded their debt, or both, in recent years. Our last two criteria are exclusive in the opposite direction, by demanding more earnings and more assets per dollar of price than the popular issues will supply. This is by no means the standard viewpoint of financial analysts, in fact most will insist that even conservative investors should be prepared to pay generous prices for stocks of the choice companies. We have expounded our contrary view above, it rests largely on the absence of an adequate factor of safety when too large a portion of the price must depend on ever-increasing earnings in the future. The reader will have to decide this important question for himself, after weighing the arguments on both sides. 
we have nonetheless opted for the inclusion of a modest requirement of growth over the past decade. Without it the typical company would show retrogression, at least in terms of profit per dollar of invested capital. There is no reason for the defense of investor to include such companies, though if the price is low enough they could qualify as bargain opportunities. The suggested maximum figure of 15 times earnings might well result in a typical portfolio with an average multiplier of, say, 12 to 13 times. Note that in February 1972 American Telephone and Telephone sold at 11 times its three-year, and current, earnings, and Standard Oil of California at less than 10 times latest earnings. Our basic recommendation is that the stock portfolio, when acquired, should have an overall earnings-slash-price ratio, the reverse of the P.E. ratio, at least as high as the current high-grade bond rate. This would mean a P.E. ratio no higher than 13.3 against an A.A. bond yield of 7.5%. Application of our criteria to the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the end of 1970 All of our suggested criteria were satisfied by the Dow Jones Industrial Average issues at the end of 1970 but two of them just barely. Here is a survey based on the closing price of 1970 and the relevant figures. The basic data for each company are shown in tables 14 to 1 and 14 to 2. 1. Size is more than ample for each company. 2. Financial condition is adequate in the aggregate, but not for every company. 3. Some dividend has been paid by every company since at least 1940. 5 of the dividend records go back to the last century. Four. The aggregate earnings have been quite stable in the past decade. None of the companies reported a deficit during the prosperous period 1961-69, but Chrysler showed a small deficit in 1970. 5. The total growth, comparing three-year averages a decade apart, was 77%, or about 6% per year. But five of the firms did not grow by one-third. 6. The ratio of year-end price to three-year average earnings was $839 to $55.50 or 15 to 1, right at our suggested upper limit. 7. The ratio of price to net asset value was $839 to $562, also just within our suggested limit of 11 halves to 1. If, however, we wish to apply the same seven criteria to each individual company, we would find that only five of them would meet all our requirements. These would be, American can. American Telephone and Tel, Anaconda, Swift, and Woolworth. The totals for these five appear in Table 14 to 3. Naturally, they make a much better statistical showing than the Dow Jones Industrial Average as a whole, except in the past growth rate. Our application of specific criteria to this select group of industrial stocks indicates that the number meeting every one of our tests will be a relatively small percentage of all listed industrial issues. We hazard the guess that about 100 issues of this sort could have been found in the Standard & Poor's stock guide at the end of 1970, just about enough to provide the investor with a satisfactory range of personal choice. The Public Utility Solution If we turn now to the field of public utility stocks we find a much more comfortable and inviting situation for the investor. Here the vast majority of issues appear to be cut out, by their performance record and their price ratios, in accordance with the defense of investors' needs as we judge them. We exclude one criterion from our tests of public utility stocks, namely, the ratio of current assets to current liabilities. The working capital factor takes care of itself in this industry as part of the continuous financing of its growth by sales of bonds and shares. We do require an adequate proportion of stock capital to debt.4. In Table 14-4 we present a resume of the 15 issues in the Dow Jones Public Utility Average. For comparison, Table 14 to 5 gives a similar picture of a random selection of 15 other utilities taken from the New York Stock Exchange list.
1972 began the defense of investor could have had quite a wide choice of utility common stocks, each of which would have met our requirements for both performance and price. These companies offered him everything he had a right to demand from simply chosen common stock investments. In comparison with prominent industrial companies as represented by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, they offered almost as good a record of past growth, plus smaller fluctuations in the annual figures, both at a lower price in relation to earnings and assets. The dividend return was significantly higher. The position of the utilities as regulated monopolies is assuredly more of an advantage than a disadvantage for the conservative investor. Under law they are entitled to charge rates sufficiently remunerative to attract the capital they need for their continuous expansion, and this implies adequate offsets to inflated costs. While the process of regulation has often been cumbersome and perhaps dilatory, it has not prevented the utilities from earning a fair return on their rising invested capital over many decades. For the defensive investor the central appeal of the public utility stocks at this time should be their availability at a moderate price in relation to book value. This means that he can ignore stock market considerations, if he wishes, and consider himself primarily as a part owner of well-established and well-earning businesses. The market quotations are always there for him to take advantage of when times are propitious, either for purchases at unusually attractive low levels, or for sales when their prices seem definitely too high. The market record of the public utility indexes, condensed in Table 14-6, to 6, along with those of other groups, indicates that there have been ample possibilities of profit in these investments in the past. While the rise has not been as great as in the industrial index, the individual utilities have shown more price stability in most periods than have other groups. It is striking to observe in this table that the relative price-slash-earnings ratios of the industrials and the utilities have changed places during the past two decades. These reversals will have more meaning for the active than for the passive investor. But they suggest that even defensive portfolios should be changed from time to time, especially if the securities purchased have an apparently excessive advance and can be replaced by issues much more reasonably priced. Alas! There will be capital gains taxes to pay, which for the typical investor seems to be about the same as the devil to pay. Our old ally, experience, tells us here that it is better to sell and pay the tax than not sell and repent. Investing in Stocks of Financial Enterprises A considerable variety of concerns may be ranged under the rubric of financial companies. These would include banks, insurance companies, savings and loan associations, credit and small loan companies, mortgage companies, and investment companies, for example, mutual funds. It is characteristic of all these enterprises that they have a relatively small part of their assets in the form of material things, such as fixed assets and merchandise inventories. But on the other hand most categories have short-term obligations well in excess of their stock capital. The question of financial soundness is, therefore, more relevant here than in the case of the typical manufacturing or commercial enterprise. This, in turn, has given rise to various forms of regulation and supervision, with the design and general result of assuring against unsound financial practices. Broadly speaking, the shares of financial concerns have pro-duced investment results similar to those of other types of common shares. Table 14-7 shows price changes between 1948 and 1970 in six groups represented in the Standard & Poor's Stock Price Indexes. The average for 1941-1943 is taken as 10, the base level. The year-end 1970 figures ranged between 44.3 for the 9 New York banks and 218 for the 11 life insurance stocks. During the sub-intervals there was considerable variation in the respective price movements. For example, the New York City bank stocks did quite well between 1958 and 1968, conversely the Spectacular Life Insurance Group actually lost ground between 1963 and 1968. 
These cross-movements are found in many, perhaps most, of the numerous industry groups in the Standard & Poor's indexes. We have no very helpful remarks to offer in this broad area of investment, other than to counsel that the same arithmetical standards for price in relation to earnings and book value be applied to the choice of companies in these groups as we have suggested for industrial and public utility investments. Railroad Issues The railroad story is a far different one from that of the utilities. The carriers have suffered severely from a combination of severe competition and strict regulation. Their labor cost problem has of course been difficult as well, but that has not been confined to railroads, automobiles, buses, and airlines have drawn off most of their passenger business and left the rest highly unprofitable, the trucks have taken a good deal of their freight traffic. More than half of the railroad mileage of the country has been in bankruptcy, or trusteeship, at various times during the past 50 years. But this half-century has not been all downhill for the carriers. There have been prosperous periods for the industry, especially the war years. Some of the lines have managed to maintain their earning power and their dividends despite the general difficulties. The Standard & Poor's Index advanced sevenfold from the low of 1942 to the high of 1968, not much below the percentage gain in the Public Utility Index. The bankruptcy of the Penn Central Transportation Company, our most important railroad, in 1970 shocked the financial world. Only a year and two years previously the stock sold at close to the highest price level in its long history, and it had paid continuous dividends for more than 120 years. On P. 423 below we present a brief analysis of this railroad to illustrate how a competent student could have detected the developing weaknesses in the company's picture and counseled against ownership of its securities. The market level of railroad shares as a whole was seriously affected by this financial disaster. It is usually unsound to make blanket recommendations of whole classes of securities, and there are equal objections to broad condemnations. The record of railroad share prices in Table 14-6 shows that the group as a whole has often offered chances for a large profit. But in our view the great advances were in themselves largely unwarranted, let us confine our suggestion to this, there is no compelling reason for the investor to own railroad shares, before he buys any he should make sure that he is getting so much value for his money that it would be unreasonable to look for something else instead. Selectivity for the defense of investor Every investor would like his list to be better or more promising than the average. Hence the reader will ask whether, if he gets himself a competent advisor or security analyst, he should not be able to count on being supplied with an investment package of really superior merits. After all, he may say, the rules you have outlined are pretty simple and easygoing. A highly trained analyst ought to be able to use all his skill and techniques to improve substantially on something as obvious as the Dow Jones list. If not, what good are all his statistics? calculations, and pontifical judgments. Suppose, as a practical test, we had asked a hundred security analysts to choose the best five stocks in the Dow Jones average, to be bought at the end of 1970. Few would have come up with identical choices and many of the lists would have differed completely from each other. This is not so surprising as it may at first appear. The underlying reason is that the current price of each prominent stock pretty well reflects the salient factors in its financial record plus the general opinion as to its future prospects. Hence the view of any analyst that one stock is a better buy than the rest must arise to a great extent from his personal partialities and expectations, or from the placing of his emphasis on one set of factors rather than on another in his work of evaluation. If all analysts were agreed that one particular stock was better than all the rest, that issue would quickly advance to a price which would offset all of its previous advantages. Our statement that the current price reflects both known facts and future expectations was intended to emphasize the double basis for market valuations. 
corresponding with these two kinds of value elements are two basically different approaches to security analysis. To be sure, every competent analyst looks forward to the future rather than backward to the past, and he realizes that his work will prove good or bad depending on what will happen and not on what has happened. Nevertheless, the future itself can be approached in two different ways, which may be called the way of prediction, or projection, and the way of protection. Those who emphasize prediction will endeavor to anticipate fairly accurately just what the company will accomplish in future years, in particular whether earnings will show pronounced and persistent growth. These conclusions may be based on a very careful study of such factors as supply and demand in the industry, or volume, price, and costs, or else they may be derived from a rather naive projection of the line of past growth into the future. If these authorities are convinced that the fairly long-term prospects are unusually favorable, they will almost always recommend the stock for purchase without paying too much regard to the level at which it is selling. Such, for example, was the general attitude with respect to the air transport stocks, an attitude that persisted for many years despite the distressingly bad results often shown after 1946. In the introduction we have commented on the disparity between the strong price action and the relatively disappointing earnings record of this industry. By contrast, those who emphasize protection are always especially concerned with the price of the issue at the time of study. Their main effort is to assure themselves of a substantial margin of indicated present value above the market price, which margin could absorb unfavorable developments in the future. Generally speaking, therefore, it is not so necessary for them to be enthusiastic over the company's long-run prospects as it is to be reasonably confident that the enterprise will get along. The first, or predictive, approach could also be called the qualitative approach, since it emphasizes prospects, management, and other non-measurable, albeit highly important, factors that go under the heading of quality. The second, or protective, approach may be called the quantitative or statistical approach, since it emphasizes the measurable relationships between selling price and earnings, assets, dividends, and so forth. Incidentally, the quantitative method is really an extension, into the field of common stocks, of the viewpoint that security analysis has found to be sound in the selection of bonds and preferred stocks for investment. In our own attitude and professional work we were always committed to the quantitative approach. From the first we wanted to make sure that we were getting ample value for our money in concrete, demonstrable terms. We were not willing to accept the prospects and promises of the future as compensation for a lack of sufficient value in hand. This has by no means been the standard viewpoint among investment authorities, in fact, the majority would probably subscribe to the view that prospects, quality of management, other intangibles, and the human factor far outweigh the indications supplied by any study of the past record, the balance sheet, and all the other cold figures. Thus this matter of choosing the best stocks is at bottom a highly controversial one. Our advice to the defensive investor is that he let it alone. Let him emphasize diversification more than individual selection. Incidentally, the universally accepted idea of diversification is, in part at least, the negation of the ambitious pretensions of selectivity. If one could select the best stocks unerringly, one would only lose by diversifying. Yet within the limits of the four most general rules of common stock selection suggested for the defense of investor, on pages 114 to 115, there is room for a rather considerable freedom of preference. At the worst the indulgence of such preferences should do no harm, beyond that, it may add something worthwhile to the results. With the increasing impact of technological developments on long-term corporate results, the investor cannot leave them out of his calculations. Here, as elsewhere, he must seek a mean between neglect and overemphasis. Chapter 15. Stock Selection for the Enterprising Investor. 
In the previous chapter we have dealt with common stock selection in terms of broad groups of eligible securities, from which the defensive investor is free to make up any list that he or his advisor prefers, provided adequate diversification is achieved. Our emphasis in selection has been chiefly on exclusions, advising on the one hand against all issues of recognizably poor quality, and on the other against the highest quality issues if their price is so high as to involve a considerable speculative risk. In this chapter, addressed to the enterprising investor, we must consider the possibilities and the means of making individual selections which are likely to prove more profitable than an across-the-board average. What are the prospects of doing this successfully? We would be less than frank, as the euphemism goes, if we did not at the outset express some grave reservations on this score. At first blush the case for successful selection appears self-evident. To get average results, for example, equivalent to the performance of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, should require no special ability of any kind. All that is needed is a portfolio identical with, or similar to, those 30 prominent issues. Surely, then, by the exercise of even a moderate degree of skill, derived from study, experience, and native ability, it should be possible to obtain substantially better results than the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Yet there is considerable and impressive evidence to the effect that this is very hard to do, even though the qualifications of those trying it are of the highest. The evidence lies in the record of the numerous investment companies, or funds, which have been in operation for many years. Most of these funds are large enough to command the services of the best financial or security analysts in the field, together with all the other constituents of an adequate research department. Their expenses of operation, when spread over their ample capital, average about one-half of one percent a year thereon, or less. These costs are not negligible in themselves but when they are compared with the approximately 15% annual overall return on common stocks generally in the decade 1951 to 1960, and even the 6% return in 1961 to 1970, they do not bulk large. A small amount of superior selective ability should easily have overcome that expense handicap and brought in a superior net result for the fund shareholders. Taken as a whole, however, the all-common stock funds failed over a long span of years to earn quite as good a return as was shown on Standard & Poor's 500 stock averages or the market as a whole. This conclusion has been substantiated by several comprehensive studies. To quote the latest one before us, covering the period 1960-1968. It appears from these results that random portfolios of New York Stock Exchange stocks with equal investment in each stock performed on the average better over the period than did mutual funds in the same risk class. The differences were fairly substantial for the low and medium risk portfolios, 3.7% and 2.5% respectively per annum, but quite small for the high risk portfolios, 0.2% per annum. As we pointed out in Chapter 9, these comparative figures in no way invalidate the usefulness of the investment funds as a financial institution. For they do make available to all members of the investing public the possibility of obtaining approximately average results on their common stock commitments. For a variety of reasons, most members of the public who put their money in common stocks of their own choice fail to do nearly as well. But to the objective observer the failure of the funds to better the performance of a broad average is a pretty conclusive indication that such an achievement, instead of being easy, is in fact extremely difficult. Why should this be so? We can think of two different explanations, each of which may be partially applicable. The first is the possibility that the stock market does in fact reflect in the current prices not only all the important facts about the company's past and current performance, but also whatever expectations can be reasonably formed as to their future. If this is so, then the diverse market movements which subsequently take place, and these are often extreme, 
must be the result of new developments and probabilities that could not be reliably foreseen. This would make the price movements essentially fortuitous and random. To the extent that the foregoing is true, the work of the security analyst, however intelligent and thorough, must be largely ineffective, because in essence he is trying to predict the unpredictable. The very multiplication of the number of security analysts may have played an important part in bringing about this result. With hundreds, even thousands, of experts studying the value factors behind an important common stock, it would be natural to expect that its current price would reflect pretty well the consensus of informed opinion on its value. Those who would prefer it to other issues would do so for reasons of personal partiality or optimism that could just as well be wrong as right. We have often thought of the analogy between the work of the host of security analysts on Wall Street and the performance of master bridge players at a duplicate bridge tournament. The former try to pick the stocks most likely to succeed, the latter to get top score for each hand played. Only a limited few can accomplish either aim. To the extent that all the bridge players have about the same level of expertness, the winners are likely to be determined by breaks of various sorts rather than superior skill. On Wall Street the leveling process is helped along by the Freemasonry that exists in the profession, under which ideas and discoveries are quite freely shared at the numerous get-togethers of various sorts. It is almost as if, at the analogous bridge tournament, the various experts were looking over each other's shoulders and arguing out each hand as it was played. The second possibility is of a quite different sort. Perhaps many of the security analysts are handicapped by a flaw in their basic approach to the problem of stock selection. They seek the industries with the best prospects of growth, and the companies in these industries with the best management and other advantages. The implication is that they will buy into such industries and such companies at any price, however high, and they will avoid less promising industries and companies no matter how low the price of their shares. This would be the only correct procedure if the earnings of the good companies were sure to grow at a rapid rate indefinitely in the future, for then in theory their value would be infinite. And if the less promising companies were headed for extinction, with no salvage, the analysts would be right to consider them unattractive at any price. The truth about our corporate ventures is quite otherwise. Extremely few companies have been able to show a high rate of uninterrupted growth for long periods of time. Remarkably few, also, of the larger companies suffer ultimate extinction. For most, their history is one of vicissitudes, of ups and downs, of change in their relative standing. In some the variations from rags to riches and back have been repeated on almost a cyclical basis, the phrase used to be a standard one applied to the steel industry, for others spectacular changes have been identified with deterioration or improvement of management. How does the foregoing inquiry apply to the enterprising investor who would like to make individual selections that will yield superior results? It suggests first of all that he is taking on a difficult and perhaps impracticable assignment. Readers of this book, however intelligent and knowing, could scarcely expect to do a better job of portfolio selection than the top analysts of the country. But if it is true that a fairly large segment of the stock market is often discriminated against or entirely neglected in the standard analytical selections, then the intelligent investor may be in a position to profit from the resultant undervaluations. But to do so he must follow specific methods that are not generally accepted on Wall Street, since those that are so accepted do not seem to produce the results everyone would like to achieve. It would be rather strange if, with all the brains that work professionally in the stock market, there could be approaches which are both sound and relatively unpopular. Yet our own career and reputation have been based on this unlikely fact. A Summary of the Graham Newman Methods To give concreteness to the last statement, it should be worthwhile to give a brief account of the types of operations we engaged in during the 30-year life of Graham Newman Corporation, between 1926 and 1956. These were classified in our records as follows. 
Arbitrages, the purchase of a security and the simultaneous sale of one or more other securities into which it was to be exchanged under a plan of reorganization, merger, or the like. Liquidations, purchase of shares which were to receive one or more cash payments and liquidation of the company's assets. Operations of these two classes were selected on the twin basis of, a, a calculated annual return of 20% or more, and, b, our judgment that the chance of a successful outcome was at least 4 out of 5. Related hedges, the purchase of convertible bonds or convertible preferred shares, and the simultaneous sale of the common stock into which they were exchangeable. The position was established at close to a parity basis, i.e., at a small maximum loss if the senior issue had actually to be converted and the operation closed out in that way. But a profit would be made if the common stock fell considerably more than the senior issue, and the position closed out in the market. Net current asset, or bargain, issues, the idea here was to acquire as many issues as possible at a cost for each of less than their book value in terms of net current assets alone, i.e., giving no value to the plant account and other assets. Our purchases were made typically at two-thirds or less of such stripped-down asset value. In most years we carried a wide diversification here, at least 100 different issues. We should add that from time to time we had some large-scale acquisitions of the control type, but these are not relevant to the present discussion. We kept close track of the results shown by each class of operation. In consequence of these follow-ups we discontinued two broader fields, which were found not to have shown satisfactory overall results. The first was the purchase of apparently attractive issues, based on our general analysis, which were not obtainable at less than their working capital value alone. The second were unrelated hedging operations, in which the purchase security was not exchangeable for the common shares sold. Such operations correspond roughly to those recently embarked on by the new group of hedge funds in the investment company field. In both cases a study of the results realized by us over a period of 10 years or more led us to conclude that the profits were not sufficiently dependable, and the operations not sufficiently headache-proof to justify our continuing them. Hence from 1939 on our operations were limited to self-liquidating situations, related hedges, working capital bargains, and a few control operations. Each of these classes gave us quite consistently satisfactory results from then on, with the special feature that the related hedges turned in good profits in the bear markets when our undervalued issues were not doing so well. We hesitate to prescribe our own diet for any large number of intelligent investors. Obviously, the professional techniques we have followed are not suitable for the defensive investor, who by definition is an amateur. As for the aggressive investor, Perhaps only a small minority of them would have the type of temperament needed to limit themselves so severely to only a relatively small part of the world of securities. Most active-minded practitioners would prefer to venture into wider channels. Their natural hunting grounds would be the entire field of securities that they felt, a, were certainly not overvalued by conservative measures, and, b, appeared decidedly more attractive, because of their prospects or past record, or both, than the average common stock. In such choices they would do well to apply various tests of quality and price reasonableness along the lines we have proposed for the defensive investor. But they should be less inflexible, permitting a considerable plus in one factor to offset a small black mark in another. For example, he might not rule out a company which had shown a deficit in a year such as 1970, if large average earnings and other important attributes made the stock look cheap. The enterprising investor may confine his choice to industries and companies about which he holds an optimistic view but we counsel strongly against paying a high price for a stock, in relation to earnings and assets, because of such enthusiasm. If he followed our philosophy in this field he would more likely be the buyer of important cyclical enterprises, such as steel chairs perhaps, when the current situation is unfavorable, 
the near-term prospects are poor, and the low price fully reflects the current pessimism. Secondary companies Next in order for examination and possible selection would come secondary companies that are making a good showing, have a satisfactory past record, but appear to hold no charm for the public. These would be enterprises on the order of Eltra and Emhard at their 1970 closing prices. See Chapter 13 above. There are various ways of going about locating such companies. We should like to try a novel approach here and give a reasonably detailed exposition of one such exercise in stock selection. Ours is a double purpose. Many of our readers may find a substantial practical value in the method we shall follow, or it may suggest comparable methods to try out. Beyond that what we shall do may help them to come to grips with the real world of common stocks, and introduce them to one of the most fascinating and valuable little volumes in existence. It is standard and poor stock guide published monthly, and made available to the general public under annual subscription. In addition many brokerage firms distribute the guide to their clients, on request. The great bulk of the guide is given over to about 230 pages of condensed statistical information on the stocks of more than 4,500 companies. These include all the issues listed on the various exchanges, say 3,000, plus some 1,500 unlisted issues. Most of the items needed for a first and even a second look at a given company appear in this compendium. From our viewpoint the important missing datum is the net asset value, or book value, per share, which can be found in the larger standard and poor's volumes and elsewhere. The investor who likes to play around with corporate figures will find himself in clover with the stock guide. He can open to any page and see before his eyes a condensed panorama of the splendors and miseries of the stock market with all-time high and low prices going as far back as 1936, when available. He will find companies that have multiplied their price 2,000 times from the minuscule low to the majestic high. For prestigious IBM the growth was only 333 times in that period, he will find, not so exceptionally, a company whose shares advanced from 3 eighths to 68, and then fell back to 3.2 in the dividend record column he will find one that goes back to 1791, paid by Industrial National Bank of Rhode Island which recently saw fit to change its ancient corporate name. If he looks at the guide for the year and 1969 he will read that Penn Central Company, as successor to Pennsylvania Railroad, has been paying dividends steadily since 1848, alas, it was doomed to bankruptcy a few months later. He will find a company selling at only two times its last reported earnings, and another selling at 99 times such earnings. Three In most cases he will find it difficult to tell the line of business from the corporate name. For one U.S. steel there will be three called such things as ITI Corporation, Bakery Stuff, or Santa Fe Industries, mainly the large railroad. He can feast on an extraordinary variety of price histories, dividend and earnings histories, financial positions, capitalization setups, and whatnot. Backward-leaning conservatism, run-of-the-mind featureless companies, the most peculiar combinations of principal business, all kinds of Wall Street gadgets and widgets, they are all there, waiting to be browsed over or studied with a serious objective. The guides give in separate columns the current dividend yields and price-slash-earnings ratios, based on latest 12-month figures, wherever applicable. It is this last item that puts us on the track of our exercise in common stock selection. A winnowing of the stock guide. Suppose we look for a simple prima facie indication that a stock is cheap. The first such clue that comes to mind is a low price in relation to recent earnings. Let's make a preliminary list of stocks that sold at a multiple of 9 or less at the end of 1970. That datum is conveniently provided in the last column of the even-numbered pages. For an illustrative sample we shall take the first 20 such low multiplier stocks, they begin with the sixth issue listed, Aberdeen Manufacturing Company, which closed the year at 101 fourths, 
or nine times its reported earnings of $1.25 per share for the 12 months ended September 1970. The 20th such issue is American Maize Products, which closed at 91 halves, also with a multiplier of 9. The group may have seemed mediocre, with 10 issues selling below $10 per share. This fact is not truly important, it would probably, not necessarily, warn defensive investors against such a list, but the inference for enterprising investors might be favorable on balance. Before making a further scrutiny let us calculate some numbers. Our list represents about 1 in 10 of the first 200 issues looked at. On that basis the guide should yield, say, 450 issues selling at multipliers under 10. This would make a goodly number of candidates for further selectivity. So let us apply to our list some additional criteria, rather similar to those we suggested for the defensive investor, but not so severe. We suggest the following. 1. Financial condition, A current assets at least 11 halves times current liabilities, and, b, debt not more than 110% of net current assets, for industrial companies. 2. Earnings stability, no deficit in the last five years covered in the stock guide. 3. Dividend record, some current dividend. 4. Earnings growth, last year's earnings more than those of 1966. 5. Price, less than 120% net tangible assets. The earnings figures in the guide were generally for those ending September 30, 1970, and thus do not include what may be a bad quarter at the end of that year. But an intelligent investor can't ask for the moon, at least not to start with. Note also that we set no lower limit on the size of the enterprise. Small companies may afford enough safety if bought carefully and on a group basis. When we have applied the five additional criteria our list of 20 candidates is reduced to only five. Let us continue our search until the first 450 issues in the guide have yielded us a little portfolio of 15 stocks meeting our six requirements. They are set forth in Table 15 to 1, together with some relevant data. The group, of course, is presented for illustration only, and would not necessarily have been chosen by our inquiring investor. The fact is that the user of our method would have had a much wider choice. If our winnowing approach had been applied to all 4,500 companies in the stock guide, and if the ratio for the first tenth had held good throughout, we would end up with about 150 companies meeting all six of our criteria of selection. The enterprising investor would then be able to follow his judgment, or his partialities and prejudices, in making a third selection of, say, one out of five in this ample list. The stock guide material includes earnings and dividend rankings, which are based on stability and growth of these factors for the past eight years. Thus price attractiveness does not enter here. We include the S&P rankings in our table 15 to 1. 10 of the 15 issues are ranked B+, equals average, and 1, American Maze, is given the high rating of A. If our enterprising investor wanted to add a seventh mechanical criterion to his choice, by considering only issues ranked by standard and poor's as average or better in quality, he might still have about 100 such issues to choose from. One might say that a group of issues, of at least average quality, meeting criteria of financial condition as well purchasable at a low multiplier of current earnings and below asset value, should offer good promise of satisfactory investment results. Single Criteria for Choosing Common Stocks An inquiring reader might well ask whether the choice of a better-than-average portfolio could be made a simpler affair than we have just outlined. Could a single plausible criterion be used to good advantage, such as a low price-slash-earnings ratio, or a high dividend return, or a large asset value? The two methods of this sort that we have found to give quite consistently good results in the longer past have been, a, the purchase of low multiplier stocks of important companies, such as the Dow Jones Industrial Average List, and, 
b. The choice of a diversified group of stocks selling under their net current asset value, or working capital value. We have already pointed out that the low multiplier criterion applied to the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the end of 1968 worked out badly when the results are measured to mid-1971. The record of common stock purchases made at a price below their working capital value has no such bad mark against it, the drawback here has been the drying up of such opportunities during most of the past decade. What about other bases of choice? In writing this book we have made a series of experiments, each based on a single, fairly obvious criterion. The data used would be readily found in the Standard & Poor's Stock Guide. In all cases a 30-stock portfolio was assumed to have been acquired at the 1968 closing prices and then re-evaluated at June 30, 1971. The separate criteria applied were the following, as applied to otherwise random choices, 1, a low multiplier of recent earnings, not confined to Dow Jones Industrial Average issues, 2, a high dividend return, 3, a very long dividend record, 4, a very large enterprise, as measured by number of outstanding shares. 5. A strong financial position. 6. A low price in dollars per share. 7. A low price in relation to the previous high price. 8. A high quality ranking by Standard & Poor's. It will be noted that the stock guide has at least one column relating to each of the above criteria. This indicates the publisher's belief that each is of importance in analyzing and choosing common stocks. As we pointed out above, we should like to see another figure added, the net asset value per share. The most important fact that emerges from our various tests relates to the performance of stocks bought at random. We have tested this performance for three 30-stock portfolios, each made up of issues found on the first line of the December 31, 1968, stock guide and also found in the issue for August 31, 1971. Between these two dates the S&P composite was practically unchanged, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost about 5%. But our 90 randomly chosen issues declined an average of 22% not counting 19 issues that were dropped from the guide and probably showed larger losses. These comparative results undoubtedly reflect the tendency of smaller issues of inferior quality to be relatively overvalued in bull markets, and not only to suffer more serious declines than the stronger issues in the ensuing price collapse, but also to delay their full recovery, in many cases indefinitely. The moral for the intelligent investor is, of course, to avoid second quality issues in making up a portfolio, unless, for the enterprising investor, they are demonstrable bargains. Other results gleaned from our portfolio studies may be summarized as follows. Only three of the groups studied showed up better than the S&P composite, and hence better than the Dow Jones Industrial Average, viz. 1. Industrials with the highest quality ranking, A+. These advanced 91 halves of a percent in the period against a decline of 2.4% for the S&P Industrials, and 5.6% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. However, the 10 public utility issues rated A-plus declined 18% against a decline of 14% for the 55-stock S&P Public Utility Index, it is worth remarking that the S&P rankings showed up very well in the single test. In every case a portfolio based on a higher ranking did better than a lower ranking portfolio. 2. Companies with more than 50 million shares outstanding showed no change on the whole, as against a small decline for the indexes. 3. Strangely enough, stocks selling at a high price per share, over 100, showed a slight, 1%, composite advance. Among our various tests we made one based on book value, a figure not given in the stock guide. Here we found, contrary to our investment philosophy, that companies that combined major size with a large goodwill component in their market price did very well as a whole in the 21 halves year holding period. 
By goodwill component we mean the part of the price that exceeds the book value. Our list of goodwill giants was made up of 30 issues, each of which had a goodwill component of over a billion dollars, representing more than half of its market price. The total market value of these goodwill items at the end of 1968 was more than $120 billions. Despite these optimistic market valuations the group as a whole showed a price advance per share of 15% between December 1968 and August 1971, and acquitted itself best among the 20-odd lists studied. A fact like this must not be ignored in a work on investment policies. It is clear that, at the least, a considerable momentum is attached to those companies that combine the virtues of great size, an excellent past record of earnings, the public's expectation of continued earnings growth in the future, and strong market action over many past years. Even if the price may appear excessive by our quantitative standards the underlying market momentum may well carry such issues along more or less indefinitely. Naturally this assumption does not apply to every individual issue in the category. For example, the indisputable goodwill leader, IBM, moved down from 315 to 304 in the 30-month period, it is difficult to judge to what extent the superior market action shown is due to true or objective investment merits and to what extent to long-established popularity. No doubt both factors are important here. Clearly, both the long-term and the recent market action of the goodwill giants would recommend them for a diversified portfolio of common stocks. Our own preference, however, remains for other types that show a combination of favorable investment factors, including asset values of at least two-thirds the market price. The tests using other criteria indicate in general that random lists based on a single favorable factor did better than random lists chosen for the opposite factor, for example, Low multiplier issues had a smaller decline in this period than high multiplier issues, and long-term dividend payers lost less than those that were not paying dividends at the end of 1968. To that extent the results support our recommendation that the issue selected meet a combination of quantitative or tangible criteria. Finally we should comment on the much poorer showing made by our lists as a whole as compared with the price record of the S&P composite. The latter is weighted by the size of each enterprise, whereas our tests are based on taking one share of each company. Evidently the larger emphasis given to giant enterprises by the S&P method made a significant difference in the results, and points up once again their greater price stability as compared with run-of-the-mine companies. Bargain Issues, or Net Current Asset Stocks In the tests discussed above we did not include the results of buying 30 issues at a price less than their net current asset value. The reason was that only a handful at most, of such issues would have been found in the stock guide at the end of 1968. But the picture changed in the 1970 decline, and at the low prices of that year a goodly number of common stocks could have been bought at below their working capital value. It always seemed, and still seems, ridiculously simple to say that if one can acquire a diversified group of common stocks at a price less than the applicable net current assets alone, after deducting all prior claims, and counting as zero the fixed and other assets, the results should be quite satisfactory. They were so, in our experience, for more than 30 years, say, between 1923 and 1957, excluding a time of real trial in 1930-1932. Has this approach any relevance at the beginning of 1971? Our answer would be a qualified yes. A quick run over of the stock guide would have uncovered some 50 or more issues that appeared to be obtainable at or below net current asset value. As might be expected a good many of these had been doing badly in the difficult year 1970. If we eliminated those which had reported net losses in the last 12-month period we would be still left with enough issues to make up a diversified list. We have included in Table 15-2 to some data on five issues that sold at less than their working capital value at their low prices of 1970. 
These give some food for reflection on the nature of stock price fluctuations. How does it come about that well-established companies, whose brands are household names all over the country, could be valued at such low figures, at the same time when other concerns, with better earnings growth of course, were selling for billions of dollars in excess of what their balance sheets showed? To quote the old days once more, the idea of goodwill as an element of intangible value was usually associated with a trade name. Names such as Lady Pepperell in sheets, Jensen in swimsuits, and Parker in pens would be considered assets of great value indeed. But now, if the market doesn't like a company, not only renowned trade names but land, buildings, machinery, and what you will, can all count for nothing in its scales. Pascal said that the heart has its reasons that the reason doesn't understand. For heart read Wall Street. There is another contrast that comes to mind. When the going is good and new issues are readily saleable, stock offerings of no quality at all make their appearance. They quickly find buyers, their prices are often bid up enthusiastically right after issuance to levels in relation to assets and earnings that would put IBM, Xerox, and Polaroid to shame. Wall Street takes this madness in its stride, with no overt efforts by anyone to call a halt before the inevitable collapse in prices. The SEC can't do much more than insist on disclosure of information, about which the speculative public couldn't care less, or announce investigations and usually mild punitive actions of various sorts after the letter of the law has been clearly broken, when many of these minuscule but grossly inflated enterprises disappear from view, or nearly so, it is all taken philosophically enough as part of the game. Everybody swears off such inexcusable extravagances, until next time. Thanks for the lecture, says the gentle reader. But what about your bargain issues? Can one really make money in them without taking a serious risk? Yes indeed, if you can find enough of them to make a diversified group, and if you don't lose patience if they fail to advance soon after you buy them. Sometimes the patience needed may appear quite considerable. In our previous edition we hazarded a single example, p. 188, which was current as we wrote. It was Burton Dixie Corporation, with stock selling at 20, against net current asset value of 30 and book value of about 50. A profit on that purchase would not have been immediate. But in August 1967 all the shareholders were offered 533 fourths for their shares, probably at just about book value. A patient holder, who had bought the shares in March 1964 at 20 would have had a profit of 165% in 31 halves years, a non-compounded annual return of 47%. Most of the bargain issues in our experience have not taken that long to show good profits nor have they shown so high a rate. For a somewhat similar situation, current as we write, see our discussion of National Presto Industries above, p. 168. Special Situations or Workouts Let us touch briefly on this area, since it is theoretically includable in the program of operations of an enterprising investor. It was commented upon above. Here we shall supply some examples of the genre, and some further remarks on what it appears to offer an open-minded and alert investor. Three such situations, among others, were current early in 1971, and they may be summarized as follows. Situation 1. Acquisition of Kaiser Roth by Bordens. In January 1971 Borden Incorporated announced a plan to acquire control of Kaiser Roth, diversified apparel, by giving 11 third shares of its own stock in exchange for one share of Kaiser Roth. On the following day, in active trading, Borden closed at 26 and Kaiser Roth at 28. If an operator had bought 300 shares of Kaiser Roth and sold 400 Borden at these prices and if the deal were later consummated on the announced terms, he would have had a profit of some 24% on the cost of his shares, less commissions and some other items. Assuming the deal had gone through in six months, 
his final profit might have been at about a 40% per annum rate. Situation 2. In November 1970 National Biscuit Company offered to buy control of Aurora Plastics Company at $11 in cash. The stock was selling at about 81 halves, it closed the month at 9 and continued to sell there at year-end. Here the gross profit indicated was originally about 25%. Situation 3. Universal Marion Company, which had ceased its business operations, asked its shareholders to ratify dissolution of the concern. The treasurer indicated that the common stock had a book value of about $281 halves per share, a substantial part of which was in liquid form. The stock closed 1970 at 211 halves, indicating a possible gross profit here, if book value was realized in liquidation, of more than 30%. If operations of this kind, conducted on a diversified basis for spreading the risk, could be counted to yield annual profits of, say, 20% or better, they would undoubtedly be more than merely worthwhile. Since this is not a book on special situations, we are not going into the details of the business, for it really is a business. Let us point out two contradictory developments there in recent years. On the one hand the number of deals to choose from has increased enormously, as compared with, say, 10 years ago. This is a consequence of what might be called a mania of corporations to diversify their activities through various types of acquisitions, etc. In 1970 the number of merger announcements aggregated some 5,000, down from over 6,000 in 1969. The total money values involved in these deals amounted to many, many billions. Perhaps only a small fraction of the 5,000 announcements could have presented a clear-cut opportunity for purchase of shares by a special situations man but this fraction was still large enough to keep him busy studying, picking, and choosing. The other side of the picture is that an increasing proportion of the mergers announced fail to be consummated. In such cases, of course, the aimed for profit is not realized, and is likely to be replaced by a more or less serious loss. Reasons for non-success are numerous, including antitrust intervention, shareholder opposition, change in market conditions, unfavorable indications from further study inability to agree on details, and others. The trick here, of course, is to have the judgment, buttressed by experience, to pick the deals most likely to succeed and also those which are likely to occasion the smallest loss if they fail. Kaiser Roth. The directors of this company had already rejected, in January 1971, the Borden proposal when this chapter was written. If the operation had been undone immediately the overall loss, including commissions, would have been about 12% of the cost of the Kaiser Roth's shares. Aurora Plastics. Because of the bad showing of this company in 1970 the takeover terms were renegotiated and the price reduced to 101 halves. The shares were paid for at the end of May. The annual rate of return realized here was about 25%. Universal Marion. This company promptly made an initial distribution in cash and stock worth about $7 per share, reducing the investment to say 141 halves. However the market price fell as low as 13 subsequently casting doubt on the ultimate outcome of the liquidation. Assuming that the three examples given are fairly representative of workout or arbitrage opportunities as a whole in 1971, it is clear that they are not attractive if entered into upon a random basis. This has become more than ever a field for professionals, with the requisite experience and judgment. There is an interesting sidelight on our Kaiser Roth example. Late in 1971 the price fell below 20 while Borden was selling at 25, equivalent to 33 for Kaiser Roth under the terms of the exchange offer. It would appear that either the directors had made a great mistake in turning down that opportunity or the shares of Kaiser Roth were now badly undervalued in the market. Something for a security analyst to look into. Chapter 16. Convertible Issues and Warrants. 
convertible bonds and preferred stocks have been taking on a predominant importance in recent years in the field of senior financing. As a parallel development, stock option warrants, which are long-term rights to buy common shares at stipulated prices, have become more and more numerous. More than half the preferred issues now quoted in the Standard & Poor's Stock Guide of Conversion Privileges, and this has been true also of a major part of the corporate bond financing in 1968-1970. There are at least 60 different series of stock option warrants dealt in on the American Stock Exchange. In 1970, for the first time in its history, the New York Stock Exchange listed an issue of long-term warrants, giving rights to buy 31,400,000 American telephone and telephone shares at $52 each. With Mother Bell now leading that procession, it is bound to be augmented by many new fabricators of warrants. As we shall point out later, they are a fabrication in more than one sense. In the overall picture the convertible issues rank as much more important than the warrants, and we shall discuss them first. There are two main aspects to be considered from the standpoint of the investor. First, how do they rank as investment opportunities and risks? Second, how does their existence affect the value of the related common stock issues? Convertible issues are claimed to be especially advantageous to both the investor and the issuing corporation. The investor receives the superior protection of a bond or preferred stock, plus the opportunity to participate in any substantial rise in the value of the common stock. The issuer is able to raise capital at a moderate interest or preferred dividend cost, and if the expected prosperity materializes the issuer will get rid of the senior obligation by having it exchanged into common stock. Thus both sides to the bargain will fare unusually well. Obviously the foregoing paragraph must overstate the case somewhere, for you cannot by a mere ingenious device make a bargain much better for both sides. In exchange for the conversion privilege the investor usually gives up something important in quality or yield, or both. Conversely, if the company gets its money at lower cost because of the conversion feature, it is surrendering in return part of the common shareholder's claim to future enhancement. On this subject there are a number of tricky arguments to be advanced both pro and con. The safest conclusion that can be reached is that convertible issues are like any other form of security, in that their form itself guarantees neither attractiveness nor unattractiveness. That question will depend on all the facts surrounding the individual issue. We do know, however, that the group of convertible issues floated during the latter part of a bull market are bound to yield unsatisfactory results as a whole. It is at such optimistic periods, unfortunately, that most of the convertible financing has been done in the past. The poor consequences must be inevitable, from the timing itself, since a wide decline in the stock market must invariably make the conversion privilege much less attractive, and often, also, call into question the underlying safety of the issue itself. As a group illustration we shall retain the example used in our first edition of the relative price behavior of convertible and straight, non-convertible, preferreds offered in 1946, the closing year of the bull market preceding the extraordinary one that began in 1949. A comparable presentation is difficult to make for the years 1967-1970, because there were virtually no new offerings of non-convertibles in those years. But it is easy to demonstrate that the average price decline of convertible preferred stocks from December 1967 to December 1970 was greater than that for common stocks as a whole, which lost only 5%. Also the convertible seemed to have done quite a bit worse than the older straight preferred shares during the period December 1968 to December 1970 as is shown by the sample of 20 issues of each kind in Table 16-2. to These comparisons would demonstrate that convertible securities as a whole have relatively poor quality as senior issues and also are tied to common stocks that do worse than the general market except during a speculative upsurge. These observations do not apply to all convertible issues, 
Of course, in the 1968 and 1969 particularly, a fair number of strong companies used convertible issues to combat the inordinately high interest rates for even first quality bonds. But it is noteworthy that in our 20 stock sample of convertible preferreds only one showed an advance and 14 suffered bad declines. The conclusion to be drawn from these figures is not that convertible issues are in themselves less desirable than non-convertible or straight securities. Other things being equal, the opposite is true. But we clearly see that other things are not equal in practice and that the addition of the conversion privilege often, perhaps generally, betrays an absence of genuine investment quality for the issue. It is true, of course, that a convertible preferred is safer than the common stock of the same company, that is to say, it carries smaller risk of eventual loss of principle. Consequently those who buy new convertibles instead of the corresponding common stock are logical to that extent. But in most cases the common would not have been an intelligent purchase to begin with, at the ruling price, and the substitution of the convertible preferred did not improve the picture sufficiently. Furthermore, a good deal of the buying of convertibles was done by investors who had no special interest or confidence in the common stock, that is, they would never have thought of buying the common at the time but who were tempted by what seemed an ideal combination of a prior claim plus a conversion privilege close to the current market. In a number of instances this combination has worked out well, but the statistics seem to show that it is more likely to prove a pitfall. In connection with the ownership of convertibles there is a special problem which most investors fail to realize. Even when a profit appears it brings a dilemma with it. Should the holder sell on a small rise, should he hold for a much bigger advance, if the issue is called? as often happens when the common has gone up considerably, should he sell out then or convert into and retain the common stock? Let us talk in concrete terms. You buy a 6% bond at 100, convertible into stock at 25, that is, at the rate of 40 shares for each $1,000 bond. The stock goes to 30, which makes the bond worth at least 120, and so it sells at 125. You either sell or hold. If you hold, hoping for a higher price, you are pretty much in the position of a common shareholder, since if the stock goes down your bond will go down too. A conservative person is likely to say that beyond 125 his position has become too speculative, and therefore he sells and makes a gratifying 25% profit. So far, so good. But pursue the matter a bit. In many cases where the holder sells at 125 the common stock continues to advance, carrying the convertible with it and the investor experiences that peculiar pain that comes to the man who has sold out much too soon. The next time, he decides to hold for 150 or 200. The issue goes up to 140 and he does not sell. Then the market breaks and his bond slides down to 80. Again he has done the wrong thing. Aside from the mental anguish involved in making these bad guesses, and they seem to be almost inevitable, there is a real arithmetical drawback to operations in convertible issues. It may be assumed that a stern and uniform policy of selling at 25% or 30% profit will work out best as applied to many holdings. This would then mark the upper limit of profit and would be realized only on the issues that worked out well. But, if, as appears to be true, these issues often lack adequate underlying security and tend to be floated and purchased in the latter stages of a bull market, then a goodly proportion of them will fail to rise to 125 but will not fail to collapse when the market turns downward. Thus the spectacular opportunities in convertibles prove to be illusory in practice, and the overall experience is marked by fully as many substantial losses, at least of a temporary kind, as there are gains of similar magnitude. Because of the extraordinary length of the 1950-1968 bull market, convertible issues as a whole gave a good account of themselves for some 18 years. 
but this meant only that the great majority of common stocks enjoyed large advances, in which most convertible issues were able to share. The soundness of investment in convertible issues can only be tested by their performance in a declining stock market, and this has always proved disappointing as a whole. In our first edition, 1949, we gave an illustration of this special problem of what to do with a convertible when it goes up. We believe it still merits inclusion here. Like several of our references it is based on our own investment operations. We were members of a select group, mainly of investment funds, who participated in a private offering of convertible 41 halves of a percent debentures of Eversharp Company at par, convertible into common stock at $40 per share. The stock advanced rapidly to 651 halves, and then, after a 3 for 2 split, to the equivalent of 88. The latter price made the convertible debentures worth no less than 220. During this period the two issues were called at a small premium, hence they were practically all converted into common stock, which was retained by a number of the original investment fund buyers of the debentures. The price promptly began a severe decline, and in March 1948 the stock sold as low as 73 eighths. This represented a value of only 27 for the debenture issues, or a loss of 75% of the original price instead of a profit of over 100%. The real point of this story is that some of the original purchasers, converted their bonds into the stock and held the stock through its great decline. In so doing they ran counter to an old maxim of Wall Street, which runs, never convert a convertible bond. Why this advice? Because once you convert you have lost your strategic combination of prior claim and to interest plus a chance for an attractive profit. You have probably turned from investor into speculator, and quite often at an unpropitious time, because the stock has already had a large advance. If never convert a convertible is a good rule. How came it that these experienced fund managers exchanged their ever-sharp bonds for stock, to their subsequent embarrassing loss? The answer, no doubt, is that they let themselves be carried away by enthusiasm for the company's prospects as well as by the favorable market action of the shares. Wall Street has a few prudent principles, the trouble is that they are always forgotten when they are most needed. Hence that other famous dictum of the old-timers, do as I say, not as I do. Our general attitude toward new convertible issues is thus a mistrustful one. We mean here, as in other similar observations, that the investor should look more than twice before he buys them. After such hostile scrutiny he may find some exceptional offerings that are too good to refuse. The ideal combination, of course, is a strongly secured convertible, exchangeable for a common stock which itself is attractive, and at a price only slightly higher than the current market. Every now and then a new offering appears that meets these requirements. By the nature of the securities markets, however, you are more likely to find such an opportunity in some older issue which has developed into a favorable position rather than in a new flotation. If a new issue is a really strong one, it is not likely to have a good conversion privilege. The fine balance between what is given and what is withheld in a standard type convertible issue is well illustrated by the extensive use of this type of security in the financing of American Telephone and Telegraph Company. Between 1913 and 1957 the company sold at least nine separate issues of convertible bonds, most of them through subscription rights to shareholders. The convertible bonds had the important advantage to the company of bringing in a much wider class of buyers than would have been available for a stock offering, since the bonds were popular with many financial institutions which possess huge resources but some of which were not permitted to buy stocks. The interest return on the bonds has generally been less than half the corresponding dividend yield on the stock a factor that was calculated to offset the prior claim of the bondholders. Since the company maintained its $9 dividend rate for 40 years, from 1919 to the stock split in 1959, the result was the eventual conversion of virtually all the convertible issues into common stock. 
Thus the buyers of these convertibles have fared well through the years, but not quite so well as if they had bought the capital stock in the first place. This example establishes the soundness of American telephone and telegraph, but not the intrinsic attractiveness of convertible bonds. To prove them sound in practice we should need to have a number of instances in which the convertible worked out well even though the common stock proved disappointing. Such instances are not easy to find. Effective Convertible Issues on the Status of the Common Stock In a large number of cases convertibles have been issued in connection with mergers or new acquisitions. Perhaps the most striking example of this financial operation was the issuance by the NBF Corporation of nearly $100 million of its 5% convertible bonds, plus warrants, in exchange for most of the common stock of Sharon Steel Company. This extraordinary deal is discussed below pages 429 to 433. Typically the transaction results in a pro forma increase in the reported earnings per share of common stock, the shares advance in response to their larger earnings, so-called, but also because the management has given evidence of its energy, enterprise, and ability to make more money for the shareholders. But there are two offsetting factors, one of which is practically ignored and the other entirely so in optimistic markets. The first is the actual dilution of the current and future earnings on the common stock that flows arithmetically from the new conversion rights. This dilution can be quantified by taking the recent earnings, or assuming some other figures, and calculating the adjusted earnings per share if all the convertible shares or bonds were actually converted. In the majority of companies the resulting reduction in per share figures is not significant. But there are numerous exceptions to this statement, and there is danger that they will grow at an uncomfortable rate. The fast-expanding conglomerates have been the chief practitioners of convertible ledger domain. In Table 16-3 we list seven companies with large amounts of stock issuable on conversions or against warrants. Indicated switches from common into preferred stocks. For decades before, say, 1956, common stocks yielded more than the preferred stocks of the same companies, this was particularly true if the preferred stock had a conversion privilege close to the market. The reverse is generally true at present. As a result there are a considerable number of convertible preferred stocks which are clearly more attractive than the related common shares. Owners of the common have nothing to lose and important advantages to gain by switching from their junior shares into the senior issue. Example, a typical example was presented by Studebaker Worthington Corp. At the close of 1970, the common sold at 57, while the $5 convertible preferred finished at 871 halves. Each preferred share is exchangeable for 11 halves shares of common then worth 851 halves. This would indicate a small money difference against the buyer of the preferred. But dividends are being paid on the common at the annual rate of $1.20, or $1.80 for the 11 halves shares, against the $5 obtainable on one share of preferred. Thus the original adverse difference in price would probably be made up in less than a year, after which the preferred would probably return an appreciably higher dividend yield than the common for some time to come. But most important, of course, would be the senior position that the common shareholder would gain from the switch. At the low prices of 1968 and again in 1970 the preferred sold 15 points higher than 11 halves shares of common. Its conversion privilege guarantees that it could never sell lower than the common package. Stock Option Warrants Let us mince no words at the outset. We consider the recent development of stock option warrants as a near fraud, an existing menace, and a potential disaster. They have created huge aggregate dollar values out of thin air. They have no excuse for existence except to the extent that they mislead speculators and investors. They should be prohibited by law, or at least strictly limited to a minor part of the total capitalization of a company. For an analogy in general history and in literature we refer the reader to the section of Faust Part 2, 
in which Gouda describes the invention of paper money. As an ominous precedent on Wall Street history, we may mention the warrants of American and Foreign Power Company, which in 1929 had a quoted market value of over a billion dollars, although they appeared only in a footnote to the company's balance sheet. By 1932 this billion dollars had shrunk to eight million dollars, and in 1952 the warrants were wiped out in the company's recapitalization, even though it had remained solvent. Originally, stock option warrants were attached now and then to bond issues, and were usually equivalent to a partial conversion privilege. They were unimportant in amount, and hence did no harm. Their use expanded in the late 1920s, along with many other financial abuses, but they dropped from sight for long years thereafter. They were bound to turn up again, like the bad pennies they are, and since 1967 they have become familiar instruments of finance. In fact a standard procedure has developed for raising the capital for new real estate ventures, affiliates of large banks, by selling units of an equal number of common shares and warrants to buy additional common shares at the same price. Example, in 1971 Cleve Trust Realty investors sold 2,500,000 of these combinations of common stock, or shares of beneficial interest, and warrants for $20 per unit. Let us consider for a moment what is really involved in this financial setup. Ordinarily, a common stock issue has the first right to buy additional common shares when the company's directors find it desirable to raise capital in this manner. This so-called preemptive right is one of the elements of value entering into the ownership of common stock, along with the right to receive dividends, to participate in the company's growth, and to vote for directors. When separate warrants are issued for the right to subscribe additional capital, that action takes away part of the value inherent in an ordinary common share and transfers it to a separate certificate. An analogous thing could be done by issuing separate certificates for the right to receive dividends, for a limited or unlimited period, or the right to share in the proceeds of sale or liquidation of the enterprise, or the right to vote the shares. Why then are these subscription warrants created as part of the original capital structure? Simply because people are an expert in financial matters. They don't realize that the common stock is worth less with warrants outstanding than otherwise. Hence the package of stock and warrants usually commands a better price in the market than with the stock alone. Note that in the usual company reports the per share earnings are, or have been, computed without proper allowance for the effect of outstanding warrants. The result is, of course, to overstate the true relationship between the earnings and the market value of the company's capitalization. The simplest and probably the best method of allowing for the existence of warrants is to add the equivalent of their market value to the common share capitalization, thus increasing the true market price per share. Where large amounts of warrants have been issued in connection with the sale of senior securities, it is customary to make the adjustment by assuming that the proceeds of the stock payment are used to retire the related bonds or preferred shares. This method does not allow adequately for the usual premium value of the warrant above exercisable value. In Table 16-4 to 4 we compare the effect of the two methods of calculation in the case of National General Corporation for the year 1970. Does the company itself derive an advantage from the creation of these warrants, in the sense that they assure it in some way of receiving additional capital when it needs some? Not at all. Ordinarily there is no way in which the company can require the warrant holders to exercise their rights, and thus provide new capital to the company, prior to the expiration date of the warrants. In the meantime, if the company wants to raise additional common stock funds it must offer the shares to its shareholders in the usual way, which means somewhat under the ruling market price. The warrants are no help in such an operation, they merely complicate the situation by frequently requiring a downward revision in their own subscription price. Once more we assert that large issues of stock option warrants serve no purpose, except to fabricate imaginary market values. The paper money that Gouda was familiar with, when he wrote, his Faust, 
were the notorious French assignats that had been greeted as a marvelous invention, and were destined ultimately to lose all of their value, as did the billion dollars worth of American and foreign power warrants. Some of the poet's remarks apply equally well to one invention or another, such as the following, in Bayard Taylor's translation. Faust, imagination in its highest flight exerts itself but cannot grasp it quite. Mephistopheles, the inventor, if one needs coin the broker's ready. Stan. The fool, finally, the magic paper. Practical postscript. The crime of the warrants is in having been born. Once born they function as other security forms, and offer chances of profit as well as of loss. Nearly all the newer warrants run for a limited time, generally between 5 and 10 years. The older warrants were often perpetual, and they were likely to have fascinating price histories over the years. Example, the record books will show that Tricontinental Corporation warrants, which date from 1929, sold at a negligible one thirty-second of a dollar each in the depth of the Depression. From that lowly estate their price rose to a magnificent 753 fourths in 1969, an astronomical advance of some 242,000%. The warrants then sold considerably higher than the shares themselves, this is the kind of thing that occurs on Wall Street through technical developments, such as stock splits. A recent example is supplied by Linktemco Vought Warrants, which in the first half of 1971 advanced from 21 halves to 121 halves, and then fell back to 4. No doubt shrewd operations can be carried on in warrants from time to time, but this is too technical a matter for discussion here. We might say that warrants tend to sell relatively higher than the corresponding market components related to the conversion privilege of bonds or preferred stocks. To that extent there is a valid argument for selling bonds with warrants attached rather than creating an equivalent dilution factor by a convertible issue. If the warrant total is relatively small there is no point in taking its theoretical aspect too seriously, if the warrant issue is large relative to the outstanding stock, that would probably indicate that the company has a top-heavy senior capitalization. It should be selling additional common stock instead. Thus the main objective of our attack on warrants as a financial mechanism is not to condemn their use in connection with moderate size bond issues, but to argue against the wanton creation of huge paper money monstrosities of this genre. Chapter 17 Four Extremely Instructive Case Histories The word extremely in the title is a kind of pun, because the histories represent extremes of various sorts that were manifest on Wall Street in recent years. They hold instruction, and grave warnings, for everyone who has a serious connection with the world of stocks and bonds, not only for ordinary investors and speculators but for professionals, security analysts, fund managers, trust account administrators, and even for bankers who lend money to corporations. The four companies to be reviewed and the different extremes that they illustrate are Penn Central, Railroad, Company An extreme example of the neglect of the most elementary warning signals of financial weakness, by all those who had bonds or shares of this system under their supervision. A crazily high market price for the stock of a tottering giant. Linktemco Vought incorporated an extreme example of quick and unsound empire building, with ultimate collapse practically guaranteed, but helped by indiscriminate bank lending. NVF Corporation an extreme example of one corporate acquisition, in which a small company absorbed another seven times its size, incurring a huge debt and employing some startling accounting devices. AAA Enterprises. An extreme example of public stock financing of a small company, its value based on the magic word franchising, and little else, sponsored by important stock exchange houses. Bankruptcy followed within two years of the stock sale and the doubling of the initial inflated price in the heedless stock market. The Penn Central case. This is the country's largest railroad in assets and gross revenues. Its bankruptcy in 1970 shocked the financial world. 
it has defaulted on most of its bond issues, and has been in danger of abandoning its operations entirely. Its security issues fell drastically in price, the common stock collapsing from a high level of 861 halves as recently as 1968 to a low of 51 halves in 1970. There seems little doubt that these shares will be wiped out in reorganization. Our basic point is that the application of the simplest rules of security analysis and the simplest standards of sound investment would have revealed the fundamental weakness of the Penn Central system long before its bankruptcy, certainly in 1968, when the shares were selling at their post-1929 record, and when most of its bond issues could have been exchanged at even prices for well-secured public utility obligations with the same coupon rates. The following comments are in order. 1. In the S&P bond guide the interest charges of the system are shown to have been earned 1.91 times in 1967 and 1.98 times in 1968. The minimum coverage prescribed for railroad bonds in our textbook security analysis is 5 times before income taxes and 2.9 times after income taxes at regular rates. As far as we know the validity of these standards has never been questioned by any investment authority. On the basis of our requirements for earnings after taxes, the Penn Central fell short of the requirements for safety. But our after-tax requirement is based on a before-tax ratio of five times, with regular income tax deducted after the bond interest. In the case of Penn Central, it had been paying no income taxes to speak of for the past 11 years. Hence the coverage of its interest charges before taxes was less than two times, a totally inadequate figure against our conservative requirement of five times. Two. The fact that the company paid no income taxes over so long a period should have raised serious questions about the validity of its reported earnings. 3. The bonds of the Penn Central system could have been exchanged in 1968 and 1969, at no sacrifice of price or income, for far better secured issues. For example, in 1969, Pennsylvania RR 41-2S, to 1994, part of Penn Central, had a range of 61 to 741 halves while Pennsylvania Electric Company 43-8S, due 1994, had a range of 641 fourths to 721 fourths. The public utility had earned its interest 4.20 times before taxes in 1968 against only 1.98 times for the Penn Central system, during 1969 the latter's comparative showing grew steadily worse. An exchange of this sort was clearly called for, and it would have been a lifesaver for a Penn Central bondholder. At the end of 1970 the railroad 41-4s were in default, and selling at only 181 halves, while the utilities 43-8s closed at 661 halves. 4. Penn Central reported earnings of $3.80 per share in 1968, its high price of 861 halves in that year was 24 times such earnings. But any analyst worth his salt would have wondered how real were earnings of this sort reported without the necessity of paying any income taxes thereon. 5. For 1966 the newly merged company had reported earnings of $6.80 a share, in reflection of which the common stock later rose to its peak of 861 halves. This was a valuation of over $2 billion for the equity. How many of these buyers knew at the time that the so lovely earnings were before a special charge of $275 million or $12 per share to be taken in 1971 for costs and losses incurred on the merger? O oh, wondrous fairyland of Wall Street where a company can announce profits of $6.80 per share in one place and special costs and losses of $12 in another, and shareholders and speculators rub their hands with glee. 6. A railroad analyst would have long since known that the operating picture of the Penn Central was very bad in comparison with the more profitable roads. 
For example, its transportation ratio was 47.5% in 1968 against 35.2% for its neighbor, Norfolk and Western. 7. Along the way there were some strange transactions with peculiar accounting results. One details are too complicated to go into here. Conclusion, whether better management could have saved the Penn Central bankruptcy may be arguable. But there is no doubt whatever that no bonds and no shares of the Penn Central system should have remained after 1968 at the latest in any securities account watched over by competent security analysts, fund managers, trust officers, or investment counsel. Moral, security analysts should do their elementary jobs before they study stock market movements, gaze into crystal balls, make elaborate mathematical calculations, or go on all-expense-paid field trips. Linktemco Vod Incorporated. This is a story of head-over-heels expansion and head-over-heels debt, ending up in terrific losses and a host of financial problems. As usually happens in such cases, a fair-haired boy, or young genius, was chiefly responsible for both the creation of the great empire and its ignominious downfall, but there is plenty of blame to be accorded others as well. The rise and fall of Ling Temkovod can be summarized by setting forth condensed income accounts and balance sheet items for five years between 1958 and 1970. This is done in Table 17 to 1. The first column shows the company's modest beginnings in 1958, when its sales were only $7 million. The next gives figures for 1960, the enterprise had grown 20-fold in only two years, but it was still comparatively small. Then came the Heda years to 1967 and 1968, in which sales again grew 20-fold to $2.8 billion with the debt figure expanding from $44 million to an awesome $1,653 million. In 1969 came new acquisitions, a further huge increase in debt, to a total of $1,865 million, and the beginning of serious trouble. A large loss, after extraordinary items, was reported for the year, the stock price declined from its 1967 high of 1,691 halves to a low of 24, the young genius was superseded as the head of the company. The 1970 results were even more dreadful. The enterprise reported a final net loss of close to $70 million, the stock fell away to a low price of 71 eighths, and its largest bond issue was quoted at one time at a pitiable 15 cents on the dollar. The company's expansion policy was sharply reversed, various of its important interests were placed on the market, and some headway was made in reducing its mountainous obligations. The figures in our table speak so eloquently that few comments are called for. But here are some. 1. The company's expansion period was not without an interruption. In 1961 it showed a small operating deficit, but, adopting a practice that was to be seen later in so many reports for 1970, evidently decided to throw all possible charges and reserves into the one bad year. These amounted to around $13 million, which was more than the combined net profits of the preceding three years. It was now ready to show record earnings in 1962, etc. Two. At the end of 1966 the net tangible assets are given as $7.66 per share of common, adjusted for a 3 for 2 split. Thus the market price in 1967 reached 22 times, its reported asset value at the time. At the end of 1968 the balance sheet showed $286 million available for 3,800,000 shares of common and class AA stock, or about $77 per share. But if we deduct the preferred stock at full value and exclude the goodwill items and the huge bond discount asset, there would remain $13 million for the common, a mere $3 per share. This tangible equity was wiped out by the losses of the following years. 3. 
Toward the end of 1967 two of our best regarded banking firms offered 600,000 shares of Linktemco Vought stock at $111 per share. It had been as high as 1,691 halves. In less than three years the price fell to 71 eighths. 4. At the end of 1967 the bank loans had reached $161 million, and a year later they stood at $414 million, which should have been a frightening figure. In addition, the long-term debt amounted to $1,237 million. By 1969 combined debt reached a total of $1,869 million. This may have been the largest combined debt figure of any industrial company anywhere and at any time, with the single exception of the impregnable Standard Oil of NJ. 5. The losses in 1969 and 1970 far exceeded the total profits since the formation of the company. Moral, the primary question raised in our mind by the Ling Temko Vought story is how the commercial bankers could have been persuaded to lend the company such huge amounts of money during its expansion period. In 1966 and earlier the company's coverage of interest charges did not meet conservative standards, and the same was true of the ratio of current assets to current liabilities and of stock equity to total debt. But in the next two years the banks advanced the enterprise nearly $400 million additional for further diversification. This was not good business for them, and it was worse in its implications for the company's shareholders. If the Linktemco Vought case will serve to keep commercial banks from aiding and abetting unsound expansions of this type in the future, some good may come of it at last. The NVF Takeover of Sharon Steel, a Collector's Item At the end of 1968 NVF Company was a company with $4.6 million of long-term debt, $17.4 million of stock capital, $31 million of sales, and $502,000 of net income, before a special credit of $374,000. Its business was described as vulcanized fiber and plastics. The management decided to take over the Sharon Steel Corporation, which had $43 million of long-term debt, $101 million of stock capital, $219 million of sales, and $2,929,000 of net earnings. The company it wished to acquire was thus seven times the size of NVF. In early 1969 it made an offer for all the shares of Sharon. The terms per share were $70 face amount of NVF Jr. 5% bonds, due 1994, plus warrants to buy 11 half shares of NVF stock at $22 per share of NVF. The management of Sharon strenuously resisted this takeover attempt, but in vain. NVF acquired 88% of the Sharon stock under the offer issuing therefore $102 million of its 5% bonds and warrants for 2,197,000 of its shares. Had the offer been 100% operative the consolidated enterprise would, for the year 1968, have had $163 million in debt, only $2.2 million in tangible stock capital, $250 million of sales. The net earnings question would have been a bit complicated, but the company subsequently stated them as a net loss of 50 cents per share of NVF stocks before an extraordinary credit, and net earnings of $0.03 cents per share after such credit. First comment, among all the takeovers affected in the year. 1969 This was no doubt the most extreme in its financial disproportions. The acquiring company had assumed responsibility for a new and top-heavy debt obligation, and it had changed its calculated 1968 earnings from a profit to a loss into the bargain. A measure of the impairment of the company's financial position by this step is found in the fact that the new 5% bonds did not sell higher than $0.42 cents on the dollar during the year of issuance. This would have indicated grave doubt of the safety of the bonds and of the company's future, however, the management actually exploited the bond price in a way to save the company annual income taxes of about $1 million as will be shown. 
1968 report, published after the Sharon takeover, contained a condensed picture of its results, carried back to the year-end. This contained two most unusual items. 1. There is listed as an asset $58,600,000 of deferred debt expense. This sum is greater than the entire stockholder's equity, placed at $40,200,000. 2. However, not included in the shareholder's equity is an item of $20,700,000 designated as excessive equity over cost of investment in Sharon. Second comment, if we eliminate the debt expense as an asset, which it hardly seems to be, and include the other item in the shareholder's equity, where it would normally belong, then we have a more realistic statement of tangible equity for NVF stock, viz. $2,200,000. Thus the first effect of the deal was to reduce NVF's real equity from $17,400,000 to $2,200,000 or from $23.71 per share to about $3 per share, on 731,000 shares. In addition the NVF shareholders had given to others the right to buy 31 halves times as many additional shares at 6 points below the market price at the close of 1968. The initial market value of the warrants was then about $12 each, or a total of some $30 million for those involved in the purchase offer. Actually, the market value of the warrants well exceeded the total market value of the outstanding NVF stock, another evidence of the tail wagging dog nature of the transaction. The Accounting Gimmicks when we pass from this pro forma balance sheet to the next year's report we find several strange appearing entries. In addition to the basic interest expense, a hefty $7,500,000, there is deducted $1,795,000 for amortization of deferred debt expense. But this last is nearly offset on the next line by a very unusual income item indeed, amortization of equity over cost of investment in subsidiary, CR. $1,650,000. In one of the footnotes we find an entry, not appearing in any other report that we know of, part of the stock capital is there designated as fair market value of warrants issued in connection with acquisition, etc., $22,129,000. What on earth do all these entries mean? None of them is even referred to in the descriptive text of the 1969 report. The trained security analyst has to figure out these mysteries by himself, almost in detective fashion. He finds that the underlying idea is to derive a tax advantage from the low initial price of the 5% debentures. For readers who may be interested in this ingenious arrangement we set forth our solution in Appendix 6. Other Unusual Items 1. Right after the close of 1969 the company bought in no less than 650,000 warrants at a price of $9.38 each. This was extraordinary when we consider that, a, NVF itself had only $700,000 in cash at the year end, and had $4,400,000 of debt due in 1970, evidently the $6 million paid for the warrants had to be borrowed, b, it was buying in this warrant paper money at a time when its 5% bonds were selling at less than 40 cents on the dollar, ordinarily a warning that financial difficulties lay ahead. 2. As a partial offset to this, the company had retired $5,100,000 of its bonds along with 253,000 warrants in exchange for a like amount of common stock. This was possible because, by the vagaries of the securities markets, people were selling the 5% bonds at less than 40 while the common sold at an average price of 131 halves, paying no dividend. 3. The company had plans in operation not only for selling stock to its employees, but also for selling them a larger number of warrants to buy the stock. Like the stock purchases the warrants were to be paid for 5% down and the rest over many years in the future. This is the only such employee purchase plan for warrants that we know of.
will someone soon invent and sell on installments a right to buy a right to buy a share, and so on? 4. In the year 1969 the newly controlled Sharon Steel Company changed its method of arriving at its pension costs, and also adopted lower depreciation rates. These accounting changes added about $1 per share to the reported earnings of NVF before dilution. 5. At the end of 1970 Standard & Poor's Stock Guide reported that NVF shares were selling at a price-slash-earning ratio of only 2, the lowest figure for all the 4,500-odd issues in the booklet. As the old Wall Street saying went, this was important if true. The ratio was based on the year's closing price of 83 fourths and the computed earnings of $5.38 per share for the 12 months ended September 1970. Using these figures the shares were selling at only 1.6 times earnings, but this ratio did not allow for the large dilution factor, nor for the adverse results actually realized in the last quarter of 1970. When the full year's figures finally appeared, they showed only $2.03 per share earned for the stock, before allowing for dilution and $1.80 per share on a diluted basis. Note also that the aggregate market price of the stock and warrants on that date was about $14 million against a bonded debt of $135 million, a skimpy equity position indeed. AAA Enterprises History About 15 years ago a college student named Williams began selling mobile homes, then called trailers. In 1965 he incorporated his business. In that year he sold $5,800,000 of mobile homes and earned $61,000 before corporate tax. By 1968 he had joined the franchising movement and was selling others the right to sell mobile homes under his business name. He also conceived the bright idea of going into the business of preparing income tax returns, using his mobile homes as offices. He formed a subsidiary company called Mr. Tax of America, and of course started to sell franchises to others to use the idea and the name. He multiplied the number of corporate shares to 2,710,000 and was ready for a stock offering. He found that one of our largest stock exchange houses, along with others, was willing to handle the deal. In March 1969 they offered the public 500,000 shares of AAA Enterprises at $13 per share. Of these, 300,000 were sold for Mr. Williams's personal account and 200,000 were sold for the company account, adding $2,400,000 to its resources. The price of the stock promptly doubled to 28, or a value of $84 million for the equity, against a book value of, say, $4,200,000 and maximum reported earnings of $690,000. The stock was thus selling at a tidy 115 times its current, and largest, earnings per share. No doubt Mr. Williams had selected the name AAA Enterprise so that it might be among the first in the phone books and the yellow pages. A collateral result was that his company was destined to appear as the first name in Standard & Poor's stock guide. Like Abu Ben Adhams, it led all the rest. This gives a special reason to select it as a harrowing example of 1969 new financing and hot issues. Comment, this was not a bad deal for Mr. Williams. The 300,000 shares he sold had a book value in December of 1968 of $180,000 and he netted there for 20 times as much, or a cool. $3,600,000. The underwriters and distributors split $500,000 between them, less expenses. 1. This did not seem so brilliant a deal for the clients of the selling houses. They were asked to pay about 10 times the book value of the stock, after the bootstrap operation of increasing their equity per share from $0.59 cents to $1.35 with their own money. Before the best year 1968, the company's maximum earnings had been a ridiculous $0.07 cents per share. There were ambitious plans for the future, 
of course, but the public was being asked to pay heavily in advance for the hoped for realization of these plans. 2. Nonetheless, the price of the stock doubled soon after original issuance, and any one of the brokerage house clients could have gotten out at a handsome profit. Did this fact alter the flotation, or did the advance possibility that it might happen exonerate the original distributors of the issue from responsibility for this public offering and its later sequel? Not an easy question to answer, but it deserves careful consideration by Wall Street and the government regulatory agencies. Subsequent History with its enlarged capital AAA Enterprises went into two additional businesses. In 1969 it opened a chain of retail carpet stores, and it acquired a plant that manufactured mobile homes. The results reported for the first nine months were not exactly brilliant, but they were a little better than the year before, 22 cents a share against 14 cents. What happened in the next months was literally incredible. The company lost $4,365,000, or $1.49 per share. This consumed all its capital before the financing, plus the entire $2,400,000 received on the sale of stock plus two-thirds of the amount reported as earned in the first nine months of 1969. There was left a pathetic $242,000, or $0.08 cents per share, of capital for the public shareholders who had paid $13 for the new offering only seven months before. Nonetheless the shares closed the year 1969 at 81 bid or a valuation of more than $25 million for the company. Further comment, 1. It is too much to believe that the company had actually earned $686,000 from January to September 1969 and then lost $4,365,000 in the next three months. There was something sadly, badly, and accusingly wrong about the September 30th report. The year's closing price of 81 eighths bid was even more of a demonstration of the complete heedlessness of stock market prices than were the original offering price of 13 or the subsequent hot issue advance to a high bid of 28. These latter quotations at least were based on enthusiasm and hope, out of all proportion to reality and common sense, but at least comprehensible. The year-end valuation of $25 million was given to a company that had lost all but a minuscule remnant of its capital for which a completely insolvent condition was imminent, and for which the words enthusiasm or hope would be only bitter sarcasms. It is true the year-end figures had not been published by December 31st, but it is the business of Wall Street houses associated with a company to have monthly operating statements and a fairly exact idea of how things are going. Final Chapter For the first half of 1970 the company reported a further loss of $1 million. It now had a good-sized capital deficit. It was kept out of bankruptcy by loans made by Mr. Williams, up to a total of $2,500,000. No further statements seem to have been issued, until in January 1971 AAA Enterprises finally filed a petition in bankruptcy. The quotation for the stock at month end was still 50 cents a share bid, or $1,500,000 for the entire issue, which evidently had no more than wallpaper value. End of our story. Moral and Questions the speculative public is incorrigible. In financial terms it cannot count beyond three. It will buy anything, at any price, if there seems to be some action in progress. It will fall for any company identified with franchising, computers, electronics, science, technology, or what have you, when the particular fashion is raging. Our readers, sensible investors all, are of course above such foolishness. But questions remain. Should not responsible investment houses be honor-bound to refrain from identifying themselves with such enterprises, 9 out of 10 of which may be foredoomed to ultimate failure? This was actually the situation when the author entered Wall Street in 1914. 
By comparison it would seem that the ethical standards of the street have fallen rather than advanced in the ensuing 57 years, despite all the reforms and all the controls, could and should the SEC be given other powers to protect the public, beyond the present ones which are limited to requiring the printing of all important relevant facts in the offering prospectus? Should some kind of box score for public offerings of various types be compiled and published in conspicuous fashion? Should every prospectus, and perhaps every confirmation of sale under an original offering, carry some kind of formal warranty that the offering price for the issue is not substantially out of line with the ruling prices for issues of the same general type already established in the market? As we write this edition the movement toward reform of Wall Street abuses is underway. It will be difficult to impose worthwhile changes in the field of new offerings, because the abuses are so largely the result of the public's own heedlessness and greed. But the matter deserves long and careful consideration. Chapter 18. A Comparison of Eight Pairs of Companies. In this chapter we shall attempt a novel form of exposition. By selecting eight pairs of companies which appear next to each other, or nearly so, on the stock exchange list we hope to bring home in a concrete and vivid manner some of the many varieties of character. Financial Structure, Policies, Performance, and Vicissitudes of Corporate Enterprises, and of the Investment and Speculative Attitudes found on the financial scene in recent years. In each comparison we shall comment only on those aspects that have a special meaning and import. Pair I, Real Estate Investment Trust, Stores, Offices, Factories, etc., and Realty Equities Corporation of New York, Real Estate Investment, General Construction. In this first comparison we depart from the alphabetical order used for the other pairs. It has a special significance for us, since it seems to encapsulate, on the one hand, all that has been reasonable, stable and generally good in the traditional methods of handling other people's money, in contrast, in the other company, with the reckless expansion, the financial ledger domain, and the roller coaster changes so often found in present-day corporate operations. The two enterprises have similar names, and for many years they appeared side by side on the American Stock Exchange list. Their stock ticker symbols, REI and REC, could easily have been confused. But one of them is a state New England trust, administered by three trustees with operations dating back nearly a century, and with dividends paid continuously since 1889. It has kept throughout to the same type of prudent investments, limiting its expansion to a moderate rate and its debt to an easily manageable figure. The other is a typical New York-based sudden growth venture, which in eight years blew up its assets from $6.2 million to $154 million, and its debts in the same proportion which moved out from ordinary real estate operations to a miscellaneous ventures, including two racetracks, 74 movie theaters, three literary agencies, a public relations firm, hotels, supermarkets, and a 26% interest in a large cosmetics firm, which went bankrupt in 1970. This conglomeration of business ventures was matched by a corresponding variety of corporate devices, including the following. 1. A preferred stock entitled to $7 annual dividends but with a par value of only $1, and carried as a liability at $1 per share. 2. A stated common stock value of $2,500,000, $1 per share, more than offset by a deduction of $5,500,000 as the cost of 209,000 shares of reacquired stock. 3. Three series of stock option warrants, giving rights to buy a total of 1,578,000 shares. 4. At least six different kinds of debt obligations, in the form of mortgages, debentures, publicly held notes, notes payable to banks, notes, loans, and contracts payable, and loans payable to the Small Business Administration, adding up to over $100 million in March 1969. 
In addition it had the usual taxes and accounts payable. Let us present first a few figures of the two enterprises as they appeared in 1960, Table 18 1a. Here we find the trust share selling in the market for nine times the aggregate value of equities stock. The trust enterprise had a smaller relative debt and a better ratio of net to gross, but the price of the common was higher in relation to per share earnings. In Table 18 1b we present the situation about eight years later. The trust had kept the noiseless tenor of its way, increasing both its revenues and its per share earnings by about three quarters. But realty equities had been metamorphosed into something monstrous and vulnerable. How did Wall Street react to these diverse developments? By paying as little attention as possible to the trust and a lot to realty equities. In 1968 the latter shot up from 10 to 373 fourths and the listed warrants from 6 to 361 halves, on combined sales of 2,420,000 shares. While this was happening the trust shares advanced sedately from 20 to 301 fourths on modest volume. The March 1969 balance sheet of equities was to show an asset value of only $3.41 per share, less than a tenth of its high price that year. The book value of the trust shares was $20.85. The next year it became clear that all was not well in the equities picture, and the price fell to 91 halves. When the report for March 1970 appeared the shareholders must have felt shell-shocked as they read that the enterprise had sustained a net loss of $13,200,000, or $5.17 per share, virtually wiping out their former slim equity. This disastrous figure included a reserve of $8,800,000 for future losses on investments, nonetheless the directors had bravely, declared an extra dividend of $0.05 cents right after the close of the fiscal year. But more trouble was in sight. The company's auditors refused to certify the financial statements for 1969-70, and the shares were suspended from trading on the American Stock Exchange. In the over-the-counter market the bid price dropped below $2 per share. Real Estate Investment Trust shares had typical price fluctuations after 1969. The low in 1970 was 161 halves, with a recovery to 265 sixths in early 1971. The latest reported earnings were $1.50 per share, and the stock was selling moderately above its 1970 book value of $21.60. The issue may have been somewhat overpriced at its record high in 1968, but the shareholders have been honestly and well served by their trustees. The real estate equities story is a different and a sorry one. Pair 2, air products and chemicals, industrial and medical gases, etc., and air reduction company, industrial gases and equipment, chemicals. Even more than our first pair, these two resemble each other in both name and line of business. The comparison they invite is thus of the conventional type and security analysis, while most of our other pairs are more heteroclite in nature. Products is a newer company than Reduction, and in 1969 had less than half the other's volume. Nonetheless its equity issues sold for 25% more in the aggregate than Air Reduction stock. As Table 18-2 shows, the reason can be found both in Air Reduction's greater profitability and in its stronger growth record. We find here the typical consequences of a better showing of quality. Air products sold at 161 halves times its latest earnings against only 9.1 times for air reduction. Also air products sold well above its asset backing, while air reduction could be bought at only 75% of its book value. Air reduction paid a more liberal dividend, but this may be deemed to reflect the greater desirability for air products to retain its earnings. Also, air reduction had a more comfortable working capital position. On this point we may remark that a profitable company can always put its current position in shape by some form of permanent financing. But by our standards Air Products was somewhat overbonded. 
if the analyst were called on to choose between the two COMPA. Nice he would have no difficulty in concluding that the prospects of air products looked more promising than those of air reduction. But did this make air products more attractive at its considerably higher relative price? We doubt whether this question can be answered in a definitive fashion. In general Wall Street sets quality above quantity in its thinking, and probably the majority of security analysts would opt for the better but dearer air products as against the poorer but cheaper air reduction. Whether this preference is to prove right or wrong is more likely to depend on the unpredictable future than on any demonstrable investment principle. In this instance, air reduction appears to belong to the group of important companies in the low multiplier class. If, as the studies referred to above would seem to indicate, that group as a whole is likely to give a better account of itself than the high multiplier stocks, then air reduction should logically be given the preference, but only as part of a diversified operation. Also, a thoroughgoing study of the individual companies could lead the analyst to the opposite conclusion, but that would have to be for reasons beyond those already reflected in the past showing. Sequel, air products stood up better than air reduction in the 1970 break, with a decline of 16% against 24%. However, reduction made a better comeback in early 1971, rising to 50% above its 1969 close, against 30% for products. In this case the low multiplier issue scored the advantage, for the time being, at least. Pair 3, American Home Products Company, Drugs, Cosmetics, Household Products, Candy, and American Hospital Supply Company, distributor and manufacturer of hospital supplies and equipment. These were $2 billion goodwill companies at the end of 1969, representing different segments of the rapidly growing and immensely profitable health industry. We shall refer to them as home and hospital, respectively. Selected data on both are presented in Table 18-3. They had the following favorable points in common, excellent growth, with no setbacks since 1958, i.e., 100% earnings stability, and strong financial condition. The growth rate of hospital up to the end of 1969 was considerably higher than homes. On the other hand, home enjoyed substantially better profitability on both sales and capital. In fact, the relatively low rate of hospital's earnings on its capital in 1969 only 9.7%, raises the intriguing question whether the business then was in fact a highly profitable one, despite its remarkable past growth rate in sales and earnings. When comparative prices taken into account, home offered much more for the money in terms of current, or past, earnings and dividends. The very low book value of home illustrates a basic ambiguity or contradiction in common stock analysis. On the one hand, it means that the company is earning a high return on its capital which in general is a sign of strength and prosperity. On the other, it means that the investor at the current price would be especially vulnerable to any important adverse change in the company's earnings situation. Since hospital was selling at over four times its book value in 1969, this cautionary remark must be applied to both companies. Conclusions Our clear-cut view would be that both companies were too rich at their current prices to be considered by the investor who decides to follow our ideas of conservative selection. This does not mean that the companies were lacking in promise. The trouble is, rather, that their price contained too much promise and not enough actual performance. For the two enterprises combined, the 1969 price reflected almost $5 billion of goodwill valuation. How many years of excellent future earnings would it take to realize that goodwill factor in the form of dividends or tangible assets? Short-term sequel at the end of 1969 the market evidently thought more highly of the earnings prospects of hospital than of home since it gave the former almost twice the multiplier of the latter. As it happened the favored issue showed a microscopic decline in earnings in 1970, while home turned in a respectable 8% gain.
The market price of hospital reacted significantly to this one-year disappointment. It sold at 32 in February 1971, a loss of about 30% from its 1969 close, while home was quoted slightly above its corresponding level. Pair 4, H&R Block Incorporated, Income Tax Service, and Blue Bell Incorporated, Manufacturers of Work Clothes, Uniforms, etc. These companies rub shoulders as relative newcomers to the New York Stock Exchange, where they represent two very different genres of success stories. Blue Bell came up the hard way in a highly competitive industry, in which eventually it became the largest factor. Its earnings have fluctuated somewhat with industry conditions, but their growth since 1965 has been impressive. The company's operations go back to 1916 and its continuous dividend record to 1923. At the end of 1969 the stock market showed no enthusiasm for the issue, giving it a price-slash-earnings ratio of only 11, against about 17 for the S&P Composite Index. By contrast, the rise of H&R Block has been meteoric. Its first published figures date only to 1961, in which year it earned $83,000 on revenues of $610,000. But eight years later, on our comparison date, its revenues had soared to $53.6 million and its net to $6.3 million. At that time the stock market's attitude toward this fine performer appeared nothing less than ecstatic. The price of 55 at the close of 1969 was more than 100 times the last reported 12 months earnings, which of course were the largest to date. The aggregate market value of $300 million for the stock issue was nearly 30 times the tangible assets behind the shares. This was almost unheard of in the annals of serious stock market valuations. At that time IBM was selling at about 9 times and Xerox at 11 times book value. Our table 18 to 4 sets forth in dollar figures and in ratios the extraordinary discrepancy in the comparative valuations of Block and Blue Bell. True, Block showed twice the profitability of Blue Bell per dollar of capital, and its percentage growth in earnings over the past five years, from practically nothing, was much higher. But as a stock enterprise Blue Bell was selling for less than one-third the total value of Block, although Blue Bell was doing four times as much business, earning 21 halves times as much for its stock had 51 halves times as much intangible investment, and gave 9 times the dividend yield on the price. Indicated conclusions, an experienced analyst would have conceded great momentum to Block, implying excellent prospects for future growth. He might have had some qualms about the dangers of serious competition in the income tax service field, lured by the handsome return on capital realized by Block.1 but mindful of the continued success of such outstanding companies as Avon products in highly competitive areas he would have hesitated to predict a speedy flattening out of the block growth curve. His chief concern would be simply whether the $300 million valuation for the company had not already fully valued and perhaps overvalued all that one could reasonably expect from this excellent business. By contrast the analyst should have had little difficulty in recommending Blue Bell as a fine company, quite conservatively priced. Sequel to March 1971 The 1970 near panic lopped one quarter off the price of Blue Bell and about one third from that of Block. Both then joined in the extraordinary recovery of the general market. The price of Block rose to 75 in February 1971, but Blue Bell advanced considerably more, to the equivalent of 109, after a 3-for-2 split. Clearly Blue Bell proved a better buy than Block as of the end of 1969. But the fact that Block was able to advance some 35% from that apparently inflated value indicates how wary analysts and investors must be to sell good companies short, either by word or deed no matter how high the quotation may seem. Pair 5, International Flavors and Fragrances, Flavors, etc., for other businesses, and International Harvester Company, Truck Manufacturer, 
farm machinery, construction machinery. This comparison should carry more than one surprise. Everyone knows of International Harvester, one of the 30 giants in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. How many of our readers have even heard of International Flavors and Fragrances, next-door neighbor to Harvester on the New York Stock Exchange list? Yet, Mirable Dictu, IFF was actually selling at the end of 1969 for a higher aggregate market value than Harvester, $747 million versus $710 million. This is the more amazing when one reflects that Harvester had 17 times the stock capital of flavors and 27 times the annual sales. In fact, only three years before, the net earnings of Harvester had been larger than the 1969 sales of flavors. How did these extraordinary disparities develop? The answer lies in the two magic words, profitability and growth. Flavors made a remarkable showing in both categories, while Harvester left everything to be desired. The story is told in Table 18-5. to Here we find flavors with a sensational profit of 14.3% of sales, before income tax the figure was 23%, compared with a mere 2.6% for Harvester. Similarly, Flavors had earned 19.7% on its stock capital against an inadequate 5.5% earned by Harvester. In five years the net earnings of Flavors had nearly doubled, while those of Harvester practically stood still. Between 1969 and 1959 the comparison makes similar reading. These differences in performance produced a typical stock market divergence in valuation. Flavors sold in 1969 at 55 times its last reported earnings, and Harvester at only 10.7 times. Correspondingly, Flavors was valued at 10.4 times its book value, while Harvester was selling at a 41% discount from its net worth. Comment and Conclusions The first thing to remark is that the market success of Flavors was based entirely on the development of its central business, and involved none of the corporate wheeling and dealing, acquisition programs, top-heavy capitalization structures, and other familiar Wall Street practices of recent years. The company has stuck to its extremely profitable knitting and that is virtually its whole story. The record of Harvester raises an entirely different set of questions, but these two have nothing to do with high finance. Why have so many great companies become relatively unprofitable even during many years of general prosperity? What is the advantage of doing more than $21.5 billion of business if the enterprise cannot earn enough to justify the shareholders' investment? It is not for us to prescribe the solution of this problem. But we insist that not only management but the rank and file of shareholders should be conscious that the problem exists and that it calls for the best brains and the best efforts possible to deal with it. From the standpoint of common stock selection, neither issue would have met our standards of sound, reasonably attractive, and moderately priced investment. Flavors was a typical brilliantly successful but lavishly valued company, Harvester's showing was too mediocre to make it really attractive even at its discount price. Undoubtedly there were better values available in the reasonably priced class. Sequel to 1971, the low price of Harvester at the end of 1969 protected it from a large further decline in the bad break of 1970. It lost only 10% more. Flavors proved more vulnerable and declined to 45, a loss of 30%. In the subsequent recovery both advanced, well above their 1969 close, but Harvester soon fell back to the 25 level. Pair 6, McGraw-Edison Public Utility and Equipment, Housewares, McGraw-Hill Incorporated, Books, Films, Instruction Systems, Magazine and Newspaper Publishers, Information Services. This pair with so similar names, which at times we shall call Edison and Hill, are two large and successful enterprises in vastly different fields. We have chosen December 31, 1968, as the date of our comparison, developed in Table 18-6.
the issues were selling at about the same price, but because of Hill's larger capitalization it was valued at about twice the total figure of the other. This difference should appear somewhat surprising, since Edison had about 50% higher sales and one-quarter larger net earnings. As a result, we find that the key ratio, the multiplier of earnings, was more than twice as great for Hill as for Edison. This phenomenon seems explicable chiefly by the persistence of a strong enthusiasm and partiality exhibited by the market toward shares of book publishing companies, several of which had been introduced to public trading in the later 1960s. Actually, by the end of 1968 it was evident that this enthusiasm had been overdone. The Hill shares had sold at 56 in 1967, more than 40 times the just-reported record earnings for 1966. But a small decline had appeared in 1967 and a further decline in 1968. Thus the current high multiplier of 35 was being applied to a company that had already shown two years of receding profits. Nonetheless the stock was still valued at more than eight times its tangible asset backing, indicating a goodwill component of not far from a billion dollars. Thus the price seemed to illustrate, in Dr. Johnson's famous phrase, the triumph of hope over experience. By contrast, McGraw-Edison seemed quoted at a reasonable price in relation to the, high, general market level and to the company's overall performance and financial position. Sequel to early 1971, the decline of McGraw-Hill's earnings continued through 1969 and 1970, dropping to $1.02 and then to $0.82 per share. In the May 1970 debacle its price suffered a devastating break to 10, less than a fifth of the figure two years before. It had a good recovery thereafter but the high of 24 in May 1971 was still only 60% of the 1968 closing price. McGraw-Edison gave a better account of itself, declining to 22 in 1970 and recovering fully to 411 halves in May 1971. McGraw-Hill continues to be a strong and prosperous company. But its price history exemplifies, as do so many other cases, the speculative hazards in such stocks created by Wall Street through its undisciplined waves of optimism and pessimism. Pair 7, National General Corporation, a large conglomerate, and National Presto Industries, diverse electric appliances, ordnance. These two companies invite comparison chiefly because they are so different. Let us call them General and Presto. We have selected the end of 1968 for our study, because the write-offs taken by General in 1969 made the figures for that year too ambiguous. The full flavor of General's far-flung activities could not be savored the year before but it was already conglomerate enough for anyone's taste. The condensed description in the stock guide read nationwide theater chain, motion picture and TV production, savings and loan association, book publishing. To which could be added, then or later, insurance, investment banking, records, music publishing, computerized services, real estate, and 35% of performance systems incorporated, name recently changed from Mini Pearl's Chicken System Incorporated. Presto had also followed a diversification program, but in comparison with General it was modest indeed. Starting as the leading maker of pressure cookers, it had branched out into various other household and electric appliances. Quite differently, also, it took on a number of ordnance contracts for the U.S. government. Our Table 18 to 7 summarizes the showing of the companies at the end of 1968. The capital structure of Presto was as simple as it could be nothing but 1,478,000 shares of common stock, selling in the market for $58 million. Contrastingly, General had more than twice as many shares of common, plus an issue of convertible preferred, plus three issues of stock warrants calling for a huge amount of common, plus a towering convertible bond issue, just given in exchange for stock of an insurance company, 
plus a goodly sum of non-convertible bonds. All this added up to a market capitalization of $534 million, not counting an impending issue of convertible bonds, and $750 million, including such issue. Despite National General's enormously greater capitalization, it had actually done considerably less gross business than Presto in their fiscal years, and it had shown only 75% of Presto's net income. The Determination of the True Market Value of General's Common Stock capitalization presents an interesting problem for security analysts and has important implications for anyone interested in the stock on any basis more serious than outright gambling. The relatively small $41 halves convertible preferred can be readily taken care of by assuming its conversion into common, when the latter sells at a suitable market level. This we have done in Table 18-7. But the warrants require different treatment. In calculating the full dilution basis the company assumes exercise of all the warrants, and the application of the proceeds to the retirement of debt, plus use of the balance to buy in common at the market. These assumptions actually produced virtually no effect on the earnings per share in calendar 1968, which were reported as $1.51 both before and after allowance for dilution. We consider this treatment illogical and unrealistic. As we see it, the warrants represent a part of the common stock package and their market value is part of the effective market value of the common stock part of the capital. See our discussion of this point on p. 415 above. This simple technique of adding the market price of the warrants to that of the common has a radical effect on the showing of National General at the end of 1968, as appears from the calculation in Table 18-7. In fact the true market price of the common stock turns out to be more than twice the quoted figure. Hence the true multiplier of the 1968 earnings is more than doubled, to the inherently absurd figure of 69 times. The total market value of the common stock equivalents then becomes $413 million which is over three times the tangible assets shown therefore. These figures appear the more anomalous when comparison is made with those of Presto. One is moved to ask how could Presto possibly be valued at only 6.9 times its current earnings when the multiplier for general was nearly 10 times as great. All the ratios of Presto are quite satisfactory, the growth figure suspiciously so, in fact. By that we mean that the company was undoubtedly benefiting considerably from its war work and the shareholders should be prepared for some falling off in profits under peacetime conditions. But, on balance, Presto met all the requirements of a sound and reasonably priced investment, while General had all the earmarks of a typical conglomerate of the late 1960s vintage, full of corporate gadgets and grandiose gestures, but lacking in substantial values behind the market quotations. Sequel, General continued its diversification policy in 1969, with some increase in its debt, but it took a whopping write-off of millions, chiefly in the value of its investment in the mini-pearl-chicken deal. The final figure showed a loss of $72 million before tax credit and $46.4 million after tax credit. The price of the shares fell to 161 halves in 1969 and as low as 9 in 1970, only 15% of its 1968 high of 60. Earnings for 1970 were reported as $2.33 per share diluted and the price recovered to 281 halves in 1971. National Presto increased its per-share earnings somewhat in both 1969 and 1970, marking 10 years of uninterrupted growth of profits. Nonetheless its price declined to 211 halves in the 1970 debacle. This was an interesting figure, since it was less than four times the last reported earnings, and less than the net current assets available for the stock at the time. Late in 1971 we find the price of National Presto 60% higher, at 34, but the ratios are still startling. The enlarged working capital is still about equal to the current price, 
which in turn is only 51 halves times the last reported earnings. If the investor could now find 10 such issues, for diversification, he could be confident of satisfactory results. Pair 8, Whiting Corporation, Materials Handling Equipment, and Wilcox & Gibbs, Small Conglomerate. This pair are close but not touching neighbors on the American Stock Exchange list. The comparison, set forth in Table 188A, makes one wonder if Wall Street is a rational institution. The company with smaller sales and earnings, and with half the tangible assets for the common, sold at about four times the aggregate value of the other. The higher-valued company was about to report a large loss after special charges, it had not paid a dividend in 13 years. The other had a long record of satisfactory earnings, had paid continuous dividends since 1936, and was currently returning one of the highest dividend yields in the entire common stock list. To indicate more vividly the disparity in the performance of the two companies we append, in Table 188b, the earnings and price record for 1961 to 1970. The history of the two companies throws an interesting light on the development of medium-sized businesses in this country, in contrast with much larger-sized companies that have mainly appeared in these pages. Whiting was incorporated in 1896, and thus goes back at least 75 years. It seems to have kept pretty faithfully to its materials handling business and has done quite well with it over the decades. Wilcox & Gibbs goes back even farther, to 1866, and was long known in its industry as a prominent maker of industrial sewing machines. During the past decade it adopted a policy of diversification in what seems a rather outlandish form. For on the one hand it has an extraordinarily large number of subsidiary companies, at least 24, making an astonishing variety of products, but on the other hand the entire conglomeration adds up to mighty small potatoes by usual Wall Street standards. The earnings developments in Whiting are rather characteristic of our business concerns. The figures show steady and rather spectacular growth from 41 cents a share in 1960 to $3.63 in 1968. But they carried no assurance that such growth must continue indefinitely. The subsequent decline to only $1.77 for the 12 months ended January 1971 may have reflected nothing more than the slowing down of the general economy. But the stock price reacted in severe fashion, falling about 60% from its 1968 high, 431 halves to the close of 1969. Our analysis would indicate that the shares represented a sound and attractive secondary issue investment, suitable for the enterprising investor as part of a group of such commitments. Sequel, Wilcox & Gibbs showed a small operating loss for 1970. Its price declined drastically to a low of 41 halves, recovering in typical fashion to 91 halves in February 1971. It would be hard to justify that price statistically. Whiting had a relatively small decline to 163 fourths in 1970. At that price it was selling at just about the current assets alone available for the shares. Its earnings held at $1.85 per share to July 1971. In early 1971 the price advanced to 241 halves, which seemed reasonable enough but no longer a bargain by our standards. General Observations The issues used in these comparisons were selected with some malice aforethought and thus they cannot be said to present a random cross-section of the common stock list. Also they are limited to the industrial section, and the important areas of public utilities, transportation companies, and financial enterprises do not appear. But they vary sufficiently in size, lines of business, and qualitative and quantitative aspects to convey a fair idea of the choices confronting an investor in common stocks. The relationship between price and indicated value has also differed greatly from one case to another. For the most part the companies with better growth records and higher profitability have sold at higher multipliers of current earnings, which is logical enough in general. 
whether the specific differentials in price-slash-earnings ratios are justified by the facts, or will be vindicated by future developments, cannot be answered with confidence. On the other hand we do have quite a few instances here in which a worthwhile judgment can be reached. These include virtually all the cases where there has been great market activity in companies of questionable underlying soundness. Such stocks not only were speculative, which means inherently risky, but a good deal of the time they were and are obviously overvalued. Other issues appeared to be worth more than their price, being affected by the opposite sort of market attitude, which we might call under speculation or by undue pessimism because of a shrinkage in earnings. In Table 18-9 we provide some data on the price fluctuations of the issues covered in this chapter. Most of them had large declines between 1961 and 1962, as well as from 1969 to 1970. Clearly the investor must be prepared for this type of adverse market movement in future stock markets. In Table 18-10 we show year-to-year -year fluctuations of McGraw-Hill common stock for the period 1958-1970. It will be noted that in each of the last 13 years the price either advanced or declined over a range of at least 3-2 from one year to the next. In the case of national general fluctuations of at least this amplitude both upward and downward were shown in each two-year period. In studying the stock list for the material in this chapter, we were impressed once again by the wide difference between the usual objectives of security analysis and those we deem dependable and rewarding. Most security analysts try to select the issues that will give the best account of themselves in the future, in terms chiefly of market action but considering also the development of earnings. We are frankly skeptical as to whether this can be done with satisfactory results. Our preference for the analyst's work would be rather that he should seek the exceptional or minority cases in which he can form a reasonably confident judgment that the price is well below value. He should be able to do this work with sufficient expertness to produce satisfactory average results over the years. Chapter 19 Shareholders and Managements, Dividend Policy Ever since 1934 we have argued in our writings for a more intelligent and energetic attitude by shareholders toward their managements. We have asked them to take a generous attitude toward those who are demonstrably doing a good job. We have asked them also to demand clear and satisfying explanations when the results appear to be worse than they should be, and to support movements to improve or remove clearly unproductive managements. Shareholders are justified in raising questions as to the competence of the management when the results, one, are unsatisfactory in themselves, two, are poorer than those obtained by other companies that appear similarly situated, and, three, have resulted in an unsatisfactory market price of long duration. In the last 36 years practically nothing has actually been accomplished through intelligent action by the great body of shareholders. A sensible crusader, if there are any such, would take this as a sign that he has been wasting his time, and that he had better give up the fight. As it happens our cause has not been lost. It has been rescued by an extraneous development, known as takeovers, or takeover bids. We said in Chapter 8 that poor managements produce poor market prices. The low market prices, in turn, attract the attention of companies interested in diversifying their operations, and these are now legion. Innumerable such acquisitions have been accomplished by agreement with the existing managements, or else by accumulation of shares in the market and by offers made over the head of those in control. The price bid has usually been within the range of the value of the enterprise under reasonably competent management. Hence, in many cases, the inert public shareholder has been bailed out by the actions of outsiders who at times may be enterprising individuals or groups acting on their own. It can be stated as a rule with very few exceptions that poor managements are not changed by action of the public stockholders, but only by the assertion of control by an individual or compact group. 
This is happening often enough these days to put the management, including the board of directors, of a typical publicly controlled company on notice that if its operating results and the resulting market price are highly unsatisfactory, it may become the target of a successful takeover move. As a consequence, boards of directors have probably become more alive than previously to their fundamental duty to see that their company has a satisfactory top management. Many more changes of presidents have been seen in recent years than formerly. Not all companies in the unsatisfactory class have benefited from such developments. Also, the change has often occurred after a long period of bad results without remedial action, and has depended on enough disappointed shareholders selling out at low prices to permit the energetic outsiders to acquire a controlling position in the shares. But the idea that public shareholders could really help themselves by supporting moves for improving management and management policies has proved too quixotic to warrant further space in this book. Those individual shareholders who have enough gumption to make their presence felt at annual meetings, generally a completely futile performance, will not need our counsel on what points to raise with the managements. For others the advice would probably be wasted. Nevertheless, let us close this section with the plea that shareholders consider with an open mind and with careful attention any proxy material sent them by fellow shareholders who want to remedy an obviously unsatisfactory management situation in the company. Shareholders and Dividend Policy In the past the dividend policy was a fairly frequent subject of argument between public, or minority, shareholders and managements. In general these shareholders wanted more liberal dividends, while the managements preferred to keep the earnings in the business to strengthen the company. They asked the shareholders to sacrifice their present interests for the good of the enterprise and for their own future long-term benefit. But in recent years the attitude of investors toward dividends has been undergoing a gradual but significant change. The basic argument now for paying small rather than liberal dividends is not that the company needs the money, but rather that it can use it to the shareholders' direct and immediate advantage by retaining the funds for profitable expansion. Years ago it was typically the weak company that was more or less forced to hold on to its profits instead of paying out the usual 60% to 75% of them in dividends. The effect was almost always adverse to the market price of the shares. Nowadays it is quite likely to be a strong and growing enterprise that deliberately keeps down its dividend payments, with the approval of investors and speculators alike. There was always a strong theoretical case for reinvesting profits in the business where such retention could be counted on to produce a goodly increase in earnings. But there were several strong counter-arguments, such as, the profits belong to the shareholders, and they are entitled to have them paid out within the limits of prudent management, many of the shareholders need their dividend income to live on, the earnings they receive in dividends are real money, while those retained in the company may or may not show up later as tangible values for the shareholders. These counter-arguments were so compelling, in fact, that the stock market showed a persistent bias in favor of the liberal dividend payers as against the companies that paid no dividends or relatively small ones.1. In the last 20 years the profitable reinvestment theory has been gaining ground. The better the past record of growth, the readier investors and speculators have become to accept a low payout policy. So much is this true that in many cases of growth favorites the dividend rate, or even the absence of any dividend, has seemed to have virtually no effect on the market price. A striking example of this development is found in the history of Texas Instruments, Incorporated. The price of its common stock rose from 5 in 1953 to 256 in 1960, while earnings were advancing from 43 cents to $3.91 per share and while no dividend of any kind was paid. In 1962 cash dividends were initiated, but by that year the earnings had fallen to $2.14 and the price had shown a spectacular drop to a low of 49. Another extreme illustration is provided by Superior Oil. 
1948 the company reported earnings of $35.26 per share, paid $3 in dividends, and sold as high as 235 In 1953 the dividend was reduced to $1, but the high price was 660 In 1957 it paid no dividend at all, and sold at 2000 This unusual issue later declined to 795 in 1962 when it earned $49.50 and paid $7.50. Investment sentiment is far from crystallized in this matter of dividend policy of growth companies. The conflicting views are well illustrated by the cases of two of our very largest corporations, American Telephone and Telegraph and International Business Machines. American Telephone and Telephone came to be regarded as an issue with good growth possibilities, as shown by the fact that in 1961 it sold at 25 times that year's earnings. Nevertheless, the company's cash dividend policy has remained an investment and speculative consideration of first importance, its quotation making an active response to even rumors of an impending increase in the dividend rate. On the other hand, comparatively little attention appears to have been paid to the cash dividend on IBM, which in 1960 yielded only half a percent at the high price of the year and 1.5% at the close of 1970. But in both cases stock splits have operated as a potent stock market influence. The market's appraisal of cash dividend policy appears to be developing in the following direction, where prime emphasis is not placed on growth the stock is rated as an income issue, and the dividend rate retains its long-held importance as the prime determinant of market price. At the other extreme, stocks clearly recognized to be in the rapid growth category are valued primarily in terms of the expected growth rate over, say, the next decade, and the cash dividend rate is more or less left out of the reckoning. While the above statement may properly describe present tendencies, it is by no means a clear-cut guide to the situation in all common stocks, and perhaps not in the majority of them. For one thing, many companies occupy an intermediate position between growth and non-growth enterprises. It is hard to say how much importance should be ascribed to the growth factor in such cases, and the market's view thereof may change radically from year to year. Secondly, there seems to be something paradoxical about requiring the companies showing slower growth to be more liberal with their cash dividends. For these are generally the less prosperous concerns, and in the past the more prosperous the company the greater was the expectation of both liberal and increasing payments. It is our belief that shareholders should demand of their management either a normal payout of earnings, on the order, say, of two-thirds, or else a clear-cut demonstration that the reinvested profits have produced a satisfactory increase in per-share earnings. Such a demonstration could ordinarily be made in the case of a recognized growth company. But in many other cases a low payout is clearly the cause of an average market price that is below fair value, and here the shareholders have every right to inquire and probably to complain. A niggardly policy has often been imposed on a company because its financial position is relatively weak, and it has needed all or most of its earnings, plus depreciation charges, to pay debts and bolster its working capital position. When this is so there is not much the shareholders can say about it except perhaps to criticize the management for permitting the company to fall into such an unsatisfactory financial position. However, dividends are sometimes held down by relatively unprosperous companies for the declared purpose of expanding the business. We feel that such a policy is illogical on its face, and should require both a complete explanation and a convincing defense before the shareholders should accept it. In terms of the past record there is no reason a priori to believe that the owners will benefit from expansion moves undertaken with their money by a business showing mediocre results and continuing its old management. Stock Dividends and Stock Splits It is important that investors understand the essential difference between a stock dividend, properly so called, and a stock split. The latter represents a restatement of the common stock structure, 
in a typical case by issuing two or three shares for a one. The new shares are not related to specific earnings reinvested in a specific past period. Its purpose is to establish a lower market price for the single shares, presumably because such lower price range would be more acceptable to old and new shareholders. A stock split may be carried out by what technically may be called a stock dividend, which involves a transfer of sums from earned surplus to capital account, or else by a change in par value, which does not affect the surplus account. What we should call a proper stock dividend is one that is paid to shareholders to give them a tangible evidence or representation of specific earnings which have been reinvested in the business for their account over some relatively short period in the recent past, say, not more than the two preceding years. It is now approved practice to value such a stock dividend at the approximate value at the time of declaration, and to transfer an amount equal to such value from earned surplus to capital accounts. Thus the amount of a typical stock dividend is relatively small, in most cases not more than 5%. In essence a stock dividend of this sort has the same overall effect as the payment of an equivalent amount of cash out of earnings when accompanied by the sale of additional shares of like total value to the shareholders. However, a straight stock dividend has an important tax advantage over the otherwise equivalent combination of cash dividends with stock subscription rights, which is the almost standard practice for public utility companies. The New York Stock Exchange has set the figure of 25% as a practical dividing line between stock splits and stock dividends. Those of 25% or more need not be accompanied by the transfer of their market value from earned surplus to capital, and so forth. Some companies, especially banks, still follow the old practice of declaring any kind of stock dividend they please, for example, one of 10%, not related to recent earnings, and these instances maintain an undesirable confusion in the financial world. We have long been a strong advocate of a systematic and clearly enunciated policy with respect to the payment of cash and stock dividends. Under such a policy, stock dividends are paid periodically to capitalize all or a stated portion of the earnings reinvested in the business. Such a policy, covering 100% of the reinvested earnings, has been followed by Purex, government employees insurance, and perhaps a few others. Stock dividends of all types seem to be disapproved of by most academic writers on the subject. They insist that they are nothing but pieces of paper, that they give the shareholders nothing they did not have before, and that they entail needless expense and inconvenience. On our side we consider this a completely doctrinaire view, which fails to take into account the practical and psychological realities of investment. True, a periodic stock dividend, say a 5%, changes only the form of the owner's investment. He has 105 shares in place of 100 but without the stock dividend the original 100 shares would have represented the same ownership interest now embodied in his 105 shares. Nonetheless, the change of form is actually one of real importance and value to him. If he wishes to cash in his share of the reinvested profits he can do so by selling the new certificate sent him, instead of having to break up his original certificate. He can count on receiving the same cash dividend rate on 105 shares as formerly on his 100 shares. A 5% rise in the cash dividend rate without the stock dividend would not be nearly as probable. The advantages of a periodic stock dividend policy are most evident when it is compared with the usual practice of the public utility companies of paying liberal cash dividends and then taking back a good part of this money from the shareholders by selling them additional stock, through subscription rights. As we mentioned above, the shareholders would find themselves in exactly the same position if they received stock dividends in lieu of the popular combination of cash dividends followed by stock subscriptions, except that they would save the income tax otherwise paid on the cash dividends. Those who need or wish the maximum annual cash income, with no additional stock, can get this result by selling their stock dividends, in the same way as they sell their subscription rights under present practice. 
the aggregate amount of income tax that could be saved by substituting stock dividends for the present stock dividends plus subscription rights combination is enormous. We urge that this change be made by the public utilities, despite its adverse effect on the U.S. Treasury, because we are convinced that it is completely inequitable to impose a second, personal, income tax on earnings which are not really received by the shareholders, since the companies take the same money back through sales of stock. Efficient corporations continuously modernize their facilities, their products, their bookkeeping, their management training programs, their employee relations. It is high time they thought about modernizing their major financial practices, not the least important of which is their dividend policy. Chapter 20. Margin of safety is the central concept of investment. In the old legend the wise man finally boiled down the history of mortal affairs into the single phrase, this too will pass. Confronted with a like challenge to distill the secret of sound investment into three words, we venture the motto, margin off. Safety. This is the thread that runs through all the preceding discussion of investment policy, often explicitly, sometimes in a less direct fashion. Let us try now, briefly, to trace that idea in a connected argument. All experienced investors recognize that the margin of safety concept is essential to the choice of sound bonds and preferred stocks. For example, a railroad should have earned its total fixed charges better than five times, before income tax, taking a period of years, for its bonds to qualify as investment-grade issues. This past ability to earn an excess of interest requirements constitutes the margin of safety that is counted on to protect the investor against loss or discomfiture in the event of some future decline in net income. The margin above charges may be stated in other ways, for example, in the percentage by which revenues or profits may decline before the balance after interest disappears, but the underlying idea remains the same. The bond investor does not expect future average earnings to work out the same as in the past, if he were sure of that, the margin demanded might be small. Nor does he rely to any controlling extent on his judgment as to whether future earnings will be materially better or poorer than in the past, if he did that he would have to measure his margin in terms of a carefully projected income account, instead of emphasizing the margin shown in the past record. Here the function of the margin of safety is, in essence, that of rendering unnecessary and accurate estimate of the future. If the margin is a large one, then it is enough to assume that future earnings will not fall far below those of the past in order for an investor to feel sufficiently protected against the vicissitudes of time. The margin of safety for bonds may be calculated, alternatively, by comparing the total value of the enterprise with the amount of debt. A similar calculation may be made for a preferred stock issue. If the business owes $10 million and is fairly worth $30 million, there is room for a shrinkage of two-thirds in value, at least theoretically, before the bondholders will suffer loss. The amount of this extra value, or cushion, above the debt may be approximated by using the average market price of the junior stock issues over a period of years. Since average stock prices are generally related to average earning power, the margin of enterprise value over debt and the margin of earnings over charges will in most cases yield similar results. So much for the margin of safety concept is applied to fixed value investments. Can it be carried over into the field of common stocks? Yes, but with some necessary modifications. There are instances where a common stock may be considered sound because it enjoys a margin of safety as large as that of a good bond. This will occur, for example, when a company has outstanding only common stock that under depression conditions is selling for less than the amount of bonds that could safely be issued against its property and earning power. That was the position of a host of strongly financed industrial companies at the low price levels of 1932-33. In such instances the investor can obtain the margin of safety associated with a bond, plus all the chances of larger income and principal appreciation inherent in a common stock. 
The only thing he lacks is the legal power to insist on dividend payments or else but this is a small drawback as compared with his advantages, common stocks bought under such circumstances will supply an ideal, though infrequent, combination of safety and profit opportunity. As a quite recent example of this condition, let us mention once more National Presto Industries stock, which sold for a total enterprise value of $43 million in 1972. With its $16 millions of recent earnings before taxes the company could easily have supported this amount of bonds. In the ordinary common stock, bought for investment under normal conditions, the margin of safety lies in an expected earning power considerably above the going rate for bonds. In former editions we elucidated this point with the following figures. Assume in a typical case that the earning power is 9% on the price and that the bond rate is 4% then the stock buyer will have an average annual margin of 5% accruing in his favor. Some of the excess is paid to him in the dividend rate, even though spent by him, it enters into his overall investment result. The undistributed balance is reinvested in the business for his account. In many cases such reinvested earnings fail to add commensurately to the earning power and value of his stock. That is why the market has a stubborn habit of valuing earnings dispersed in dividends more generously than the portion retained in the business. But, if the picture is viewed as a whole, there is a reasonably close connection between the growth of corporate surpluses through reinvested earnings and the growth of corporate values. Over a 10-year period the typical excess of stock earning power over bond interest may aggregate 50% of the price paid. This figure is sufficient to provide a very real margin of safety, which, under favorable conditions, will prevent or minimize a loss. If such a margin is present in each of a diversified list of 20 or more stocks, the probability of a favorable result under fairly normal conditions becomes very large. That is why the policy of investing in representative common stocks does not require high qualities of insight and foresight to work out successfully. If the purchases are made at the average level of the market over a span of years, the prices paid should carry with them assurance of an adequate margin of safety. The danger to investors lies in concentrating their purchases in the upper levels of the market or in buying non-representative common stocks that carry more than average risk of diminished earning power. As we see it, the whole problem of common stock investment under 1972 conditions lies in the fact that in a typical case the earning power is now much less than 9% on the price paid. Let us assume that by concentrating somewhat on the low multiplier issues among the large companies a defensive investor may now acquire equities at 12 times recent earnings i.e., with an earnings return of 8.33% on cost. He may obtain a dividend yield of about 4%, and he will have 4.33% of his cost reinvested in the business for his account. On this basis, the excess of stock earning power over bond interest over a 10-year basis would still be too small to constitute an adequate margin of safety. For that reason we feel that there are real risks now even in a diversified list of sound common stocks. The risks may be fully offset by the profit possibilities of the list and indeed the investor may have no choice but to incur them, for otherwise he may run an even greater risk of holding only fixed claims payable in steadily depreciating dollars. Nonetheless the investor would do well to recognize, and to accept as philosophically as he can, that the old package of good profit possibilities combined with small ultimate risk is no longer available to him. However, the risk of paying too high a price for good quality stocks, while a real one, is not the chief hazard confronting the average buyer of securities. Observation over many years has taught us that the chief losses to investors come from the purchase of low-quality securities at times of favorable business conditions. The purchasers view the current good earnings as equivalent to earning power and assume that prosperity is synonymous with safety. It is in those years that bonds and preferred stocks of inferior grade can be sold to the public at a price around par, 
because they carry a little higher income return or a deceptively attractive conversion privilege. It is then, also, that common stocks of obscure companies can be floated at prices far above the tangible investment, on the strength of two or three years of excellent growth. These securities do not offer an adequate margin of safety in any admissible sense of the term. Coverage of interest charges and preferred dividends must be tested over a number of years, including preferably a period of subnormal business such as in 1970-71. The same is ordinarily true of common stock earnings if they are to qualify as indicators of earning power. Thus it follows that most of the fairweather investments, acquired at fairweather prices, are destined to suffer disturbing price declines when the horizon clouds over, and often sooner than that. Nor can the investor count with confidence on an eventual recovery, although this does come about in some proportion of the cases, for he has never had a real safety margin to tide him through adversity. The philosophy of investment in growth stocks parallels in part and in part contravenes the margin of safety principle. The growth stock buyer relies on an expected earning power that is greater than the average shown in the past. Thus he may be said to substitute these expected earnings for the past record in calculating his margin of safety. In investment theory there is no reason why carefully estimated future earnings should be a less reliable guide than the bare record of the past, in fact, security analysis is coming more and more to prefer a competently executed evaluation of the future. Thus the growth stock approach may supply as dependable a margin of safety as is found in the ordinary investment, provided the calculation of the future is conservatively made, and provided it shows a satisfactory margin in relation to the price paid. The danger in a growth stock program lies precisely here. 4. Such favored issues the market has a tendency to set prices that will not be adequately protected by a conservative projection of future earnings. It is a basic rule of prudent investment that all estimates, when they differ from past performance, must hurt at least slightly on the side of understatement. The margin of safety is always dependent on the price paid. It will be large at one price, small at some higher price, non-existent at some still higher price. If, as we suggest, the average market level of most growth stocks is too high to provide an adequate margin of safety for the buyer, then a simple technique of diversified buying in this field may not work out satisfactorily. A special degree of foresight and judgment will be needed, in order that wise individual selections may overcome the hazards inherent in the customary market level of such issues as a whole. The margin of safety idea becomes much more evident when we apply it to the field of undervalued or bargain securities. We have here, by definition, a favorable difference between price on the one hand and indicated or appraised value on the other. That difference is the safety margin. It is available for absorbing the effect of miscalculations or worse than average luck. The buyer of bargain issues places particular emphasis on the ability of the investment to withstand adverse developments. For in most such cases he has no real enthusiasm about the company's prospects. True, if the prospects are definitely bad the investor will prefer to avoid the security no matter how low the price. But the field of undervalued issues is drawn from the many concerns, perhaps a majority of the total for which the future appears neither distinctly promising nor distinctly unpromising. If these are bought on a bargain basis, even a moderate decline in the earning power need not prevent the investment from showing satisfactory results. The margin of safety will then have served its proper purpose. Theory of Diversification There is a close logical connection between the concept of a safety margin and the principle of diversification. One is correlative with the other. Even with a margin in the investor's favor, an individual security may work out badly. For the margin guarantees only that he has a better chance for profit than for loss, not that loss is impossible. But as the number of such commitments is increased the more certain does it become that the aggregate of the profits will exceed the aggregate of the losses. 
That is the simple basis of the insurance underwriting business. Diversification is an established tenet of conservative investment. By accepting it so universally, investors are really demonstrating their acceptance of the margin of safety principle, to which diversification is the companion. This point may be made more colorful by reference to the arithmetic of roulette. If a man bets $1 on a single number, he is paid $35 profit when he wins, but the chances are 37 to 1 that he will lose. He has a negative margin of safety. In his case diversification is foolish. The more numbers he bets on, the smaller his chance of ending with a profit. If he regularly bets $1 on every number, including 0 and 00, he is certain to lose $2 on each turn of the wheel. But suppose the winner received $39 profit instead of $35. Then he would have a small but important margin of safety. Therefore, the more numbers he wagers on, the better his chance of gain. And he could be certain of winning $2 on every spin by simply betting $1 each on all the numbers. Incidentally, the two examples given actually describe the respective positions of the player and proprietor of a wheel with 0 and 00. A criterion of investment versus speculation. Since there is no single definition of investment in general acceptance, authorities have the right to define it pretty much as they please. Many of them deny that there is any useful or dependable difference between the concepts of investment and of speculation. We think this skepticism is unnecessary and harmful. It is injurious because it lends encouragement to the innate leaning of many people toward the excitement and hazards of stock market speculation. We suggest that the margin of safety concept may be used to advantage as the touchstone to distinguish an investment operation from a speculative one. Probably most speculators believe they have the odds in their favor when they take their chances, and therefore they may lay claim to a safety margin in their proceedings. Each one has the feeling that the time is propitious for his purchase, or that his skill is superior to the crowds, or that his advisor or system is trustworthy. But such claims are unconvincing. They rest on subjective judgment, unsupported by anybody of favorable evidence or any conclusive line of reasoning. We greatly doubt whether the man who stakes money on his view that the market is heading up or down can ever be said to be protected by a margin of safety in any useful sense of the phrase. By contrast, the investor's concept of the margin of safety, as developed earlier in this chapter, rests upon simple and definite arithmetical reasoning from statistical data. We believe, also, that it is well supported by practical investment experience. There is no guarantee that this fundamental quantitative approach will continue to show favorable results under the unknown conditions of the future. But, equally, there is no valid reason for pessimism on this score. Thus, in sum, we say that to have a true investment there must be present a true margin of safety. And a true margin of safety is one that can be demonstrated by figures, by persuasive reasoning, and by reference to a body of actual experience. Extension of the concept of investment to complete our discussion of the margin of safety principle we must now make a further distinction between conventional and unconventional investments. Conventional investments are appropriate for the typical portfolio. Under this heading have always come United States government issues and high-grade, dividend-paying common stocks. We have added state and municipal bonds for those who will benefit sufficiently by their tax-exempt features. Also included are first quality corporate bonds when, as now, they can be bought to yield sufficiently more than United States savings bonds. Unconventional investments are those that are suitable only for the enterprising investor. They cover a wide range. The broadest category is that of undervalued common stocks of secondary companies, which we recommend for purchase when they can be bought at two-thirds or less of their indicated value. Besides these, there is often a wide choice of medium-grade corporate bonds and preferred stocks when they are selling at such depressed prices as to be obtainable also at a considerable discount from their apparent value. 
In these cases the average investor would be inclined to call the securities speculative, because in his mind their lack of a first quality rating is a synonymous with a lack of investment merit. It is our argument that a sufficiently low price can turn a security of mediocre quality into a sound investment opportunity, provided that the buyer is informed and experienced and that he practices adequate diversification. 4. If the price is low enough to create a substantial margin of safety, the security thereby meets our criterion of investment. Our favorite supporting illustration is taken from the field of real estate bonds. In the 1920s, billions of dollars worth of these issues were sold at par and widely recommended as sound investments. A large proportion had so little margin of value over debt as to be in fact highly speculative in character. In the depression of the 1930s an enormous quantity of these bonds defaulted their interest, and their price collapsed, in some cases below 10 cents on the dollar. At that stage the same advisors who had recommended them at par as safe investments were rejecting them as paper of the most speculative and unattractive type. But as a matter of fact the price depreciation of about 90% made many of these securities exceedingly attractive and reasonably safe, for the true values behind them were four or five times the market quotation. The fact that the purchase of these bonds actually resulted in what is generally called a large speculative profit did not prevent them from having true investment qualities at their low prices. The speculative profit was the purchaser's reward for having made an unusually shrewd investment. They could properly be called investment opportunities, since a careful analysis would have shown that the excessive value over price provided a large margin of safety. Thus the very class of fair-weather investments which we stated above is a chief source of serious loss to naive security buyers is likely to afford many sound profit opportunities to the sophisticated operator who may buy them later at pretty much his own price. The whole field of special situations would come under our definition of investment operations, because the purchase is always predicated on a thoroughgoing analysis that promises a larger realization than the price paid. Again there are risk factors in each individual case, but these are allowed for in the calculations and absorbed in the overall results of a diversified operation. To carry this discussion to a logical extreme, we might suggest that a defensible investment operation could be set up by buying such intangible values as are represented by a group of common stock option warrants selling at historically low prices. This example is intended as somewhat of a shocker, the entire value of these warrants rests on the possibility that the related stocks may someday advance above the option price. At the moment they have no exercisable value. Yet, since all investment rests on reasonable future expectations, it is proper to view these warrants in terms of the mathematical chances that some future bull market will create a large increase in their indicated value and in their price. Such a study might well yield the conclusion that there is much more to be gained in such an operation than to be lost and that the chances of an ultimate profit are much better than those of an ultimate loss. If that is so, there is a safety margin present even in this unprepossessing security form. A sufficiently enterprising investor could then include an option warrant operation in his miscellany of unconventional investments. To sum up, investment is most intelligent when it is most businesslike. It is amazing to see how many capable businessmen try to operate in Wall Street with complete disregard of all the sound principles through which they have gained success in their own undertakings. Yet every corporate security may best be viewed, in the first instance, as an ownership interest in, or a claim against, a specific business enterprise. And if a person sets out to make profits from security purchases and sales, he is embarking on a business venture of his own which must be run in accordance with accepted business principles if it is to have a chance of success. The first and most obvious of these principles is, know what you are doing, know your business. For the investor this means, do not try to make business profits out of securities, that is, returns in excess of normal interest and dividend income, 
unless you know as much about security values as you would need to know about the value of merchandise that you propose to manufacture or deal in. A second business principle, do not let anyone else run your business, unless, 1, you can supervise his performance with adequate care and comprehension or, 2, you have unusually strong reasons for placing implicit confidence in his integrity and ability. For the investor this rule should determine the conditions under which he will permit someone else to decide what is done with his money. A third business principle, do not enter upon an operation, that is, manufacturing or trading in an item, unless a reliable calculation shows that it has a fair chance to yield a reasonable profit. In particular, keep away from ventures in which you have little to gain and much to lose. For the enterprising investor this means that his operations for profit should be based not on optimism but on arithmetic. For every investor it means that when he limits his return to a small figure, as formerly, at least, in a conventional bond or preferred stock, he must demand convincing evidence that he is not risking a substantial part of his principal. A fourth business rule is more positive, have the courage of your knowledge and experience. If you have formed a conclusion from the facts and if you know your judgment is sound, act on it, even though others may hesitate or differ. You are neither right nor wrong because the crowd disagrees with you. You are right because your data and reasoning are right. Similarly, in the world of securities, courage becomes the supreme virtue after adequate knowledge and attested judgment are at hand. Fortunately for the typical investor, it is by no means necessary for his success that he bring these qualities to bear upon his program, provided he limits his ambition to his capacity and confines his activities within the safe and narrow path of standard, defensive investment. To achieve satisfactory investment results is easier than most people realize, to achieve superior results is harder than it looks. Postscript We know very well two partners who spend a good part of their lives handling their own and other people's funds on Wall Street. Some hard experience taught them it was better to be safe and careful rather than to try to make all the money in the world. They established a rather unique approach to security operations, which combined good profit possibilities with sound values. They avoided anything that appeared overpriced and were rather too quick to dispose of issues that had advanced to levels they deemed no longer attractive. Their portfolio was always well diversified, with more than a hundred different issues represented. In this way they did quite well through many years of ups and downs in the general market, they averaged about 20% per annum on the several millions of capital they had accepted for management, and their clients were well pleased with the results. In the year in which the first edition of this book appeared an opportunity was offered to the partners fund to purchase a half interest in a growing enterprise. For some reason the industry did not have Wall Street appeal at the time and the deal had been turned down by quite a few important houses. But the pair was impressed by the company's possibilities, what was decisive for them was that the price was moderate in relation to current earnings and asset value. The partners went ahead with the acquisition, amounting in dollars to about one-fifth of their fund. They became closely identified with the new business interest, which prospered. In fact it did so well that the price of its shares advanced to 200 times or more the price paid for the half interest. The advance far outstripped the actual growth in profits, and almost from the start the quotation appeared much too high in terms of the partner's own investment standards. But since they regarded the company as a sort of family business, they continued to maintain a substantial ownership of the shares despite the spectacular price rise. A large number of participants in their funds did the same, and they became millionaires through their holding in this one enterprise, plus later organized affiliates. Ironically enough, the aggregate of profits accruing from this single investment decision far exceeded the sum of all the others realized through 20 years of wide-ranging operations in the partners' specialized fields, involving much investigation, endless pondering, and countless individual decisions. Are there morals to this story of value to the intelligent investor? 
An obvious one is that there are several different ways to make and keep money in Wall Street. Another, not so obvious, is that one lucky break, or one supremely shrewd decision, can we tell them apart? Make out for more than a lifetime of journeyman efforts. One, but behind the luck, or the crucial decision, there must usually exist a background of preparation and disciplined capacity. One needs to be sufficiently established and recognized so that these opportunities will knock at his particular door. One must have the means, the judgment, and the courage to take advantage of them. Of course, we cannot promise a like spectacular experience to all intelligent investors who remain both prudent and alert through the years. We are not going to end with J.J. Raskob's slogan that we made fun of at the beginning, everybody can be rich. But interesting possibilities abound on the financial scene, and the intelligent and enterprising investor should be able to find both enjoyment and profit in this three-ring circus. Excitement is guaranteed.